wasn't actually the deliberate mistruths of Mormon history that had the greatest effect on my rejection of the church. It's actually been the treatment and effects of this religion on other people. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And that's how I see the Mormon church. To suppress negative emotions in all walks of life, the assumption behind those who adhere to this kind of toxic positivity is that no good can be achieved if we dwell on the more unpleasant aspects of a particular thing. Therefore, we must always look towards and infer the positive. But this is in itself a psychologically damaging pursuit. I think this is a mindset that tends towards a blissful ignorance, allows narcissistic individuals to flourish and seek for to alter your reality. The Mormon church exudes toxic positivity in its leadership, in its media, in its public image. In a mass gaslighting effort, the Mormon church wants to divert your gaze towards only the wholesome aspects and away from the poison that's within. Away from anything that will allow investigation or for you to address the most pressing questions about its organizational foundation. If you can't meet in person, meet via computer. But let's get going. Let's don't wait for somebody to give us permission. Let's do it now. Christians versus Pharisees, choosing sides and how to fight for them in the Mormon Civil War. Bradgate, what the church must learn from the fall and attempted rehabilitation of Brad Wilcox. Episode 10D, Sunderland, Spotlight, Swan Songs and Censorship. As well as finishing an analysis of Brad Wilcox's fascinating and revealing online fireside with the Sunderland England stake on the 13th of September 2020 during Covid lockdown, before diving into his controversial statements at a fireside for youth in Alpine, Utah on the 6th of February 2022, and the aftermath attempts to rehabilitate him in the next episodes of this 10 series, this episode will include some profound insights from other podcasters processing their faith and trust crisis, who have kindly given me permission to include them. I will also try to condense and explain everything we have learnt from the recent bombshell journalism of the Associated Press, proving that the Church's own systems intentionally protect child abusers and child pornographers while the same general authorities insisting those actions are taken, stand at pulpits hypocritically declaring child abuse to be appalling and pornography an existential threat to families and civilization. Because of that content, this episode comes with a trigger warning for people who have experienced abuse and the church ignoring and covering up their suffering which is a lot of Latter-day Saints. We already knew that, but this should be a watershed moment that removes any doubt that the Church's generations of doing this to children have always been intentional and systemic, not accidental and unintended. 
I won't be mincing my words about that. We will actually get back to Brad Wilcox in this episode too, but as usual there is always another drama every week as this church of dwindling millions collapses under the weight of its self-inflicted dysfunctions, so this is going to be quite a long episode. Remember, Mormon Civil War is being filmed now, so if you want to see the illustrations and documents referenced as we go, they are all there in this episode in the Mormon Civil War YouTube channel. Also, I won't be offended if you speed up the playback time. I usually listen to podcasts at one and a quarter or one and a half speed if I'm pushed for time. Thank you, as always, to all the kind listeners messaging me and cajoling me to hurry up with the next episode. As well as being feared and distrusted by several of the active church members I try to worship and study with every Sunday, I also regularly get exasperated pushback from post-Mormons who have stopped being active participants and can't see why I am even bothering to try to fix the mess the church is in. They are absolutely reasonable to conclude that it is beyond saving, but one thing my love of history has taught me is that when facing a tipping point between collapse and radical reforms to save itself, human institutions under intolerable pressures like a stagnant government, bureaucracy, religion, business or whatever often do snap out of complacency and one way or another save themselves. We have a phrase that a person or group of people under pressure can get squeezed like an orange until the pips squeak. Our church is under intolerable pressures and the pips have started squeaking. As if from nowhere, podcasters are taking to the internet airways all over the global church to squeak and shout and push back against this destructive pressure. They are rallying huge communities of frustrated and wounded victims of the church leaders' complacent negligence and overtly harmful priorities to fight back with truth and suggestions for reform. Maybe, just maybe, they will succeed. I don't hold out huge hope. History is also littered with once great institutions and religions that have entirely disappeared or are a tiny remnant of what they once were. But either way, we will all find out the outcome for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the next five to fifteen years. It won't be a long wait, so buckle up and enjoy the ride. One of the new pips squeaking in pain and wisdom is Drew Hunter, a Scottish father of seven navigating a brutal faith and trust crisis after 40 years of all-in faithful devotion. He has described his journey eloquently in his YouTube film titled My Mormon Story. In it, he quotes superstar Christian apologist from a century ago, G.K. Chesterton, who said that Christianity is not an experiment that failed, but an experiment that people found too difficult to really try. But regardless of what I learned about the various histories, the many contradictory accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision or of the realities of the supposed translation of the Golden Plates into the Book of Mormon, it wasn't actually the deliberate mistruths of Mormon history that had the greatest effect on my rejection of the church. 
It's actually been the treatment and effects of this religion on other people, particularly my children. To me, the single greatest problem in the world that human beings face is how people treat other people. How we communicate, how organisations dominate individuals' lives, how we react, what motivates us and the underlying reasons why people behave the way they do. So my experience in rejecting Mormonism is very much grounded in its clear mistreatment of many people. It makes me think of what H.K. Chesterton said when he gave his critique of Christianity. When he said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been difficult, found difficult and left untried. That's how I see the Mormon church. Several years ago, now, our son, one of our sons, came to us, his parents, and one evening he came to the home to tell us that he was bisexual. At this time, we were still attending church and would be considered active members. That night, we reacted with what I would describe as instantaneous love for our son. As far as we were concerned, this did not change a thing. For us, it was family first. In spite of our mistakes and regular imperfections in parenting, which are many, we always put our children first. So we couldn't accept that he was in some way not good enough or was impure in the eyes of the Mormon church. As time went by, our views on homosexuality and church teachings about homosexuality grew much further apart. My personal attitude towards people of different sexualities has become less judgmental and far more understanding. Our son has been to hell and back and still bears those scars. He was raised in a strict Mormon household where the traditional heterosexual family model was emphasised as not only the norm, but as the only acceptable type of family to God. I find it difficult to even conceive of how that must have made our son feel when he was younger. How must this have caused him so much pain and anxiety? And at the time, my wife and I didn't even know. But now we do. Since then, we've had another son who's come to us and explained his sexual orientation to us. We are grateful to now be in a position that allows him to know with a surety that we accept him because he's our child, our son. In our family, respect for the individual supersedes everything else. We have to respect each other. I know that Mormon doctrine and culture would judge us as parents who have surrendered our God-fearing faith and his moral principles. I'm just thankful that my understanding of the complex nature of human sexuality is no longer based on archaic forms of dogmatic rules. One could argue that the reason an ideal world your organisation believes in is never accomplished because the people in it don't do it properly 
applies to every religion or political party with the ideals it is trying to live up to or make real in a messy real world. My wise mother often taught us that the struggle and conflicts in Mormonism are to find ways to make the ideal real. She and my father have devoted their life to holding the flame of the ideal high, while not shying away from the messy real-life hard work it takes to change minds and behaviours. They turned up to serve and lead as reliable workers. They challenged injustices in personal and systemic institutional culture and practices where they could. Dad with quiet words in leadership meetings and agonising to do the right things the right ways with patience and compassion. Mum with powerful behind-the-scenes advocacy for her sisters being harmed and broken by the patriarchy and its insensitivity to their needs and life situations in her leadership PPIs with priesthood overseers as a ward and stake primary and relief society president and passionate, articulate talks, and training advocating for the highest standards of professionalism and aspiration in how we serve, teach, and counsel each other. The tragedy that has happened in our religion is that by trusting our leaders' infallibility far too much, and allowing them to systematically dismantle nearly all the common consent systems of accountability and restraints on their power, and mostly ignoring and demonising professional expertise and best practice, we have catapulted the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from the common or garden trying to live up to our ideals zone most mainstream religions are struggling in, to the extreme disaster level end of the spectrum of disconnection between ideals and reality. As G.K. Chesterton acknowledged, Making a community that really practices Christianity as it should be is a difficult challenge that few have come close to accomplishing. But there is a spectrum here, and the LDS Church really doesn't have to be messing up this badly. Drew has lots of other observations about the state of the Church you may well resonate with, intrepid listeners. So this is where... I really tell the story of my journey out of what I would describe a cloud of social and emotional darkness in the Mormon church and out into a fulfilling and warm burst of light as I've left the church. It sounds good. It sounds like I've progressed and I absolutely have, but it is an absolute upheaval. It is a trauma to experience and one that is sadly but necessarily repeated more often in recent years. I've watched countless family and friends go through this psychological ordeal and I realise the reality that it is such an earth-shattering and deeply personal journey. A journey that I don't think any reasonable and good human being would seek to invalidate or make a mockery of. Yet some, sadly some active Mormons do just that. They mock or they patronise those who are going through a faith transition, a difficult journey. But I think of more concern as the official organisational drive within the church to control its own image. The 
The Mormon Church is obsessed with its image. The Public Relations Department is devoted to this cause. So much time and money is thrown into the creation of a perfect projection, a squeaky, clean imitation of the real church. For me, that is a huge red flag. It even infects local congregations all over the world. Statistics, numbers, box ticking, these are all obsessions of the way that the church is run. The suggestion that the church is faltering as an organisation is regularly denied or avoided. It's always growing, it's always successful, there are always good stories and it's always good news. Never shrinking, never failing, no negatives, no bad news. I've even witnessed local leaders so caught up in the game of protecting that positive image that they mislead and speak dishonestly, even when they're reporting on the progress of the church at a local level. Sometimes it seems they've lost an entire grip on reality. And I see this as another warning sign of a religious organisation that possesses those cult-like traits. A question I find myself asking in various situations I come across is this question. Am I being duped into accepting something that is not what it seems? And I usually follow up that question with, could this thing, this organisation be genuine? And I see this as an important way of measuring the social worth of a group or an organisation or even of individuals as well. I think it's one of the I think it's of the utmost importance to be made aware of all the facts. Unedited, unfiltered, free of cherry-picking, free of exaggeration or interpretation or opinion. Just the facts. It's become mainstream to be aware of a phenomenon that we call toxic positivity, to suppress negative emotions in all walks of life, the assumption behind those who adhere to this kind of toxic positivity is that no good can be achieved if we dwell on the more unpleasant aspects of a particular thing. Therefore, we must always look towards and infer the positive. But this is in itself a psychologically damaging pursuit. I think this is a mindset that tends towards a blissful ignorance. It allows narcissistic individuals to flourish and seek for to alter your reality the mormon church exudes toxic positivity in its leadership in its media in its public image in a mass gaslighting effort the mormon church wants to divert your gaze towards only the wholesome aspects and away from the poison that's within away from anything that will allow investigation or for you to address the most pressing questions about its organisational foundation. Recently in the UK, there's been a, a closure of a stake in England. I think it's the Litchfield stake, including three congregations and two buildings. In Scotland, units have closed in some stakes in recent years. And the party line, the approach to explaining this to the local membership is to expound out a thesaurus of positivity in and love in denial of objective reality. The church is shrinking in the UK and has been for some time.
What I see is more positivity for the sake of image, not for the sake of honesty or welfare. It reminds me of the countless times I spent in leadership meetings at ward and state levels, where the presiding leaders would repeat over and over and over that the priesthood holders or other church members were simply not doing enough. The blame for lack of growth is thrown out is thrown out to the exhausted, hard-working people who are already stretched to breaking point. This kind of petty tyranny is what you get when accountability is aimed downward to the general membership. Responsibility is offloaded to the nearest unquestioning followers who will take the blame. So it should not come as too much of a surprise that the triple combination of a strictly unquestionable hierarchy, a doctrinally based focus on separation from the Gentile world, along with the historical emphasis on organisational perfection, would lead to a church that has numerical data as one of its most prized indicators of success. Numbers come before individuals. This isn't so much about the one lost sheep being of value to the shepherd who is meant to be Christ. This is about this church making sure the world knows that there are 100 members, even if one of them isn't interested. If the lost sheep were really as valued as those verses in the New Testament state, perhaps the organisation would genuinely make an attempt at introspection to learn why they are losing so many members, why they are losing those sheep. And that ratio today is far larger than 100 members to that one lost. Maybe the comparison with a docile farm creature that displays a flocking instinct is far too apt. I and all the hundreds of thousands of others who have given this church everything and are now with heavy hearts unable any more to trust it with a spoon, never mind our personal well-being and belief system and the safety of our children, are not expecting perfection. Although, of course, it would be reasonable to expect perfection, considering how often the church's leaders and members arrogantly claim perfection and demand to be trusted and revered as if they really are practically perfect in every way. Our primary grief is that a religious community, which has so much potential to do better, and in many ways in our lived experience in the past was far better, and taught its ideals better than it is now, has become so dysfunctional that it now meets 95% of the criteria on any list you can find of the characteristics of a harmful, mind-controlling cult. After seeing and living this and being unable to unsee it, most leave and begin a painful and joyful journey of readjusting every aspect of our lives and relationships that can take years and lots of research and therapy in many forms. 
a very few are able to stay and fight for the church to reform and get closer to its powerful, good and inspiring ideals, while the rest of the remaining active members, who have not yet realised the true scale of the trouble the church and its credibility are in, mostly fear and misunderstand us, just as they have been taught to. So this wonderful quote by G.K. Chesterton really resonates with me. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been difficult, found difficult, and left untried. That's how I see the Mormon church. In episode 10c, we heard Patrick Mason, hard-working superstar LDS church historian, articulate the real reasons people are leaving the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and losing trust in its leaders, and finding that there is nowhere at church where it is safe to talk about their concerns. Patrick sadly discredited himself by asserting that the Church's scriptures and leaders have never, anywhere, claimed infallibility, and I contrasted that with several recent examples where they clearly do, including the current President Nelson and the next two apostles in line to succeed him as prophet president of the church, if God doesn't kill them first, Dallin Oakes and M. Russell Ballard. Thus demonstrating for anyone to see that things are so messed up now that even the most enlightened and insightful apologists for the church, who are being kosher enough to still be employed and trusted by it, have to intellectually and ethically perjure themselves to exist in that contradictory space, while not directly criticising the leaders, who are the main cause of this catastrophe for our religion. The big question facing all of the apologists and insider reformers playing this game is whether this strategy is even working and whether it will have enough of an impact to bring about the necessary reforms for the church's survival in time before it crosses thresholds of decline from which it can never recover. My argument in this podcast is that time has probably already run out now. We see the final death spiral of collapse speeding up, and the only chance for change now, before there is no church left to do any changing, fast or slowly, is a much more assertive and urgent reality check to realise how many things need to change fast to keep the last remnants of the young people. Then, a widespread rebellion of some kind against continuing the dysfunctional stuff we keep on doing. And if necessary, a regime change to replace the leaders incapable of changing. There are only three mechanisms within the current protocols and culture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to make essential changes happen. 1. The formal route of voting opposed to those leaders continuing in their roles when invited to four times a year in two general conferences, one of the state conferences and the annual ward conference. A small but determined group of church members are doing this and hoping to normalise it with their example, including my wife Lynn, who voted opposed for the third time in our ward conference last Sunday, and we had a helpful conversation with our state president about her reasons for voting that way afterwards. I oppose. I oppose. <coughs> 
but ironically, the officially sanctioned way to express opposition to the status quo and advocate for change is the one the church leaders basically ignore. They have refused to allow the church members to vote about any specific policy or doctrine being made official since the vote authorising giving black people priesthood and temple ordinances in 1978. And if you vote opposed to the leaders, your local leaders will have a chat with you, but haven't the first clue how to pass a vote and concern opposing apostles up the line for formal investigation and accountability. The General Handbook has loads of detailed instructions for how to apply accountability and church discipline to grassroots members, but funnily enough, nothing whatsoever about what to do when an area authority, 70, or apostle is unworthy to continue in their calling, because of sins like stealing and lying while claiming to be infallibly speaking truth from God and incapable of leading the church astray. One of the fun direct action campaigns the Britvenger podcasters are pursuing that we invite everyone to join in is to vote opposed. Have the mandatory meeting with your bishop or stake president and then insist that your concerns about specific documented examples of apostles lying and profiting financially from their callings are actually passed up the priesthood ranks to the general authorities to investigate and respond to. Try it yourself and see what happens. It could be a sobering and game-changing experience for your local priesthood leaders as well as yourself as they discover what actually happens when systems of accountability are actually tested. Doctrine and Covenants 107 says that any Melchizedek priesthood holding bishop can convene a, quote, common council, close quote, of high priests to discipline the president of the church if the quorum of 12 apostles or first quorum of 70 aren't willing to do it, specifically in verses 68 to 83. So Lynn has formally requested that our stake president organises that disciplinary council to investigate a list of specific lies by nine of the apostles if the senior general authority priesthood quorums are unwilling to do anything about her opposing vote because of those lies. They have carefully removed talk and systems of accountability for the men at the top from their preaching and manuals but it is all still there in the scriptures. So let's use them. If you don't use them, you lose them. The second and arguably most effective mechanism for making reforms happen is the informal mechanism of public shame and embarrassment by journalists, academics and social media podcasters and bloggers speaking publicly about the problems and specific things that need to change and proposing solutions that the church then half-heartedly adopts some of while excommunicating the people who came up with those solutions. In the past, this kind of pressure of having media and governments publicly discussing and campaigning against Mormon dysfunctions were crucial to eventually forcing the church to abandon polygamy. This category of pressure also forced the church to continue issuing public manifestos into the 20th century to stamp it out when journalists found out polygamous marriages were still being secretly authorised by LDS general authorities 
decades after the first 1890 anti-polygamy proclamation, and then excommunicate two of the twelve apostles who carried on doing it anyway. It was also vital to eventually persuade the church to abandon institutional racism in 1978, after years of public analysis, controversy, boycotts of LDS sports teams and threats of legal sanctions. And we recently saw small but significant changes in child safeguarding procedures in response to Sam Young's Protect Every Child campaign and petition, after excommunicating him of course. Other forms of media awareness raising like TV documentaries and dramas can also have a big impact and there is a double whammy of that hitting the UK right now as Netflix is showing the Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey documentary series about Warren Jeff's horrific takeover of his child-abusing polygamous fundamentalist sect, and Disney Plus is headlining Under the Banner of Heaven, starring Andrew Garfield as a fictional detective experiencing faith and trust deconstruction while investigating the real murders of Brenda Lafferty and her baby daughter in the 1980s by strict mainstream LDS Mormons spiralling into violent polygamous fundamentalism. It seems counterintuitive that the people and media of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland would be disproportionately fascinated by the shenanigans of a very small religious sect from the USA. But since the very earliest days of the LDS Church in the 1800s, they have featured in British newspapers like the weekly Illustrated London News, with magnificent full-page steel engraving illustrations of scenes in Mormon Utah and Brigham Young and his apostles. It boils down to the mesmerising, voyeuristic spectacle of apparently civilised white European people living like barbarian African and Asian cultures they viewed as exotically wild and inferior, with powerful potentates with harems of wives and absolute power who are sending missionaries to our country to recruit more wives. All of that is alive and kicking in the fundamentalist polygamous Mormon sects with hundreds of thousands of members now and the mainstream LDS church is still enthusiastically perpetuating violations of the 21st century's ideas of what constitutes civilised behaviour with rampant charity fraud, racism, sexism and homophobia. Investigative journalists are not going to run out of material to work with any time soon if they have the inkling to go rooting around in our stuff. The third mechanism or engine of change in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the many surveys about everything the Church has been emailing to members that do have some impact on making the general authorities aware of how church members' opinions are evolving. We were recently granted a rare and very informative insight into that world when Scott Dyer interviewed Brian Harris in episodes 57 and 58 of his excellent Ramiumptum Ruminations podcast. Brian Harris used to work for the church's busy market research team, surveying and interviewing categories of church members about different topics to feed back this information to general authorities working on new initiatives or considering changes. 
he describes how large and thorough the programme is, employing dozens of professionals surveying church members about their opinions on everything from temple garments to youth programmes. If you have received any of these surveys in your emails, as Lynn and I have over the years, you will perhaps have shared our surprise to realise that a church which claims lots of top-down revelation under the direction of God and a tsunami of propaganda insisting that the general authorities function completely independently of and mostly in opposition to public opinion and evolving social norms is in reality very carefully checking the opinions and tolerance levels the church members have for a change or new policy before declaring it to be a new revelation in the ongoing restoration. It totally contradicts all their narratives and shows that the tale of our opinions really is waving their dogma dogs. They are absolutely terrified of alienating their own followers. We are, informally, a democracy, guided by public opinion, after all. And out of that has come radical reforms of the temple endowment and sealing ceremonies to seem less sexist and other feminism-light reforms. We will now return to exploring the heart of the dysfunctions the actual general authorities are preaching and enforcing when they address the members of the church, and particularly the children and teenagers, through the recent adventures of Brad Wilcox, BYU professor and Young Men General Presidency Counselor. In this episode, we will conclude an analysis of what he taught the young people of the Sunderland England stake in the COVID lockdown Zoom fireside and question and answer dialogue with them on the 13th of September 2020 and in the following episodes what he taught the teenagers of Alpine, Utah that blew up the bloggernacle and revealed just how much the church leaders still exist in a sexist and racist dark ages, and destroyed the careful public relations and propaganda efforts of the last two decades, trying to convince the world that we have moved on from those endemic bigotries and how, in the process, they are relentlessly delivering the final death blow to our church and its better ideals in our own lifetimes. So how do these leaders end up with their mindset, and so inward-looking and self-absorbed, that they often spend more time talking about themselves and their authority and extolling each other as amazing and wise, than talking about Jesus or the real problems challenging our world. Most of these men have nepotistic connections with each other and come from very privileged Mormon aristocracy backgrounds, but they have also served as local bishops and stake presidents, dealing with the grim realities of the lives of church members bringing them their darkest secrets and most intractable real-life problems which should keep them grounded in the real application of their ideals. How is it that they seem to forget these realities as they ascend the ranks of the General Authority Power Pyramid Scheme? Drew Hunter speaks insightfully about this in his YouTube film. While some church leaders have given sermons and taught that a good leader is a humble person, loving, empathetic, kind, meek, and so forth, 
traits that we really ought to desire in people who profess to represent the Christ of the New Testament. It does seem to have escaped the general leadership of the Mormon Church that those principles of human servitude and humble servitude should be genuinely exemplified by them. I've known lots of compassionate and humble church leaders in Mormonism. I also think some of the general authorities have been those kind of humble and good people too. But more so in recent years, I've noticed this elevation of status becoming an issue for some of the most senior leaders in the church. And it certainly is a problem that trickles down naturally to the local level. I believe that if you have an authoritative and divine claim to be the leader of the faith, whatever that may be, the president, the prophet, seer, the revelators in Mormonism, I believe that the attitudes and behaviour of those closest to you can be a reflection of how you wish to be seen. When the wife of a church president makes public statements that elevate her own husband's status to more than the servant he is claiming to be, then I see that as another red flag. In the last three and a half months, it has been quite an experience to send my husband off to work because many days, at the end of a rigorous day for him of meetings and decisions at headquarters, the man I greet at the end of the day is just a little different from the man I kissed goodbye in the morning. I can't even describe what those differences are. I can only tell you that my husband, at age 93 and a half, is becoming more and more of his true self every day. And why wouldn't he be? He is now doing what he was foreordained to do. You and I know that before the foundations of this earth, my husband was foreordained to be the prophet of the Lord at this precise time on earth. I would like to read just one paragraph of what Elder Bruce R. McConkie, a departed member of the Quorum of the Twelve, said about President Spencer W. Kimball when President Kimball was called to be the prophet. I will insert my husband's name. So this is Elder Bruce R. McConkie speaking of my husband's life premortally. Uh, it takes my breath away because I do know that this is true. Elder Bruce R. McConkie saying, President Russell Marion Nelson knew premortally and worshipped the Lord Jehovah. He premortally was a friend of Adam and Enoch. President Nelson premortally took counsel from Noah and Abraham. He sat in meetings with Isaiah and Nephi. He served in the heavenly kingdom with Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. Well, my dear brothers and sisters, this is indeed the Lord's Church. My husband was foreordained to be the Lord's prophet here on earth to help gather Israel and to help the church and the world prepare for the second coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Prophets are called by the Lord to do difficult things, to speak unpopular things, not smooth things, as Isaiah wrote. The Lord's prophets can see things we don't see and hear things we cannot. 
The Lord speaks to his prophets, instructing them what to say and do that will bless and protect all of God's children. Therefore, prophets help us discern specious notions as well as their intention to trap us, trip us up, and basically wreck our lives. So how can we protect ourselves amid the war of words that rages all around us? I suggest we compare anything and everything we read, view, or hear with the teachings of the prophets. If it isn't in harmony, we should run away. The question we can use as a litmus test to discern truth from error and to help us with a multitude of our personal dilemmas, decisions, and questions is, what do the prophets say? Let's start there. Let's use prophetic words as our standard of truth. For this new year, let's put an exclamation mark after every statement from a prophet and a question mark after everything else we read, see, or hear. Would you like to try that with me for 30 days and see what happens to your heart and mind? You may notice a decrease in the amount of stress you feel as you are able to see through the false philosophies of men that produce a kind of tension and anxiety that can almost immobilize us. What would happen to your level of peace, clarity of thinking, joy, experience of love, and spiritual prosperity if, for 30 days, you started to question everything the world's media and all other sources offer you, and instead prayerfully studied, fully embraced, and lived by every prophetic teaching you could find. What would happen in only 30 days if you chose to follow the prophets with exactness? Prophets testify of Christ. Their sole desire is to help us find and stay on the covenant path that leads back to Him and our Heavenly Father. I recognize a very distinct form of elitism in all of this, and it is not pleasant to see. It actually causes me to think that the people in these powerful positions need some kind of intervention for their distasteful fawning and their aggrandizement of each other. It's uncomfortable to watch, and it seems completely at odds with Christ-focused religious belief. Some years ago, one of the general authorities gave a sermon comparing the twelve apostles in the first presidency with the meek and lowly who will inherit the earth, as referenced in the New Testament, in the book of Psalms also, but significantly it was referenced in the Sermon on the Mount. I was absolutely struck by the mental gymnastics used by this speaker and attempting to conflate wealthy, highly educated members of boards of directors, shareholders in large companies, lawyers, academics, millionaires, senior vice presidents, and, and to compare this with the poorest, most humble and forgotten people who would come to inherit the earth upon Christ's return to it. Is that how out of touch and how privileged some of these men have become. The socio-economic gap between these privileged men who lead the church and poverty-stricken indigenous people in, for example, sub-Saharan Africa or parts of South America 
could not be clearer. Speaking of verses that are passed over, at times, especially as I've watched the religion of my childhood, which which did resemble a Christian organisation, becoming more like a Fortune 500 multinational company, I've had echoes of the supposed events described in books such as Helaman and Third Nephi, where the chosen or the select people have really lost their way. In Mormon doctrine, this is known as the pride cycle, and historical schools of thought, particularly the cultural materialism branch of history, this would be a very simplistic description of empire erosion. It is a valid description of how a society can implode through the creation of classes of people with an elite group allowing a bureaucratic rot to take hold. Could there be an ideological rot in the core of Mormonism? Could a latter-day Samuel the Lamanite emerge from the shadows to point out perhaps the obvious. If no powerful interventionist figure comes forward to point out the obvious issues in an organisation that is, seems to be so bereft of a genuine moral backbone, I sometimes wonder what the president of the LDS Church would do instead. So in all of this is a suggestion that Mormonism is a living, breathing faith, one that is vibrant, adaptive, and dare I say progressive. However, you don't have to scratch the surface of the church too much to see that the authority of its chosen leaders is meant to be taken as infallible. Except, of course, when utterances from God's anointed are merely opinion rather than revealed truth, which is a useful escape clause sometimes. Instead, there has become a succession of men who are relentlessly preoccupied with policy adaptation in an organisation that is simply a corporation with a board of directors trying to exert all manner of restrictions over the moral agency of its members. Men who are receivers of the most extravagant flattery from other leaders and members. Men who are ego-stroking at a level that is so far from being Christ-like, who themselves are worshipped. And all of it is classical, institutional, cult behaviour. I simply wish to bring to light an organisation that is misleading and is realistically dangerous. I stated at the outset of my comments that critical thinking, objective and logical reasoning as part of the historical discipline are extremely important to me. Being part of an organisation that uses emotional and mental manipulation to ensure obedience. An organisation that knowingly misleads its membership and closes down all natural human instinct to question and act upon legitimate doubts. This is not an organisation I can either be a member of or be associated with. It goes against everything I stand for and hold to be the essence of human existence. Also remember that when you engage in discussions with active Mormons and they don't see things your way, don't be surprised because that used to be you. 
Drew calling the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, quote, realistically dangerous, close quote, may seem a shocking or extreme thing to say about the Church, which most of its active members regard as entirely benign or good and safe in a dangerous and threatening wider world. The reasons he gives for calling it dangerous seem totally reasonable to me. It knowingly deceives and misleads its members. It demonises critical thinking and objective and logical reasoning. It ensures obedience through emotional and mental manipulation. And it traps people by shutting down their instincts to follow through on researching and acting on legitimate concerns and doubts. These are all dangerous, thought-controlling strategies that totalitarian regimes and harmful cults deploy to mentally enslave people. But if that doesn't seem dangerous enough to you to be called dangerous, we have just had a timely reminder this week that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is realistically dangerous to children, in ways most reasonable people I would have thought would struggle to defend. As I have discussed before in this podcast and my advocacy for the Protect Every Child campaign, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints continues to have a truly shocking track record of child abuse, covering up child abuse and facilitating child abuse. Its child safeguarding protocols and training are so useless they are actively endangering children. By creating the illusion of having child safeguarding protocols, when in really basic ways, we don't. I won't go into all the details again, but to recap quickly the minimum standards that responsible churches and schools and other organisations working with young people have in place are police background checks for everyone working with young people, annual professional training by experts in all aspects of abuse, what signs to look for that indicate physical, sexual, emotional or neglectful abuse, who to report concerns to, how to respond to a disclosure of abuse without messing it all up by asking leading questions or starting an investigation yourself, and what confidentiality you can or cannot promise a child. None of these things feature either at all or in anything close to useful detail in the global safeguarding training the LDS Church requires now, which is to watch a film every three years that basically says over and over again, always have a second adult around and never be alone with a young person. While totally ignoring the six monthly worthiness interviews with the remit for untrained amateur men alone in a room, unless the child requests another adult, to ask about chastity and check on sexual behaviours, including thoughts, pornography and masturbation, which the For the Strength of Youth booklet still tells young people aged 11 and older are all sins second only to murder that they must confess with their bishop. Where legally required, like in Australia, Pennsylvania and now California, more professional protocols are followed. But rather than applying best practice throughout the church, this religion, run by lawyers, 
only ever does the absolute minimum it can legally get away with in each region. As I've said before, my Canterbury stake, after my ward's serving bishop was jailed for child pornography offences, finally had enough of endangering its children and has created a nearly gold standard policy, including background checks and annual professional training, which the stake leaders are willing to share with any other stakes leaders who reach out to them. The ongoing failure to learn anything from the hell the Roman Catholic Church in the USA and elsewhere has been through for its negligence, and pretend everything is fine and our church is better and safer than all the other churches, is backfiring badly, and messing things up for the church in several ways. They had to abandon their long-standing relationship with the Boy Scouts of America as the primary youth programme for teenage boys in the church in the USA, when the massive scale of child abuse in scouting settings across the country, including in the LDS church, led to class action lawsuits that have forced the Boy Scouts of America to declare bankruptcy. Rather than use its definitely not bankrupt hundreds of billions of dollars to stand by the scouts in their hour of need, the LDS church threw a paltry $250 million at them and ran away, and the prophets pretended to have a revelation that the kids should do the in-house children and youth program instead and replace scout camps with For the Strength of Youth conventions. The LDS Church had to almost immediately abandon its great new temple films and replace them with Death by PowerPoint in the Temple Endowment when their director, Sterling Van Wagenen, was jailed for child abuse offences, which the church knew about and had forgiven him for, and they employed him to make the temple films anyway because he was a big cheese and co-founder of the Sundance Film Festival in Utah. A major cause of members becoming disillusioned with the church is discovering that Joseph Smith and several other middle-aged or elderly prophets coerced young teenagers into marrying and having sex with them, and the child-abusing practices of fundamentalist groups continuing that Mormon tradition still tarnish the whole Mormon religious movement's reputation. And of course, the lack of safeguarding protocols and ongoing clergy abuse cases within the LDS Church continues to cause suffering and embarrassing scandals. So this negligence regarding safeguarding has so far cost the LDS Church its historic and contemporary reputation, countless once loyal members who have left and don't feel their children are safe in it, crucial components of its temple ordinances and its youth programme for boys. And we found out this week that it is probably going to end up costing it a lot more than $250 million of sacred funds donated by the members. Its dodgy deal to avoid full legal responsibility for child abuse in the church's scouting programme and its shameless attempt to somehow have any other cases of child abuse by the church nothing to do with scouting, included in the Boy Scouts' bankruptcy arrangements, have been thrown out by a judge this week, and things are likely to get very embarrassing and very expensive for the church for a very long time. 
Ironically, the Boy Scouts of America safeguarding training was the only training anywhere close to meeting professional standards that the church has engaged with, and they have now gone backwards to systems and protocols that are completely inadequate, except in the few countries or US states insisting on professional standards. Not only has the attempt to avoid full responsibility for abuse in the church's scouting programme backfired, the bad news keeps pouring in this week and things have got really epic. I've been saying for years now that it was only a matter of time before the same public humiliation and catastrophic reputational harm the Roman Catholic Church has been through for its negligence and cover-ups of child-abusing priests comes for our church and expressing my exasperation that the LDS Church is in total denial about the scale of its own dysfunctions around child safeguarding and learning nothing from the crucifixion of the American Catholics, followed swiftly by revelations of the same scale of abuse cover-up in an endless list of other countries, because the same dysfunctions are endemic throughout the global Catholic Church. The annihilation of the Catholic's credibility as a church safe to take your children to began with the investigations of the Spotlight team of investigative journalists at the Boston Globe, led by Michael Resendez, who won the 2003 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. Initially, they investigated the case of just one priest who abused over a hundred children as he was shuffled around six parishes by his line managers, who knew about the abuse in a wider culture dominated by Catholics in many positions of secular power, who kept covering up the abuse to protect the reputation of the religion. And the clergy cajoled and intimidated nearly all the victims of the abuse and their families into silence. By the end of their investigation, the Spotlight team discovered hundreds of child-abusing priests in the region being protected by the church and Catholics in the community. And this set off a tsunami of horrifying discoveries of cover-ups on the same scale in Catholic dioceses across the world. Many governments and organisations are now running investigations into systematic cover-up and facilitation of child abuse by different churches, including the Anglicans, Southern Baptists and Jehovah's Witnesses. The Catholic insistence of priests being celibate adds some extra dimensions to their dysfunctions not present in the LDS Church, which allows its priests to marry. But the culture of prioritising the public reputation of the church over the safety of children and trying to avoid legal responsibility and justice is endemic in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. As well as totally inadequate training given to its entirely amateur volunteer clergy, including around 100,000 men mandated by the church, as members of bishoprics and stake presidencies to interrogate children and young adults every six months about their sexuality alone in a room starting age 11. The other component that makes this church incredibly dangerous for children is that the church's official policy is to always do the absolute bare minimum required by law in any state or country regarding reporting child abuse to legal authorities 
or background checking and training its youth workers. The church regularly campaigns against legislation in Utah and other areas it dominates, tag-teaming with the Catholic Church that would make clergy mandatory reporters of abuse. And the advice bishops get when they phone the church's helpline for leaders in the USA and UK, which they are told they must do when abuse is disclosed to them, will be entirely different depending on where they live. In a mandatory reporting area, they will be encouraged to go to the police and report the perpetrator. But where laws protect clergy confidentiality, they will often be told, under threats of being in legal trouble, not to report the abuse. And the stories of cover-ups and telling victims to forgive and forget while perpetrators get a slap on the wrist from their LDS clergy are endless. And the lawyers who work with victims suing the church for covering up their abuse warn their clients that the church's lawyers, Curtin McConkie, will deploy huge amounts of money and aggressive tactics to silence them and outspend them into settling out of court with a confidentiality clause so they can never talk publicly about what happened to them to warn others or they risk being bankrupted by persisting in the courts with their case. This is all well documented, and you can listen to one of those lawyers, Tim Kosnoff, who has represented victims of the church, discussing his experiences with this in Gina Colvin's A Thoughtful Faith podcast interview with him a few years ago in episode 258. He is also about to be interviewed on Mormon Stories, discussing the developments with the Boy Scouts, and no doubt the other recent developments I'm getting to. Church members have been raising alarm bells about all the harm this does for years. Cases of officially sanctioned child abuse cover-ups and egregious predatory behaviour by LDS bishops and stake leaders have regularly appeared in the news for years. The clear message of all this is that this religion, now run by lawyers, but still claiming to be the restoration of the Church of Actual Jesus Christ, who said people who endanger children should be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck, clearly, indisputably, prioritises minimising bad publicity and avoiding responsibility for child protection over the suffering of abused children. I and others have been saying publicly for years that it is only a matter of time before the LDS Church has its own spotlight, moment of truth and accountability, and expressed our astonishment that the LDS Church was doing nothing substantial to prevent this inevitable outcome. Well, the moment has come. A deep investigation into these institutional dysfunctions and selfish priorities of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has just been published and gone global by the Associated Press, the world's largest news organisation, accompanied by a video documentary on YouTube. And who is the journalist in the Associated Press's global investigation team who did the research and wrote this article? Why, it's actual Michael Resendez, the actual spotlight guy. You couldn't make this up. As with his investigation into the Catholic Church's corruption and worldwide endangerment of children, the article begins with one case, 
the horrific situation that has been playing out in Arizona, where a domestically violent Latter-day Saint border security guard confessed to his bishop that he was sexually abusing his five-year-old daughter, MJ, one of his six children at the time. When he called the helpline, all bishops are told to call first when an abuse case is disclosed to them in the USA and UK, the bishop was repeatedly told that he absolutely must not inform the police. Three years later, in 2013, a new bishop was called, informed of the situation, and also told not to report it by their lawyers on the helpline. He continued to try and convince the abuser to change and involved his terrified wife, but the church-administered repentance process did not work to change the child abuser. What a surprise! So the second bishop did all he felt was left for him to do and decided to excommunicate the abuser. But none of the men in that disciplinary council, who were made aware of what had been happening, reported it to the police. The rapes of MJ continued, also of her new baby sister, for seven years. In 2017, some of the hundreds of films of the abuse he shared online were discovered in Australia and traced to him. He was arrested, committed suicide while awaiting trial, and his wife was imprisoned for two and a half years for her role in the abuse. The children have been split up and fostered and adopted. So, to recap, the real-life result in the Arizona case of the cover-up-and-don't-report pathway insisted upon by the church's specific policy and protocols, not the result of some unfortunate local aberration or human error, was seven years of continuing rape of two children, which their bishops, other people in their ward and stake leadership, and the church's lawyers and senior general authorities knew were happening. At no point did any of them act to stop the abuse, which would have taken one phone call. A father committed suicide. His terrified wife was left at his mercy all that time and ended up in jail, when the bishop could have protected her by taking the responsibility she didn't feel able to and reporting. The children were abused or witnessed the abuse and have been separated from their siblings and are in the care and adoption system now. This is just one case of who knows how many as this is replicated across thousands of congregations. After posting on my Facebook page about this case, I've had a steady stream of people messaging me with their experiences of abuse by LDS clergy and cover-ups, including a bishopric in the UK in the past where all three were paedophiles and two were imprisoned. It really is looking like the LDS church has enough abuse cover-up skeletons in its closet to come close to matching the scale of the Catholic scandals as a percentage of LDS population. The two Arizona victims and their guardians and the adoptive parents of a third sibling rescued from that family want the church to change its policies so this never happens again. They are now suing those bishops and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This makes me ask myself, why is it being left to them to do this to get justice, accountability, 
and insist the church reforms its harmful practices, when every single member of the church is given the opportunity four times a year to literally vote to remove church leaders who are not fulfilling their responsibilities as they should be. The collective abdication of responsibility by Latter-day Saints has become intolerable. They are increasingly complicit in all these injustices and persecutions of the vulnerable people Jesus taught us to protect and prioritise the more we discover about what is really going on in our church's unrighteous dominions. The church's lawyers are defending the bishops and the church on the basis that the bishops did nothing legally wrong and are accusing the victims of just wanting to make a, quote, money grab, close quote. Classy. It turns out that Arizona law has exemptions requiring reports to be made by clergy and doctors and the like if they suspect a child is in danger. But it has a small loophole that clergy who receive information about child neglect or sexual abuse during spiritual confessions Quote, may withhold, close quote, that information from the authorities if the clergy determines it is, quote, reasonable and necessary, close quote, according to their church's doctrine. The church's lawyers are insisting that not divulging a confidential confession of raping your daughter to the police was in accordance with LDS religious principles. So the legal defence in this case is that our church's religious principles are happy to have girls continue to be raped by their father for years and do nothing to actually stop it or involve the police if they can get away with it legally. Doesn't that make you feel proud of our church? Are those really your religious principles? Apparently, they are the official religious principles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, according to its lawyers. Maybe we should add that to the missionary discussions. We believe that it is more important to avoid the Church spending money or being legally accountable for facilitating child abuse than stopping your daughters from being raped and filmed for pornography for years. But your daughters must be accountable to our bishop alone in a room every six months for every tiny infraction of our chastity laws against any kind of sexual activity, sexual thoughts or viewing pornography. And they must give us 10% of their income plus other offerings for the rest of their lives. Shall we schedule their baptism for next week? So this investigation confirms for the world to see what we already knew, that getting away with as much as the church can legally is far more important to the LDS prophets, seers and revelators, three of whom are professional lawyers, than protecting children. The story has been in the public space for a few years now, but what made the difference for the impact of this research by Michael Resendez is that 12,000 pages of sealed court documents from a different case in Virginia was leaked to him, proving beyond doubt the behind-the-scenes systems and protocols of the church's abuse helpline and how the advice given differs depending on the state you are in.
Another surprising revelation from these documents, and lots of corroborating statements from men who have served as bishops and phoned the helpline, is that the helpline initially goes to LDS social workers, not lawyers, who then go through a checklist with the bishops to determine whether the church has legal liability because the abuse was by clergy or during church activities. They only refer the bishop on to the lawyers if it could make the church look bad and cost money. And the lawyers then bring in the heavy guns and the money to intimidate victims and their families into not going public. But if the abuse disclosed is in a non-church setting, the response is totally different. The bishop is given lots of support by the social workers to give the victims and their families the assistance they need. We can actually see a copy of this checklist because in sending a bundle of paperwork to Tim Kosnoff, Curtin McConkie accidentally included one. The image being shared online is a bit fuzzy, so I will read it to you. Protocol for Abuse Helpline Calls Caller Information Date Time of Call Position Ward Stake Home Phone Work Phone Reporting Information So this is a final tick box section that the person taking the call needs to uh, write some conclusions about to pass on. Reporting Information Is this a high-risk case? Yes or no? Is this a reportable situation? Yes or no? Who has reported? Who will report? Legal counsel was consulted? Yes or no? Attorney name. Follow-up date. Tell priesthood leader that no identifying information should be given. Use first names only. High-risk cases. If any of the following questions are answered yes, immediately transfer the call to legal counsel. See phone number below. It is important to have legal counsel involved in the discussions between priesthood leaders and abuse helpline personnel in order to preserve the confidentiality of the information. Number one. Does your call concern child sexual abuse which may have occurred on church property? Yes or no? Does your call concern child sexual abuse which may have occurred at a church-sponsored activity? Yes or no? For example, church, seminary, boy scouts, cub scouts, etc. Number three. Does your call concern child sexual abuse by a church leader or youth leader who used their church position to accomplish the abuse, for example, nursery leader abusing children in nursery, a seminary teacher abusing seminary students, a youth leader abusing his or her youth, or a missionary? Yes or no? Number four. Does your call concern an alleged perpetrator employed by the church? Yes or no? Number five. Are you aware of previous child sexual abuses or tendency towards sexual abuse by the alleged perpetrator? Yes or no? Number six. Does your call concern an alleged perpetrator who is currently a missionary, even if the abuse occurred prior to his or her mission? If yes, transfer this call to, and then it gives two names of lawyers to transfer to.
yes or no. So that's the first section that the social workers employed by the church take when you call the helpline to decide whether or not the case needs to be passed on to Curtin McConkie's lawyers. The second section of the protocol checklist is titled Reporting Issues. After the abuse helpline worker has obtained all of the facts and background information, he or she should determine whether or not the incident of child abuse has already been reported to child protection or law enforcement authorities. If not, abuse helpline workers should instruct priesthood leaders to encourage an interested person to report the abuse. Individuals who may report include the victim, the perpetrator, or other third parties who know about the abuse, for example neighbours, parents of victim, spouse or family of the perpetrator, etc. Asterisk. If a priesthood leader recommends that a perpetrator report the abuse to civil authorities, he should also recommend to the perpetrator that he or she should consider obtaining legal counsel. If the sexual abuse has been or will be reported immediately to civil authorities by a person other than the priesthood leader and does not fall within the above guidelines, no transfer to legal counsel is necessary. A call should be transferred to legal counsel when it appears that the abuse will not be reported to civil authorities unless it is reported by the priesthood leader or if it falls within the above guidelines for high-risk cases. Asterisk. Abuse helpline personnel should never advise a priesthood leader to report abuse. Counsel of this nature should come only from legal counsel. And it has some contact names and phone numbers for lawyers at Curtin McConkie and some numbers to call if the potential perpetrator is a missionary. A key point, the 20,000 sealed documents from the Virginia case leaked to Michael Menendez includes, is sworn statements by church officials confirming that these social workers taking and filtering the helpline calls are told to destroy all records of their conversations at the end of every day. And of course, if the bishop ends up talking to the lawyers, no one can ever access their records of those conversations because the church invokes lawyer-client privilege. Thus, they try to ensure that there is no possibility of accountability or legal action based on what the lawyers said to the bishops, or what they told the bishops to do or not do regarding reporting the crimes to the police. All of this has been confirmed, as it always has been, in the social media and private conversations responding to the AP article by bishops and emeritus bishops sharing their experiences, ranging from being told by the lawyers in mandatory reporting states to go straight to the police and being given excellent support to minister to the victims by the social workers in some cases, or alternatively, being shocked and disappointed in non-mandatory reporting states to discover very quickly that the church was far more concerned about protecting the church than protecting children. I've just had a fascinating and grim day working in the garden while listening to the two Mormon Stories interviews with Tim Kosnoff, 
the lawyer Gina Colvin interviewed, who has personally represented victims of abuse in dozens of cases against the LDS Church. It turns out that because of that experience, hundreds of the victims of Boy Scouts of America child abuse that happened in LDS troops signed up with his practice as the multitudes have assembled to hold that organisation accountable for generations of facilitating abusers and then covering up the abuse. And to finish off the day, Lynn and I watched the superb 2016 Best Picture Oscar winning movie Spotlight, starring Mark Ruffalo as Michael Resendez, all about the original investigation in Boston, because she had not seen it before. The Mormon Stories episodes with Tim Kosnoff are 1639 and 1640, and they are chillingly revealing. He called Boy Scouts of America the largest paedophile ring in the world, and by the end of the episode discussing them, I think anyone would agree. A combination of three factors in particular combined to result in what he estimates could be a million cases of child abuse. First, lax oversight, which is generally agreed to have been extra lax in LDS troops. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints made Boy Scouts of America their entire youth programme for boys as the BSA's first sponsor in 1913. And until its break with them a couple of years ago, it sponsored 40% of all the Boy Scout troops in the country. The church paid for all of their membership fees from tithing money, which gave the church huge influence and privileges in the BSA's decision-making. A senior LDS general authority would personally deliver the huge cheque to BSA HQ every year to remind them of how much they needed us. While, of course, shamefully giving the young women in each congregation a tiny budget and far fewer opportunities for adventure than their brothers. Because LDS scouting was compulsory rather than voluntary, and leaders were assigned to scout leadership roles as temporary callings, the leaders and the led were not always wholehearted participants or delivering the programme professionally. Tim Kosnoff also revealed that when the Boy Scouts finally introduced a programme in 1989 to show all Boy Scouts a film making them aware of sexual predators and encouraging them to recognise, resist and report abusers, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints refused to allow it to be shown to any of their young people. And because they were major funders, they were granted that exception. This scout safeguarding training was far from perfect because it put the emphasis on the boys recognising and reporting abuse and said nothing whatsoever to adult leaders telling them they also had a duty of care to do the same. Coincidentally, the LDS Church's tiny baby step of safeguarding reform made when the spectacle of a mass petition a protest march on church headquarters and Sam Young on hunger strike for weeks next to Temple Square during the Protect LDS Children campaign became too embarrassing, was to grant a second adult in the room in worthiness interviews of teenagers if the child requests it. Not a word about parents or leaders needing to insist on that as standard practice. 
so the Boy Scouts of America safeguarding protocols and training were dire, but somehow the LDS Church managed to always be several levels even worse, and still are. The second component, making the BSA the largest child abuse ring in the world, is its virtuous public image carefully defended by powerful people. Their huge wealth and social influence was garnered by appointing and handsomely paying all the great and good in public and civil life to be regional scouting overseers, which made them look like public servants of the most wholesome kind and made the BSA practically impossible to criticise or threaten as anything less than a huge benefit to society. Embracing Boy Scouts was a major tactic of the LDS Church in its Herculean efforts to rebrand itself in the 20th century as more mainstream American than mum and apple pie, and move on from its well-deserved reputation as an isolationist polygamous sex cult. The President of the USA is automatically the Chief Scout, and LDS presidents like Ezra Taft Benson and Thomas S. Monson have been awarded the highest scouting honour, the Bronze Wolf, in general conference sessions. The BSA was given free ownership or access to huge resources of land and other facilities by the government and private donors, and they owned a very lucrative, marketable brand so could afford large payouts to sex abuse victims, as long as most of them were convinced not to come forward and still make a huge profit each year. The third and most obvious component of allowing men without background checks to take vulnerable young people off into the wilderness alone for days made the BSA not just an easy target, but an irresistible magnet for a lot of the country's most vile and ruthless child abusers. And in the ad hoc amateur normality of how LDS wards run things, a lot of the child abusers in LDS scouting weren't even officially on the BSA staffing registers. They were random acquaintances or ward members who volunteered to help out with food and transport and tag along. When the awareness of abuse in scouting started to gather momentum in recent years, the Boy Scouts of America panicked. They declared bankruptcy as the class action lawsuits of thousands of victims piled up in the hope that they could cut a deal for their insurers to affordably pay everyone off and still exist and then recover as an organisation. The LDS Church bunged them a very inadequate $250 million and tried to run away from its responsibilities and attach legal indemnity for any other accusations of abuse to that deal. And as I've mentioned, a judge has just said no to that nonsense and the vultures of justice are circling around the BSA's guilty carcass. 82,000 victims have come forward in recent years so far. As Tim Kosnoff pointed out, only 1 in 25 victims of abuse tend to get the courage to report and go public about it, usually decades later when they are middle-aged. So this is the basis for his estimate that in reality there have been over a million victims of abuse in American scouting. 
If 40% of scouts were LDS for generations, then that would be 32,800 victims of abuse in LDS scouting among the 82,000 who have come forward. And that number getting only $7,621 each in compensation from the $250 million fund, minus the fortune the lawyers are making from this mess. So you can see why $250 million was never a realistic amount. Around 2,500 of the claimants so far have been specifically identified as in LDS troops, but there is a lot more research and number crunching to go before getting to the real total. Enzyme Peak must be quivering in its diamond-encrusted boots. An army of scouts and lawyers are coming for their mountain of stolen dragon gold. And in cases like this, the total wealth of the organisation found to be negligent can be taken into account when calculating punitive fines and damage payments to the victims. The Catholic Church just about survived financially because the individual dioceses with autonomous financial arrangements were covering the costs of abuse settlements within each of their jurisdictions rather than the entire Catholic Church. But the LDS Church notoriously concentrates its entire wealth into the hands of the currently serving prophet president in what was called the Corporation of the President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which was recently renamed to just Corporation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So, you can see why the church's lawyers are paranoid. Any case could end up in court demanding a punishing percentage of the church's entire wealth. Even more facts and chilling parallels between the scouting and LDS churches' dysfunctions and cover-ups and protection of perpetrators emerged in these episodes. The BSA put Douglas Smith in charge of their entire safeguarding program as National Director of Child Protection. In 2005, it turned out he was an internet child pornographer and was jailed for 10 years, but he is now living in comfortable retirement on his scouting pension because just before the police raided his home, he turned in the relevant paperwork. The Church's Abuse Helpline for Bishops started in 1995 and it is administered not by the Church's Family Services Department but its Risk Management Department by the Church's law firm Curtin McConkie. Curtin McConkie used to be called Curtin McConkie and Perlman. The Bloggernackel archive sleuths have discussed for years that their partner, Brian Lloyd Perlman, was a Salt Lake City lawyer, former mission president, a stake president, and leader of a citizens' anti-pornography organisation for a decade called Citizens for Positive Community Values, in which role a fellow campaigner told a reporter that B. Lloyd Perlman had to watch lots of nasty videos to check if they were too pornographic. In 1994, he was arrested after a policeman found him receiving oral sex from a 19-year-old prostitute in his car in Salt Lake City for $30. 
he quickly pleaded guilty to avoid a jail term and go on probation. Then a month later, withdrew the plea in a legal tactic that put his plea in abeyance, and if he met certain requirements, including a fine, community service and an AIDS test, would mean he never got a criminal record. Stake president and Curtin McConkie partner B. Lloyd Perlman was excommunicated. But bizarrely, a special stake conference of his stake was held earlier on the day of his court of love, so that he could say goodbye to his stake in person first. Of all people, Boyd K., actual little factories packer, the apostle obsessed with young people committing sex crimes and looking at pornography, spoke at that stake conference in damage control mode and basically taught everyone that Lloyd Perlman hadn't been that naughty and reassured them that there wouldn't be any eternal consequences for him. Maybe he'd already had his second anointing or something. This is very revealing of the culture in the church going right to the apostles at the top that he's desperate to do anything at all necessary to avoid public scandal and go to such lengths to downplay the seriousness of this scale of sin and hypocrisy in its clergy. Curtin McConkie took Perlman's name off their logo, but allowed him to continue working as a lawyer from their offices. The next year, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints gave that law firm guardianship of its entire child safeguarding and abuse response operation. They reciprocated eight years later by giving the lawyer son of President Thomas S. Monson a job with them after he was fired from his company as a lawyer for American Investment Bank for sexual harassment of a young female colleague. The case against Thomas Monson Jr. involved the first ever intervention by the U.S. Equal Opportunity Employment Commission in a Utah sexual harassment case. Anyway, when our bishops phone Curtin McConkie's helpline to get legal and ethical advice about what to do in sensitive cases of sexual abuse of vulnerable young and older people, those are the kind of people the church is entrusting to guide them. The Catholic Church's own secret investigations before the spotlight team got to them concluded that 7-8% of all Catholic priests were active child abusers. Paedophiles, on average, have 100 victims over a lifetime if they are not stopped. The number of cases of abuse and covered-up abuse that are coming out of the fear and shame cupboard in response to the Boy Scouts debacle and just in the last week, as the Associated Press research into the LDS church starts to sink in, including a lot of situations I had no idea about in my own area, lead me to believe now that we could easily match that as a percentage of our equivalents of Catholic parish priests. There were only a few British Boy Scout troops set up as the youth programme for teenage boys in a handful of wards here, but I'm already hearing about horrific and life-changing sexual abuse that occurred in some of those, where the young victims knew who the abusers were and warned other boys to avoid them, but the adults did nothing to protect them. 
the LDS Church chose to prioritise exactly the same systemic horrors described perfectly in the subheading of the Irish Times front page about the Catholic abuse scandals, which said, quote, The Dublin Archdiocese's preoccupations in dealing with child abuse, at least until the mid-1990s, were the maintenance of secrecy, the avoidance of scandal, the protection of the reputation of the church, and the preservation of assets. Secrecy, avoid scandal, protect the reputation, protect the money. Still, apparently, and demonstrably, the overriding priority of the LDS church leaders today, in many more areas than safeguarding, Paying tithing still gets regularly mentioned as the key indicator of righteousness. And the latest non-event tweak of an existing programme by giving it a new name and tightening the thumbscrews that will be held as part of the super exciting ongoing restoration by President Nelson is changing Christmas time tithing settlements to September onwards tithing declaration in which the bishop will have months to meet with every family and spend time teaching them and their children the joys of making sure you give money to the church. In a church rapidly losing its active members and failing to retain its children, this is the most important thing they can think of making a mandatory reason for the bishop to make a specific and formal effort to meet with families and teach them. This is what Pharisee control freaks obsessed with money think our religion actually is. It is a lifetime of exactly obeying rules and regulations and making sure no one forgets what all those rules and regulations are so they can live perfectly rather than be compassionate. Jesus said love of money is the root of all evil. There is a reason Latter-day Saints discussing the Church's priorities often point out that it is a strict commandment in the Church that anyone opening a tithing envelope and counting money must be closely watched by another adult. But no such protection is compulsory when a grown man with no background checks goes alone into a room with a child aged 11 or older to ask them about their sexual thoughts and whether they have seen pornography or touched themselves every six months. Yet another clear example in our lived weekly routines and practices as a religion that screams for anyone to hear what the church's real priorities are. As Tim Kosnoff pointed out, there is a layer cake of factors that make it incredibly hard for victims of abuse to come forwards and seek accountability and justice in the Catholic Church, the Boy Scouts of America and the LDS Church. They have vast wealth to financially annihilate you if you take them to court and aren't willing to settle quietly. Their entire culture is in denial about the scale of the problem because of the effective deployment of codes of secrecy and private intimidation and control. Their official systems and leadership decisions and norms prioritise protecting abusers, not victims. Their lack of safeguarding training and systems make getting at victims easy 
And of course, all three organisations are dominated by a nearly entirely male leadership in a culture of extreme patriarchy. Tim spoke powerfully about how this combination of factors in the culture of LDS Mormonism contributes to protecting predators. I'm just going <clears> to, <throat> I do this sometimes. I mentioned a couple what I call smoking guns. You know, oftentimes in the Mormon faith crisis world, we're, we're always trying to ask ourselves, is there any evidence that the church isn't true? Is there any evidence that the church isn't what it claims to be? Is the Book of Mormon a smoking gun? Is the Book of Abraham a smoking gun? Is the black priesthood ban a smoking gun? I, I want to say this, that if ever there were, and I've said this three times just this week, if ever there were a smoking gun within the history of Mormonism, it's when our prophets, seers, and revelators decided to get in bed with the Boy Scouts of America. Because you would expect that if... You know, if God's going to send an angel with the flaming sword to command Joseph Smith, uh, you know, to marry a, a teenage bride, you know, God would have sent an angel with the flaming sword to some of those Mormon prophets in the 20th century and say, hey, you're a prophet. That means you get to see the future. I'm God or I'm Jesus or I'm an angel. I'm Angel Moroni. Hey, you know. Heber J. Grant or hey George Albert Smith, I know you're wanting to get in bed with the Boy Scouts, but in just a few decades, they're going to be uncovered, you know, by attorney Tim Kosnoff <laughs> as one of the largest pedophile rings in the world. Since you're a prophet, me, God, I'm going to tell you ahead of time, don't get in bed with the Boy Scouts of America. Instead, not only do they get in bed with the Boy Scouts of America, they have a controlling interest in the Boy Scouts of America. And so they've got their fingerprints all over one of the largest pedophile rings in the history of the world. And how much of that is on the church? And by the way, I if, if they had 40% of the troops, why isn't it fair to say that they have probably 40% of the victims? And so in other words, if there's 80,000 people that have come forward, known victims, if there's 80,000, why aren't, in my back-of-the-envelope calculations, that's at least 32,000 Mormon victims. Is that is that totally unreasonable? No. and um, you, you don't think it is? Because I've had people get really mad at me for saying well, well, tens of well, thousands well, of sexual well, no, abuse victims. I know, but I, I think that uh, LDS scout survivors didn't come forward in greater numbers yeah. for the same reason that they don't come forward, period, today. Yeah. Well, uh, scouting or non-scouting. It's just, there's just too much pressure. Um, maybe they've thought about it. Maybe they talked to their bishop. Um, and, you know, there's the, there's a double layer uh, that uh, uh, Mormon scout victims carry uh, because, again, Boy Scouts don't tell anyone, keep it secret, same culture of secrecy. And that's what they're hearing from their bishop. And, their parents and every everybody else. So there's a, there's a lot of blame to go around, and it's easy to dump it all on the church. Um, but you know there are a lot of parents who knew and didn't do anything, um, and uh, other people, members of the ward, knew about this guy, um, didn't complain, didn't do anything because you don't do that. It's the bishop's business, and you you should butt out. And if you if you say anything you're going to get slapped down. i mean all the reasons why people don't complain in the mormon church is that it's not welcome 
Um, and you're supposed you're there to affirm, uh, you know, your ecclesiastical leadership, not to challenge them. Yeah. So that's a, that's a powerful layer. Uh, but, uh, uh, this is a huge component of the church's sex abuse exposure because so much of the abuse occurred in the context of scouting for the same reasons, um, harder, you know, uh, to, to, you know, just abusers, you know, search for the weak link. And even in the Catholic church, you know, you have these priests, but you know, where did they assault them? You know, in the rectory, if they could get them there, uh, in the robing room, um, maybe they could persuade the parents to let, him take little Johnny out somewhere. And they were so honored that father, He's an ultra John, boy, you know, you know, father John has taken such a keen interest, but it's, it's a little strange because it's not within the job description of a Catholic priest, generally speaking, to be taking a boy or groups of boys away on ski trips and this, that, and the other thing. Um, whereas with boy scouting, no, that's what, that's the essence of scouting is to take the boy away from not just his parents, but protective institutions and places. And, you know, a boy out in the wilderness is completely vulnerable in, in his community. He has neighbors, teachers, buildings. He can run to, uh, you know, things that he can use to protect him. Um, and sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But the whole concept of scouting where men about whom you know nothing can take young, vulnerable boys out into the wilderness, uh, men whose backgrounds are not known, they haven't been vetted, um, they're selected by moms and dads who don't have the slightest clue or about, <clears throat> about the problem of pedophilia in the Boy Scouts of America. I mean, it was it was a turkey shoot. Mm. And what makes it even more sad, and there was just a comment about this that I'm going to share. Um, B. Dan wrote, uh, the public respectability of the BSA, and I would even add the Mormon Church, because at some point the Mormon Church was able to sort of successfully resurrect its image with Donnie and Marie Osmond and Steve Young. And, you know, the in the 70s and 80s, the Mormon Church was able to become kind of like representing all America. And so, um, so B. Dan writes, the public respectability of the BSA um, has also really helped whitewash the church because it makes them seem reasonable and mainstream and Norman Rockwell-ish, right? It's just, it's, there's, it's like there's mother, apple pie, Boy Scouts, and the Mormon church. And it's, so it's hard when some of these institutions that actually you over-respected you held as almost sacred as the most holy and pure institutions turned out to be the ones that were most corrupt for me the biggest punchline of many in what tim pointed out with his loyally experience is one of the lines on the protocol sheet the church's social workers and lawyers taking the helpline calls must follow quote if the priesthood leader recommends that a perpetrator reports the abuse to civil authorities, he should also recommend to the perpetrator that he or she should consider obtaining legal counsel. Close quotes. 
Well, that seems sensible, of course. But what Tim the lawyer knows is that if a perpetrator confesses abuse to a bishop, and the legal advice is that the bishop must not report the abuser to the police, and the victims or spouse of the abuser are too scared to do it, the only hope of the police finding out is that the abuser turns themselves in. But if they talk to a lawyer first, they are highly unlikely ever to do it. The lawyer is never going to tell a client to go and admit to a crime the police don't know about yet. In fact, it would be illegal for them to do so, as their job is to stop their client incriminating themselves. So this becomes another tactic to ensure knowledge of the abuse hits a dead end and does not reach the legal authorities. It must be a very small percentage indeed of bishops who call the helpline who actually end up personally reporting a child abuser to the police. And this is how the whole system, cultural and procedural, results in our Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints protecting pornography-making child abusers to carry on doing their thing instead of protecting and rescuing their victims as a guaranteed outcome in a significant percentage of cases. And the church usually telling bishops to do everything they can to refuse to be a witness in court, even though their evidence may be crucial to bringing child abusers to justice and protecting their families in the other guidelines they receive. And the horrific spectacle still going on regularly of LDS bishops appearing in court as character witnesses for people accused of abuse, even though they know what they did, to try and lessen their sentences, and in some cases asking congregations to fast and pray for the abuser as they face justice so that they have the least consequences. All of this mess is tragic, and often very hard to navigate for the amateur clergy trapped in a position where they have to hear these confessions and disclosures and try to do the right thing. Abusers have often been victims of abuse themselves, and the case of Lloyd Perlman, the anti-pornography campaigning customer of prostitutes, seems to speak of someone battling personal demons in a church culture completely incapable of helping a lot of its members handle normal sexuality in healthy ways and catastrophizing anything to do with sex. We are having a massive rainstorm right now after a highly unusual for England heat wave with weeks of record-breaking temperatures and drought. There is a monsoon of tears of regret to cry for all this pain. But it will continue unless we shine the spotlight of truth and transparency at these systems and demand that they are changed. If it still isn't convincing you to offer all this information and documentation that the church's own systems and rules intentionally protect and perpetuate the cruelty of abusers in a lot of cases, let's keep it simple. What have the LDS prophets taught everyone in General Conference about this? The helpline for bishops dealing with abuse cases was introduced by President Gordon B. Hinckley in 1995. 
Before then, the guidance was for bishops to follow local legal requirements regarding child protection and reporting abuse. President Hinckley gave two talks in General Conference speaking to bishops to describe the huge burdens of expectation and responsibility the Church places on them. One in October 1988, called To the Bishops of the Church, and another 15 years later, in October 2003, called The Shepherds of Israel, which he introduced as revisiting the first one, perhaps with more authority now he was the president of the church, after years of secretly running the church behind the scenes with Thomas S. Monson using a signature machine while President Benson was in a coma. President Hinckley spoke kindly and acknowledged the great difficulties bishops face balancing the huge responsibilities of this unpaid role with their family and work obligations. I am the proud son of a diligent and exemplary branch president and bishop. My mother never really forgave him or the church for all the time he spent away from the home doing those callings while she raised four young children. Listening to these talks now I have been off the treadmill of callings and busy work and ward council and bishopric meetings for a year since my excommunication is a sobering reminder of the absolute impossibility and granular detail of the expectations that the church expects of bishops and their spouses and children with very little training. It is no wonder that so many situations of abuse have been dreadfully mishandled by bishops. Of particular importance to understanding the context of the helpline protocols, President Hinckley emphasised in these talks the extreme responsibility to preserve confidentiality in the 1988 talk, and he added a stipulation that the only exception should be if there are legal requirements to report abuse in the 2003 talk. October 1988, to the bishops of the church. It is a fearsome and awesome responsibility to stand as a judge of the people. You must be their judge in some instances as to worthiness to hold membership in the Church, worthiness to enter the house of the Lord, worthiness to be baptized, to receive the priesthood, worthiness to teach and to serve as officers in the organizations. You must be the judge of their eligibility in times of distress, to receive help from the fast offerings of the people and commodities from the storehouse of the Lord. None for whom you are responsible must go hungry or without clothing or shelter, though they be reluctant to ask. You must know something of the circumstances of all of the flock over whom you preside. You must be their counselor, their comforter, their anchor and strength in times of sorrow and distress. You must be strong with that strength which comes from the Lord. You must be wise with that wisdom which comes from the Lord. Your door must be open to hear their cries and your back strong to carry their burdens, your heart sensitive to judge their needs, your godly love broad enough and strong enough 
to encompass even the wrongdoer and the critic. You must be a man of patience, willing to listen though it takes hours to do so. You are the only one to whom some can turn. You must be there when every other source has failed. You stand as a watchman on the tower of the ward over which you preside. There are many teachers in that ward, but you must be the chief teacher among them. You must see that there is no false doctrine creeping in among the people. You must see that they grow in faith and testimony, in integrity and righteousness, and a sense of service. You must see that their love for the Lord strengthens and manifests itself in greater love for one another. You must be their confessor, privy to their deepest secrets, holding absolutely inviolate the confidences placed in you. Yours is a privileged communication that must be guarded and respected against all intruders. There may be temptations to tell. You cannot succumb. You must stand as the strong friend of the widow and the orphan, the weak and the beleaguered, the attacked and the helpless. The sound of your trumpet must be certain and unequivocal. In your ward, you stand as the head of the army of the Lord, leading them on to victory in the conquest against sin, indifference, and apostasy. I know that the work is hard at times. There are never enough hours to get it done. The calls are numerous and frequent. You have other things to do, that is true. You must not rob your employer of the time and energy that are rightfully his. You must not rob your family of time which belongs to them. But as most of you have come to know, as you seek for divine guidance, you are blessed with wisdom beyond your own and strength and capacity you did not know you had. It is possible to budget your time so that you neglect neither your employer, your family, nor your flock. You know that yours is the power to shape young lives, yours the right to recommend for missions, Yours the authority to open the doors of the temple to your people. Yours the calling to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and minister to those in distress. Yours the obligation to teach and lead and inspire. Yours the mandate to judge with equity and truth and meet out with love and understanding, with charity and faith. November 2003 General Conference, The Shepherds of Israel. Now, <clears throat> tonight I'm going to do something a little unusual. I'm going to repeat some elements of a talk which I gave 15 years ago. I'm going to speak of and to the bishops of the Church, this wonderful body of men who are in a very real sense the shepherds of Israel. 
Everyone who participates in this conference is accountable to a bishop or branch president. Tremendous are the burdens which they carry. We're wearing them out in a short time by the burdens which we impose upon them. We have more than 18,000 bishops in the Church. What a remarkable thing that is. Everyone is a man who has been called by the spirit of prophecy and revelation and set apart and ordained by the laying on of hands. Your goodness must be as an, as an ensign to your people. Your morals must be impeccable. The wiles of the adversary may be held before you because he knows that if he can destroy you, he can injure an entire ward. You must exercise wisdom in all of your relationships, lest someone read into your observed actions some taint of moral sin. You cannot succumb to the temptation to read pornographic literature or even in the secrecy of your own chamber to view pornographic films. Your moral strength must be such that if ever you are called upon to sit in judgment on the questionable morals of others, you may do so without personal compromise or embarrassment. You cannot use your office as bishop to further your own business interests lest through some ensuing financial mishap accusation be placed against you by those who succumb to your persuasiveness. You must be their confessor, privy to their deepest secrets, holding absolutely inviolate the confidence places in you. Yours is a privileged communication that must be guarded and respected against all intruders. There may be temptations to tell. You cannot succumb. Unless specifically mandated by legal requirement in cases of abuse, what is told to you in confidence must remain with you. The Church maintains a hotline which you should call concerning cases of abuse which may come to you. So we can see the contradictory messaging here being taught from the General Conference pulpit by the Prophet to all the Church's bishops. They must be the last hope, the rescuers, the saviours and protectors of the most vulnerable, like child abuse victims. Yet, they must also extend love to sinners like child abusers, quote, privy to their deepest secrets, holding absolutely inviolate the confidences placed in you. Yours is a privileged communication that must be guarded and respected against all intruders. There may be temptations to tell. You cannot succumb, close quote. Where these obligations conflict, the instruction was clear, quote, unless specifically mandated by legal requirement in cases of abuse, 
what is told to you in confidence must remain with you, close quote. Where there is no legal obligation to report abusers to authorities, they must not tell anyone about it. And if that is problematic, phone the hotline and the church will tell you what to do. This is where the secrecy obsession comes from. So please note, this is not obscure protocols in secret handbooks. This is what the whole church, and particularly its bishops, were taught by the prophet who established the helpline and its protocols in public, in general conference, repeatedly. As usual, the response of the church to the Associated Press investigation by the superstar of journalists holding religions accountable has been totally inadequate and shameless. The official statement released by the newsroom repeats the false claim that the church prioritises children and has adequate training while admitting that that consists of watching a film every three years, which is totally inadequate especially when the film does not come anywhere close to competent standards of safeguarding content. Quote, 5th of August 2022, Salt Lake City, official statement. Church offers statement on helpline and abuse. Church responds to recent Associated Press article about the church's abuse helpline. Quote, the abuse of a child or any other individual is inexcusable. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints believes this, teaches this, and dedicates tremendous resources and efforts to prevent, report, and address abuse. Our hearts break for these children and all victims of abuse. The nature and purpose of the church's helpline was seriously mischaracterised in a recent Associated Press article. The helpline is instrumental in ensuring that all legal requirements for reporting are met. It provides a place for local leaders who serve voluntarily to receive direction from experts to determine who should make a report and whether they, local leaders, should play a role in that reporting. When a leader calls the helpline, the conversation is about how to stop the abuse, care for the victim, and ensure compliance with reporting obligations, even in cases when the law provides clergy penitent privilege or restricts what can be shared from private ecclesiastical conversations. The helpline is just one of many safeguards put in place by the church any member serving in a role with children or youth is required to complete a training every few years about how to watch for, report and address abuse. Leaders and members are offered resources on how to prevent, address and report abuse of any kind. Church teachings and handbooks are clear and unequivocal about the evils of abuse. Members who violate those teachings are disciplined by the church and may lose their privileges or membership. These are just a few examples. The story presented in the AP article is oversimplified and incomplete, and is a serious misrepresentation of the church and its efforts. We will continue to teach and follow Jesus Christ's admission to care for one another, especially in our efforts related to abuse. Close quote. 
Note that it says, quote, the helpline is instrumental in ensuring that all legal requirements for reporting are met, close quote. Not that children are protected and abusers brought to justice according to law. So the Associated Press article does not, quote, seriously mischaracterise, close quote, the priorities and purpose of the helpline. The church's statement just repeats and confirms what the article says. The AP article is long, thorough and written by the most experienced and respected journalist in this field on the face of the earth. It is this official statement by the church responding to it that is oversimplified and incomplete and it demonstrably lies in its implication that bishops are told to report to the police even in states not requiring that. There is no acknowledgement of responsibility or guilt, of course, following Dallin Oakes's insistence that the church never seeks or gives apologies. No apology for the harm the church's policy did to these girls, that the judge in the case against their parents called one of the most horrendous cases of child molestation he had ever encountered. As MJ, the primary victim of that abuse, who is now 16, put it to the Associated Press journalists, quote, I just think that the Mormon church really sucks. Seriously sucks. They are just the worst type of people from what I've experienced and what other people have experienced, close quote. So that's worked out really great then for the LDS Church and its efforts to be popular and its members' delusion that they are the nicest people in the world. Nice people don't let their religion do this sort of thing without freaking out and demanding reforms. Nice people don't make excuses for it and they don't cover their ears and complain to their bishop when the person next to them on the pew or in the ward council raises concerns about policies and doctrines and practices that cause this much harm. Oh my giddy aunt, I'm never going to get this episode finished. I must be ageing visibly before your very eyes. The church has just made it all even worse as if it was even possible. Presumably, they have been inundated by usually passive church members, horrified at the totally inadequate first statement responding to the AP article, and they have gone into full gaslighting mode with a second statement. Maybe they hoped it would be more successful than the second global fast to end covid that President Nelson called for immediately after the first one did not work. It was such an odd thing to do. I wonder if this man, who believes all his own and his wife's propaganda, and sees our religion in very simplistic McConkey Mormon terms, and doesn't believe in evolution, actually went through a faith crisis when he realised two global fasts to stop Covid had failed as it swept the earth. The magic Sunday school solution to everything, pray, pay and obey, spectacularly failed in a very public and obvious way. I wonder if he was surprised and had a fleeting reality check. I also wonder if anyone has explained to President 
dogs have always been dogs, that the fuel oil that burst into flames as his airplane plummeted to the ground and men's hearts were failing them all around him is literally made of the fossilised remains of swampy forests from around 180 million years ago, full of life forms that have evolved significantly since then. Joined up thinking really isn't his or far too many Mormons' strong point. Last time they did a second newsroom statement responding to a news event, things got better. As I have described before in this podcast, after the murder of an anti-Nazi protester, Heather Heyer, at the Charlottesville, Virginia, Unites the Right fascist rally in 2017 by James Fields, driving his car into her, an event that a prominent white supremacist Mormon blogger was scheduled to speak at, there was a backlash after President Newsroom's first press release about it. It was felt by many to be totally inadequate, because it completely ignored the involvement of Mormon racists in the event, who were claiming they represented LDS values. So President Newsroom issued a second response that for the first time ever officially condemned white supremacist doctrines as wrong and sinful. It was a watershed moment. Yesterday, no such common sense or truth was prevailing at the church office building and the numpties decided to use their useless religious apologetics tactics to blag their way out of accountability for perpetuating horrific child abuse when they could easily have stopped it. As I and others have been sharing examples of for years now, LDS religious apologetics depends primarily on focusing on feelings, making everything a matter of emotions and opinions, not facts, and expecting credibility and to be trusted and believed because you put on an emotive performance of sincerity and authority while talking absolute ramiumptum. We have been watching Brad Wilcox and an endless parade of apostles and prophets using that strategy throughout this podcast. So, the second statement ramps up the focus on feelings, mostly makes childish declarations of persecution complex rage that it will not and cannot follow through on towards the associated press, flat out lies and once again specifically confirms that the AP article's claims and timeline are exactly correct, while insisting that they are a terrible misrepresentation of the truth. It literally makes me feel sick even reading this to you, but once again, I'll take one for the team and do my bit to ensure it remains on the historical record in its entirety and anyone listening to this podcast hears and sees the evidence for the church's self-destruction and can make up their own minds about whether how I am responding to it all is fair. 17th of August, 2022, Salt Lake City. Official Statement. Church provides further details about the Arizona abuse case. Church outlines its feelings on abuse and how a recent Associated Press story got it wrong. 
For generations, leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have spoken in the strongest of terms about the evils of abuse and the need to care for those who are victims or survivors of abuse. From the thundering rebuke of former President Gordon B. Hinckley to the recent words of healing offered by Elder Patrick Kieran of the Presidency of the Seventy, our feelings are clear. We echo those sentiments and teachings today. Our hearts are broken as we learn of any abuse. It cannot be tolerated. It cannot be excused. The Saviour Jesus Christ wants us all to do better and be better. It is important to us that our members and friends understand how deeply we feel about this subject. It is also important that they have accurate information about how we approach this matter. Church leaders and members are instructed in the Church's General Handbook that their responsibilities related to abuse are as follows. Assure that child abuse is stopped. Help victims receive care, including from professional counsellors, and comply with whatever reporting is required by law. Since the Church released its first statement about the Associated Press story, many have wondered what... <laughs> I wonder why! Sorry, uh, um... Many have wondered about what was incorrect or mischaracterised in their reporting. The information and details below are provided to help media, members and others understand how the Church approaches the topic of child abuse, particularly as it relates to this specific case. What did the Associated Press story get wrong? The AP story has significant flaws in its facts and timeline, which lead to erroneous conclusions. We are puzzled as to why or how a media source as respected as the Associated Press would make such egregious errors in reporting and editing. Each of the facts below is contained in public filings in the pending case and is taken from the sworn testimony of Lisa Adams, the mother of the victims. The Associated Press was directed to those filings prior to the publication of their first story, but they chose not to include any of them. Those filings, accessible to and familiar to the Associated Press, are the source for the following facts. In late 2011, Paul Adams made a limited confession to his bishop about a single past incident of abuse of one child. The bishop then called the helpline, where he was advised about how to fully comply with Arizona's reporting laws. In compliance with that counsel, from that time forward, the bishop repeatedly tried to intervene and encourage reporting, including by counselling Paul Adams to repent and seek professional help. Asking Paul Adams to report, he refused, and also refused to give permission to the bishop to make the report. Encouraging Paul Adams' wife, Lisa, to report, she refused and later served time in prison for her role. Encouraging Paul Adams to move out of the home, which he did temporarily.
urging Lisa to seek professional counselling for Paul and their children, which would trigger a mandatory report. They refused. In 2013, Adams was excommunicated for his behaviour and lost his membership in the church. Prior to and after his limited confession, Paul rarely attended church or taught... <laughs> no kidding. Sorry, excuse me. Um, Paul rarely attended church or talked to leaders. It wasn't until 2017, nearly four years later, that the church leaders learnt from media reports the extent of the abuse and that the abuse had continued and that it involved a second victim born after Paul's excommunication. The AP story ignores this timeline and sequence of events and implies that all these facts were known by a bishop as early as 2011, a clearly erroneous conclusion. The suggestion that the helpline is used to quote, cover up close quote abuse is completely false. The church's abuse helpline has everything to do with protecting children and has nothing to do with cover up. It has been in existence for more than a quarter of a century. Its purpose is to comply with the various laws of child abuse reporting in all 50 states and the provinces of Canada, ministering to the needs of victims and their families where we can, while reporting abuse consistent with the law. To encourage victims, family members and perpetrators to seek professional counselling and to report abuse to the authorities themselves. To directly report the abuse to authorities, regardless of legal exemptions from reporting requirements, when it is known that a child is in imminent danger. The helpline routinely reports cases of child abuse to authorities. Outside experts who are aware of the helpline have regularly praised it. Even when a report is not required or is even prohibited by law because the confession is owned by the confessor, the helpline encourages leaders to pursue ways to ensure these three goals are met. Those who serve on the helpline are parents and grandparents themselves. Uh, not mentioning that most child abusers are parents and grandparents, eh? And include former government child abuse investigators and child abuse prosecutors. Some are even themselves survivors of abuse. The notion that there would be any incentive on their part to cover up child abuse is absurd. Conclusion We strive to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ who spoke powerfully and repeatedly about the precious value of children and condemned those who would mistreat them. These are the ideals that characterise our understanding and approach to the issue of child abuse. What happened to the Adams children in Arizona at the hands of their parents is sickening, heartbreaking and inexcusable. The church has issued a strong response because this is a topic where there can be no mincing of words, no hint of apathy, and no tolerance for any suggestion that we are neglectful or not doing enough on the issue of child abuse. It is a matter that strikes at our hearts and is so deeply offensive to everything that we value. 
we will not stand by while others mischaracterize or completely misrepresent the church's long-term efforts and commitments. Nor will we tolerate the associated press or any other media to make such gross errors on the details of such a tragic and horrific incident as what occurred in Arizona. We are constantly striving to be better and do more, and we invite others to join us in such efforts. President Gordon B. Hinckley, quote, Countless numbers of children cry out in fear and loneliness from the evil consequences of moral transgression, neglect and abuse. I speak plainly, perhaps indelicately, but I know of no other way to make clear a matter about which I feel so strongly. There is the terrible, inexcusable and evil phenomenon of physical and sexual abuse. It is unnecessary, it is unjustified, it is indefensible. Quote, there is the terrible, vicious practice of sexual abuse. It is beyond understanding. It is an affront to the decency that ought to exist in every man and woman. It is a violation of that which is sacred and divine. It is destructive in the lives of children. It is reprehensible and worthy of the most severe condemnation. Close quote from Save the Children, General Conference, October 1994. Elder Patrick Kieran, quote, there is no place for any kind of abuse, physical, sexual, emotional or verbal, in any home, any country or any culture. The abuse was not, is not and never will be your fault, no matter what the abuser or anyone else may have said to the contrary. When you have been a victim of cruelty, incest or any other perversion, you are not the one who needs to repent. You are not responsible. You are not less worthy or less valuable or less loved as a human being or as a daughter or son of God because of what someone else has done to you. God does not now see nor has he ever seen you as someone to be despised. Whatever has happened to you, he is not ashamed of you or disappointed in you. He loves you in a way you have yet to discover and you will discover it as you trust in his promises and as you learn to believe him when he says you are precious in his sight. Elder Patrick Kieran, we can be more than conquerors in General Conference, April 2022. Close quote of the second statement from President Newsroom. The shameless lies and hypocrisies in this statement are obvious and social media is having a field day debunking it. The second statement confirms everything Michael Menendez said, that a bishop was informed by her father that he was raping his toddler daughter, that the helpline lawyers told him not to stop it by reporting it to the police, that he and the next bishop continued counselling the perpetrator for years, continued to be told by the church not to report when it became clear that no one else was going to, and that the second bishop knew enough about ongoing abuse to have him and his state president, 
who would have to be consulted throughout, hold a disciplinary council, which at the time had to involve the entire bishopric, including the ward clerk, or the entire stake high council of 12 men and the stake presidency and the stake clerk. And after considering the evidence of ongoing abuse, they decided to excommunicate Paul Adams. If it was just a bishopric putting him on trial, the minutes of the evidence and arguments and final decision would then have been sent to the stake president and processed by the stake clerk before procedure in the general handbook has them destroy those minutes. None of those people stopped the abuse. This official statement is the empty howling of tormented souls haunting a whited sepulchre which is probably what real Jesus is calling the church office building now. They will be facing him very soon, as they are incredibly geriatric, and if they don't do some amazing public repenting, I don't think all the presumptuous second anointings in the world will save them. I mean, as I've lamented before, it really shouldn't be too much to expect of the LDS apostles to read and understand the New Testament. You know, just the once. Once is usually enough to arrive at a basic functional moral compass and some sense of obligation to protect children. And they need to put Brits in charge. The PR has been appalling since Englishman Mike Otterson retired as President Newsroom. The second statement quotes the lifeline Englishman, Patrick Kieran, threw them just in time last conference, but ignored the total opposite Richard G. Scott taught there 20 years earlier, that abuse victims should repent for their role in the abuse happening. They quote Gordon B. Hinckley, but ignore him repeatedly teaching in general conference that bishops must keep confessions of abuse totally confidential unless they really, really have to say something because of laws. But they have the nerve to lie from the start that, quote, for generations, leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have spoken in the strongest terms about the evils of abuse and the need to care for those who are victims or survivors of abuse, close quote. Uh, no they didn't. For generations, leaders of the church have taught that girls and women who are raped invited it by being too flirty, or revealing their pawn shoulders, or being in the wrong place at the wrong time, or that they are responsible for the sexual urges of boys and men, because men can't be expected to control themselves or that if they did not resist a rapist in every possible way, dying if necessary, rape victims have lost their virtue. And as Richard G. Scott taught, abuse victims need to go to their bishop and repent of their percentage of the blame for the abuse happening. That's what leaders of the church have been teaching for generations, and throughout most of my life in this generation. And as the raging Redditors have pointed out, the entire defence the Church is offering here of the indefensible is that they and their bishops were legally correct to do what they did, which is questionable and about to be tested in court. Arizona allows clergy to report abuse confessed to them if they choose to. It isn't forbidden. 
But when it comes to being epically homophobic and transphobic and pontificating about the gay agenda, President Hinckley and Oakes and everyone else doing that in the LDS oligarchy have insisted over and over again that what the law of the land declares to be right does not change what is religiously and morally right. God's laws are higher than man's laws. But as soon as they might lose some money, or have to make the effort to have the same basic child safeguarding protocols all the responsible churches have had in place for years, they will act like the control freak, arrogant business managers and lawyers most of the apostles are, and hide behind the law of the land to avoid doing what is moral at the most basic level. Since this second statement was made, the internet has been passing around screenshots of the publicly accessible documents in the case. What the second LDS statement calls, quote, public filings in the pending case, close quote, proving the bishops knew the abuse was ongoing and that the church statement about them only being told about one incident in the past is a blatant lie. And it was obviously a lie anyway. You don't continue counselling someone for years and then excommunicate them for one incident in the past. And if the one incident in the past is child rape, that's more than serious enough to report to the police immediately anyway. We have actually watched the church in an official statement minimise child rape as not that consequential so people shouldn't be making a fuss about not reporting it. I mentioned that this second statement, responding to the Associated Press's excellent journalism, is a laughingstock because it has tried to use the totally ineffective tactics of the amateur apologists, like the constantly renaming itself FAIR, which used to mean Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research, and this month at least is the acronym for Faithful Answers, Informed Response. About half of its paragraphs focus on feelings, because one of the lame mental gymnastics apostles and apologists regularly recommend is to manipulate yourself by focusing on how you felt warm and fuzzy that one time reading the Book of Mormon or listening to a talk as proof that every single thing about the church and its leaders are true and trustworthy, and ignore any factual information that contradicts that feeling and makes you feel uncomfortable because that must mean it is not true and is from Satan. Another go-to tactic of desperate apologists and apostles trying to convince people that the evidence proving that they are lying does not exist is to completely leave out the sources of information that contradicts their gaslighting and only refer to a source or document that supports their narrative as if it is the only one. Fair does this regularly. It is absolutely maddening and broke my heart when they started doing this years ago after starting out as a much more trustworthy and helpful resource in its early years that I depended on heavily. These days I end up screaming when I read the nonsense they offer up now. 
In this statement, President Newsroom got right up on his high horse with indignation that the Associated Press did not limit itself to Lisa Adams' testimony on the public record, which the church presented as being the only available one and proof that there was only a partial confession of one historical incident of abuse by her husband to the two bishops. And they had the nerve to say, quote, Each of the facts below is contained in public filings in the pending case and is taken from the sworn testimony of Lisa Adams, the mother of the victims. The Associated Press was directed to those filings prior to the publication of their first story, but they chose not to include any of them. Those filings accessible to and familiar to the Associated Press, are the source for the following facts, close quote. While they totally ignored all the other witness statements by Paul Adams and their children and the bishops and the additional information those contributed to the timeline already publicly available in the court case, this is a shameless deception telling the trusting church members reading this that there was only one account of what happened and that the Associated Press journalists intentionally ignored it, even though the poor, innocent, persecuted church offered it to them and pleaded with them to notice it, and just invented a narrative which has, quote, significant flaws in its facts and timeline which lead to erroneous conclusions, close quote, quote, egregious errors in reporting and editing, close quote, and quote, gross errors, close quote. And then President Newsroom threw a childish tantrum, quote, we will not stand by while others mischaracterize or completely misrepresent the church's long-term efforts and commitments nor will we tolerate the Associated Press or any other media to make such gross errors on the details of such a tragic and horrific incident as what occurred in Arizona, close quote. All right then, LDS Church, prove it. Take the Associated Press to court. Sue them. Prove to the world in court that they lied about you and that their publication was inaccurate. Of course, you won't. It's all hot air and hypocrisy. You know you'll be crucified if you try to get a judge to take your accusations against the Associated Press seriously. And how many lies are in this paragraph? Quote, The church's abuse helpline has everything to do with protecting children and nothing to do with cover-up. Its purpose is to directly report the abuse to authorities, regardless of legal exemptions from reporting requirements, when it is known that a child is in imminent danger. The helpline routinely reports cases of child abuse to authorities. Outside experts who are aware of the helpline have regularly praised it, close quote. The helpline protocols, General Handbook, 
President Hinckley's general conference talks and all the other evidence are all clear that the LDS Church is determined not to report abuse if there are legal exemptions from reporting to hide behind from their duty of care to abuse victims. Not ignore those legal loopholes and do the right thing anyway, as this statement shamelessly claims. Where are the examples of the actual helpline itself, quote, routinely reporting cases of child abuse to the authorities, close quote? Everything in the helpline's protocols is about persuading anyone at all but the bishop or themselves to be the person reporting a case of abuse to the police if it really must happen, and forbids the bishop to report anything without talking to their lawyers first. Who actually writes this wishful thinking nonsense? Have the adults left some teenage interns in charge while they have their summer vacation? And who actually are these alleged, quote, outside experts, close quote, who have, quote, regularly praised, close quote, the church's helpline? Like the rest of us, no outside expert would have had a clue what the helpline really does before Tim Kosnoff published its screening form and thus be in any position to make an informed judgment about it. And no outside expert on earth could possibly think that the church's official safeguarding protocols and training are praiseworthy and up to scratch, or that perpetuating child rape for seven years is an acceptable system. Could they even find one? Never mind a steady stream of outside experts to praise it, quote, regularly, close quote, if they were telling them the truth about what advice the helpline actually gives bishops. This is another tactic of the lame religious apologists. Make vague references to positive praise from allegedly neutral and objective experts, or use the Fox News version by referring to some people are saying, but don't actually name them or offer links to where this is documented. They just can't help putting their own feet in their faces when trying to defend the indefensible, and an apology or admitting responsibility is always out of the question. The judge in the Arizona case is having none of it. She has ruled out excuses regarding clergy penitent privilege because Paul Adams spectacularly waived his right to confidentiality and being protected as a penitent sinner by posting pornographic films of his abuse of his daughters online and bragging about it in social media. And she has summoned a clerk, presumably the ward clerk, present at the excommunication trial and taking the minutes that would have later been destroyed to give evidence, which will also probably blow away the church's statement that the bishops did not know the abuse was continuing. Why even bother trying to gaslight everyone like this during a live trial process when all the evidence that they are lying about is already in the public domain and professional journalists, lawyers and judges are on the case? So if there are skeletons being clumsily hidden in cupboards with no locks on them, they are going to be released into the wild. The short-sighted, amateur incompetence is just embarrassing to watch. 
it all indicates firefighting panic rather than strategic analysis and planning. This is what you get in an organisation where no decision-making is delegated and the old men in their 90s don't agree with each other and keep changing their minds about stuff, even if the top bureaucrats can even get them to focus on an issue. This is what you get in a religion run by what the apostles are feeling today and interpreting everything they think and feel in the moment as revelations from God while mostly detached from reality, having been selected and empowered precisely because they are, by personality and disposition, the absolutely least likely to think for themselves, disagree with the superior and have an innovating imagination. President Nelson bucked this conformity trend in his own special way by clearly rejecting the embrace of the name Mormon of his predecessors. But his is a petty obsession with a sideshow detail that he has blown up into something momentous that will open the windows of heaven in unprecedented ways, as he taught it, not facing up to the real existential threats the church faces now. The fifteen apostles have thrown it all away. All their authority, all their right to judge anyone else about anything at all. Ideologically, they don't even understand the parable of the Good Samaritan. They are literally being the Pharisee and the Levite, who passed by on the other side of the road from someone in terrible danger and pain because they have absolved themselves and their bishops and their helpline lawyers of the obligation to help because it is against their legalistic religious protocols. And they literally think this is what God wants. How is it even possible to be that blind and stupid? But it is possible. And this podcast and many others have explained exactly why this happens and how to stop it. The First Presidency and with them the entire church never had priesthood keys in the first place, since they gave them to themselves in secret without a common consent vote of the people to authorise them. But if you are not convinced by that train of reasoning, Doctrine and Covenants 121 is additionally specific and speaks to this situation. The nanosecond priesthood holders try to hide their sins and exercise unrighteous dominion God takes their priesthood away. It is gone in a puff of smoke. All that remains is to vote these embarrassments to all that is decent out of power and replace them with people who might be able to save the church from itself at the last minute and still have some dimension of their priesthood left. Including women, of course, but one step at a time, if the male chauvinists can't get their heads around not stopping baby-raping pornographers when you can, they aren't yet ready for a feminist awakening. There is some even more basic ethical groundwork to do first. Natasha Helfer, the sex and relationships therapist the church recently excommunicated for daring to suggest that telling teenagers that masturbation is a sin second only to murder is not healthy, 
posted a brilliant response to the church's first statement online. She very kindly gave me permission to include it in this episode. In the spirit of the second statement's punchline, quote, we are constantly striving to be better and do more, and we invite others to join us in such efforts, close quote. Let's see what she recommends. It reads, After reading the church's response to the latest AP article, which was brilliantly done, I just want to, <laughs> the article that is, not the church's response, I just want to offer my professional and clinical experience of almost 25 years that the following statement is a bold-faced lie, quote, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints dedicates tremendous resources and efforts to prevent, report and address abuse, close quote. It does dedicate tremendous resources and efforts to save its own reputation and offers some financial resources when forced to through legal reparation. Tremendous resources and efforts would look a lot different than a hotline to lawyers barely any training to leaders, and a continued pattern of repent and return to your previous calling approach to the perpetrators of abuse. Tremendous resources and efforts would entail an entire overhaul of how this subject is dealt with, starting with stopping one-to-one -one worthiness interviews between church leaders and minors or other vulnerable members bringing in trauma-informed experts to begin to offer an adequate training curriculum for leaders who currently do much damage when victims are not believed, when victims are asked to minimise the problem and or victims are asked to forgive their abusers, or even worse, are seen as part of the sinful problem and are told to begin a repentance process of their own. Requiring background checks. Immediately involving authorities meant to be dealing with these topics, child protective services and police. Offering tremendous financial resources to the victims and families who will need therapeutic services and who often have a financial provider being the sex offender within a family system. Offering tremendous financial reparations to victims partnering with the best sex offender experts and treatment centres in the world so that sex offenders themselves can receive effective services that will help alleviate repeated offences, especially among young members who are often shuffled off to missions instead, pretending that's going to solve the problem. Having trauma-informed ways of reintegrating sex offenders safely within a congregation when or if they return to church services. And these are just a few ideas I can easily come up with off the top of my head in a few minutes. The church is not doing due diligence. It's not even on neutral ground. It is actively doing harm to abuse victims as long as it continues to work internally to solve these problems with no third party overseeing. Close quote from Natasha Helfer. 
As I've said before, in this podcast, I mostly follow Nemo the Mormon's philosophy of focusing on big church-wide issues and rational analysis of them to understand how we got into the mess the church is in with this kind of global leadership and culture, and what the solutions might be, rather than focusing too much on my personal experiences and feelings about them. It's about the whole institution, not my personal journey, although of course it is relevant to include some personal experiences and what I am seeing playing out in my own congregation and stake and country as these larger issues impact the behaviour and teaching and experiences of grassroots members. But as for so many others, this case and article and the church's ongoing refusal to take any responsibility or do what should be obvious to protect and safeguard children like Jesus told us all to, has tipped me over the edge. There have to be breaking points where too much is too much, and we cannot carry on pretending it is acceptable to carry on as before and not make our church leaders uncomfortable. The reasons these awful, avoidable catastrophes continue in our church is that nearly all the active members and local leaders are complicit in ensuring they continue and change does not happen. It is not enough that we personally, or in our wards and our stake, do the right things, as my stake leaders have done by ignoring the official policy and creating its own child safeguarding rules. We all have a collective responsibility for the whole church, and whether we take that responsibility or not, what the whole church does will destroy the credibility of the whole religion for the people in each of our families and congregations, regardless of our special pleading that we don't personally join in that bad stuff. You cannot have a religion that boasts of such homogenous global unity and conformity and collective adulation of its prophets and apostles as the most reliable sources of truth and what God commands, and then expect it to work to say, we don't do that here, when they very publicly screw up and harm people and endanger children. Your friends and family members will still love you personally, but they will no longer trust your religion, and they will leave it. In earlier episodes in this podcast, I spoke about how anything involving what Dallin Oaks says in public is a layer cake of one thing after another as you pay attention to and dissect what he is actually saying. And just when you think you've got to the bottom layer, there will probably be a few more, even more unethical and contradictory layers. Well, how about this one? In March 2022, BYU announced that it was requiring all new contracts signed by its employees to accept that the terms and conditions of the temple recommends they must have to keep their jobs may change in the future. In other words, to contractually agree to have their careers held hostage to whatever the church decides to add or change in the temple recommend interview questions, with no legal recourse or protection if those goalposts are moved on them. To sign an unconditional blank cheque of conformity and pay for it with their salaries and career security. 
They also had to commit to an additional ideology test and sign on the dotted line and answer questions such as, do they support church doctrine on marriage, family and gender? Do they say anything that would lead others to doubt the doctrine or teachings? Have they used pornography during the last few years? Close quote. It turns out that was a trivial sideshow to what BYU was planning in response to Apostle Jeffrey Holland's musket speech demands that I analysed in episode 8a, that the staff of the church's universities start being hostile rather than sympathetic to their often suicidal LGBTQ students and stop teaching academically objective truth and all the different perspectives and points of view of academics in their subject areas, and instead become faith-promoting propagandists, exactly parroting whatever the GAs have decided our doctrines are this week. Apostle Holland explained in that speech that the reason for this ideological crackdown was to carefully avoid having the parents of their naive and fragile TBM students write to him letters complaining that having a university education has caused them to wake up and ask hard questions about their religion, and blaming the teachers for this when what they expected was for BYU to continue brainwashing and indoctrinating them so they definitely always stay trusting Latter-day Saints for the rest of their lives. Increasingly, these BYU students have come to the university from homeschooling and private religious school programs which filter out the challenges to ultra-Orthodox Mormonism and the idea that evolution might be real, that they would already be used to if they had a state education at high school. So, of course, entering a real institution of education, in which considering alternative viewpoints is essential, and the whole point of university education, is a massive culture shock, and they write angry letters to the apostles complaining that BYU has gone to hell in a handbasket. All the faculty in their teaching curriculum are being held hostage now to those people, and the president of their board of directors, who does not believe evolution is real, even though he was a heart surgeon, and teaches that he is infallible and more reliable than any other source of information. And remember, Holland said, just as he had a couple of years previously in his evisceration of the Maxwell Institute, that he didn't care if abandoning academic credibility in favour of propaganda cost BYU its academic accreditation. It was more important not to let any faith-challenging realities be discussed, or be tolerant towards the existence of gay people. If the faculty hoped this nonsense would blow over, they've had a rude awakening this week. They are now being told to sign contracts that remove any rights to, you couldn't make this up, clergy confidentiality. To agree that their spiritual leaders, their confessors, their pastors, their bishops can grasp them up to their employers about anything they admit or discuss in usually private worthiness interviews that the employers can require those clergy to inform them about anything they want to know, 
and that they will at all times toe the exact obedience to the leader's line in every single aspect of what they do and say as educators and members of the campus community. Literally totalitarian thought control and invasion of privacy with no limits. Their untrained and unqualified amateur bishops are now more than ever the Stasi, the secret police, the gatekeepers to their incomes and career security, adjuncts of the Strengthening Church Members Committee, the Thought Police, pure Orwellian Big Brother. I have been saying that this is the relentless agenda of the totalitarian faction of apostles in the McConkie Mormon Sith Pharisee takeover of our religion, and now they have stopped hiding it and taken the final step to finish the coup and declaration of dictatorship. BYU's new, quote, strategic plan, close quote, expects all faculty, particularly new hires, quote, to authentically incorporate gospel truths into all student interactions and to teach their subject bathed in the light and colour of the restored gospel, close quote. I think we can guarantee that their definition of authentic gospel truths is not what Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and others taught about bringing all truth into Mormonism, even if it comes from scientists or heathens. To them, in their better moments, the gospel of Mormonism meant all truth, whatever that truth is. The current regime believe the opposite as I've been documenting them teaching. They teach that the authentic gospel is whatever they say it is this week, and they reserve the right to change it without question at any time. And they teach not to trust academic, secular, internet or non-LDS sources as having any truth. Only the prophets are to be trusted or treated as credible sources of information. The mission alignment standards for faculty include a commitment to, quote, a pattern of public expression that faithfully promotes the mission and doctrines of the church, is devoid of contradicting or opposing church doctrine, policies and general leaders, and refrains from expressions and behaviours that are dishonest, unchaste, profane or disrespectful of others, close quote. As Peggy Fletcher Stack pointed out in her coverage of these developments in the Salt Lake Tribune, apostles have said it is okay for church members to support gay marriage and not lose their temple recommends or be punished for it. But that zone of tolerance for diversity and different opinions is now being decisively withdrawn from people wanting to work at the Brigham Young Universities. As I have mentioned before when discussing whether the LDS church is a cult, some wise heads have suggested that the best way to judge a religion is by what it does and expects of people where it has the most leverage or control over their community to determine the terms and conditions of daily life. In the LDS church, these zones of near-total control are full-time missions and the church's universities. Where the church has a free hand, does it create a happy Zion, 
or a psychologically damaging and unethical mind-controlling prison? The answer to that question is becoming clear. The BYUs are becoming communist East Germany, where everyone is expected by the state to spy and report on everyone else. And it is increasingly reported that missionaries now return home early with major mental health damage. Would you sign a contract that gives your bishop permission to disclose, quote, matters that priesthood leaders would otherwise keep confidential to the extent the confidential matters relate to the standards of employment, close quote? When the mission alignment standards you must also agree to are crystal clear that all aspects of your life and spirituality, quote, relate to the standards of employment, close quote. All this will do is force faculty to join the students whose places at BYU already depend on regularly updated ecclesiastical endorsements by their bishops, declaring that they are believers and doing all their church duties, in never disclosing any challenges or sins to their bishops, learning to lie to them if necessary, and facing life disconnected from the support that clergy are meant to provide because literally anything you disclose to them could get you fired. So yes, if it hasn't dawned on you yet, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is at one and the same time declaring in its newsroom and in actual court that its clergy confidentiality is so sacrosanct that even a child-raping pornographer cannot be reported to the police. But, if you work as a teacher or janitor at BYU, you must sign a contract agreeing that any trace of your clergy confidentiality ceases to exist. There won't be a helpline with lawyers to navigate any of it. You are just entirely at the mercy of your bishop. In the Mormon clergy confidentiality spectrum, the underpaid and constantly criticised BYU faculty are treated far worse and with less privacy than a baby-raping pornographer. I've run out of names for this scale of hypocrisy. Jesus had a few, like vipers and whited sepulchres. You literally couldn't make this up. Well, it looks like the Ark of Justice is about to finish its long journey and come crashing down on the LDS church like a missile. Michael Resendez is only just getting started. His article wasn't a one-off. He has now followed up with the astonishing revelation that we know from the court case who the Curtin McConkie lawyer is who repeatedly took the calls from Paul Adams' bishops for two years and apparently misinformed them both that Arizona law forbade them from reporting him to the police. He is Merrill F. Nelson, a BYU graduate who went on to be elected as a member of the Utah State House of Representatives in 2013 and recently retired. As a legislator, he opposed legislation to make clergy mandatory reporters of abuse. The way Resendez and the Spotlight team eviscerated the entire Roman Catholic Church 
and devastated its global reputation was by persistently pulling at one thread of one case of covering up abuse until its connections to Catholics in three enmeshed categories of power and influence who conspired in the cover-up started to be revealed and publicly unravel. Clergy, lawyers and politicians. Already in doing the same to the LDS Church's global system of abuse cover-ups, he has bagged one person who is all three, a Mormon priesthood holder, senior church lawyer and legislating politician. And this is where the exposés about the unethical and inexcusable behaviour of Mormons protecting abusers could end up far more damaging than what they did to the Catholics. In the Catholic world, the priests are just the one thing, priests with about 4% of them convicted of abuse globally, and much higher in the USA. In Mormonism, you get double and triple whammies. Apart from the well-paid senior general authorities, every competent and professionally qualified man in the church takes a turn for at least a few years in unpaid lay clergy roles, many of them involving intrusive worthiness interviews of children and teenagers. And at the same time, or later, these men have day jobs in every role in society, including as senior business people, criminal justice system administrators and legislators. They have all been told by the church to engage with the omnipresent system of inappropriate questioning of minors about their sexuality over decades and run or use the helplines and hierarchies of line managers telling bishops to conceal and minimise and silence victims to protect the church's reputation, and will have done unethical and even assertively harmful things in those roles. There are senior criminal justice system leaders and politicians here in the UK who are about to be exposed and publicly shamed for this in cases brewing here, just as they are already in the USA. The church may have moved recently to tell bishops to stop asking salacious questions of young teenagers about their sexual thoughts and behaviours with varying impact, but any persistent journalist can ask any Mormon man with a senior or government role who has also served in a bishopric or state presidency, which will basically be all of them outside the Deseret bubble, whether they ever went into a room alone with a 12, 13, 14 or 15 year old boy or girl and asked them about whether they masturbated and how often and what other sexual stuff they were thinking or doing and watch that man squirm as the general public recoils in revulsion. They are all basically screwed. All of them. They aren't just members of a church turning a blind eye to the worst things their clergy are getting up to out of loyalty from a bit of a distance. They are those clergy. As well as joining the Boy Scouts of America, going with racist segregation longer than almost any other church, and hiding the true history, one of the most epic, dumb, strategic errors 
the first presidencies of the LDS Church have ever made was to totally ignore what just happened to the American Catholics all around them for years and kid themselves that they could change nothing and continue to hide all their own identical dysfunctions and get away with it because they have so many tame church broke journalists in their hometown. They are naive lambs offering themselves up to be slaughtered and the bloody feast is just starting to get going. It's going to be absolute carnage. One of the many maddening outcomes of all of this is that this should be the moment our entire community wakes up and demands that change happens, like the Catholic grassroots members did. But it probably won't be. The vast majority of active Latter-day Saints in my congregation and country, and most of the rest of the world, will, as usual, have no idea whatsoever that any of this is happening, or that it has been happening for years. They have no idea that this is just one of an endless list of incompetent and intentionally harmful practices and official policies commanded by the men they naively declare to be infallible and entirely guileless and benign prophets of Jesus. If I, or anyone else, breathes a word about any topic that sounds as if it is anything less than glowing propaganda about our church, at the very mildest end of what is in the Gospel Topics essays they are all meant to know like the back of their hand, but mostly haven't even heard of, or suggesting that we could do better at some of our doctrines and official practices, and suggests what those improvements could be, their heads will explode, exactly as they've been brainwashed to by the church. They have been taught to assume that their discomfort means that the Holy Ghost has fled, rather than being their own cognitive dissonance, as their fairy tale version of reality collides with some contradictory and disconcerting truths. They will assume I am an enemy, inspired and tricked by Satan to destroy the church. Not one of the very few people who got informed about this stuff but still sees hope for our religion and chooses to stay and encourage it to reform and save itself. Rather than just leaving in disgust like most of their own children already have. They will assume that the only possible motivation for criticising their church must be inaccurate, biased, unfair hatred because they have been told repeatedly that they are a terribly misunderstood and persecuted people, when they really aren't, and these days give far more persecution to the vulnerable with their wealth and political power in the USA than they receive. I've recently repeated again to my earnest and well-intentioned bishop and stake president the same thing. The problem is not me or people like me. They are futilely shooting the messengers. The problem is the behaviour, choices and repeatedly taught and enforced doctrines and policies of the general authorities they refuse to question that are destroying their congregations and families. The problem is that they as ward and stake leaders are always pandering to the comfort zones of the elderly 
and the most ignorant, and in doing so sacrificing all our informed and young members and driving them away in a religion that is meant to be all about learning all about everything and thinking and choosing for yourself until you become a god yourself, not a passive drone. As church patriarch and officially approved biographer of Joseph Smith, Richard Bushman put it, they are choosing the grandmothers of San Pete County at the cost of losing their grandchildren from the church. The problem is that they have wasted years driving themselves and their followers to exhaustion with pointless busy work, guilt trips, ministering and teaching that has all proven futile as our congregations collapse around them. Instead of focusing on the systemic problems in our church that inevitably override and erase the fruits of all that effort, they have silenced, excommunicated, and alienated the next generation who should have inherited a functional church from their time being responsible for it. And the people with the insights and ideas that could have saved it from oblivion. They have refused to challenge the leaders doing this to their families to change. They have refused to educate the few remaining mostly elderly members about the truths the church leaders are now admitting in the gospel topics essays and so forth and encourage them to get up to speed and change and stop creating a hostile environment for people who know how to use the internet to fact-check their mostly inaccurate and outdated truth claims. They have given up the growth mindset and turned the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints into a hospice whose only priority is to keep the elderly apostles and elderly ward members comfortable and soothed until they die. And after they have done a fantastic job of that, and they are all dead, there will be no church left in 15 years. This is a perfect moment to also repeat the significance of the recent change the First Presidency made to the General Handbook, adding publicly opposing church policies to opposing leaders and doctrines, as the definition of apostasy requiring prompt disciplinary action by your state president. And Dallin Oates repeatedly conflated policies and doctrines in his last General Conference talk, as I noted in a previous episode. The totalitarianism is so intense now that if you spoke repeatedly in public, objecting to the church's official policy of allowing abusive child pornographers to carry on doing their thing for years rather than reporting to the police and incurring some potential liabilities, that would meet their definition of apostasy and your state president could excommunicate you for it. Maybe remember or mention that if an annoying TBM in denial of what the Associated Press research and court case reveals insists that protecting predators isn't an official policy of the church. So yes, Drew's statement that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is objectively, realistically dangerous 
is accurate in several fundamentally important ways. Let's unite to insist that it stops being realistically dangerous. I don't think that's too much to ask, do you? The response of people to fundamentally dangerous organisations only goes one way. They get out as soon as they can. Drew uses a metaphor of a door painted with layers that we need to peel back to get to the original ideas of the religion or its ugly truth. This insight matches my favourite general conference talk, Dieter Uchtdorf's It Works Wonderfully, in October 2015, when he used a metaphor of a huge mountain of layers of sediment of man-made good ideas, programmes and expectations that have buried and hidden the real living gospel as it should be in our church. So, Mormon general authorities love a really good analogy. So here's my analogy. The best analogy I can think of to explain how one recovers from a lifetime spent as a devoted member of a controlling religious organisation is to describe it as stripping many layers of paint from a wooden door. Over time, this plain but untouched item has been coated over, sometimes with good intention, with layer upon layer of paint, Scratches, blemishes, marks have got to be hidden. With each application, there has been an an ever-increasing accumulation of decoration that has covered up the genuine object underneath the original door. And this process has meant that any desire to view the original surface of the door requires a similar amount of stripping back. Removing those layers laboriously that have been built up over time so that the original door may be revealed underneath. In some ways, I feel like I'm like this door. I'm not sure I even know what the door is. I'm not sure who Drew Hunter is before Mormonism or out with Mormonism. I'm trying to understand it. What would I be like? This is a question that my wife Tracy asks often. She feels that the real version of herself has never really been there. Or that knowing who that real person would be is going to require a great deal of time to realise. The point is, there may very well be aspects of my Mormon life that have made me a better person. I completely accept that. I have good memories. I remember some of the good things. I try to be as objective and honest in the analysis of my life as as I can be. However, I hope it will become clear as I continue, the major aspects of my life and the lives of my family, more importantly my children, were very much under the control of an organisation whose headquarters were on the other side of the world that told us what we should be, what we should do and that abused our trust. This beautiful gospel is so simple a child can grasp it, yet so profound and complex that it will take a lifetime, even an eternity, of study and discovery to fully understand it. But sometimes we take the beautiful lily of God's truth and gild it with layers upon layers 
of man-made good ideas, programs, and expectations. Each one by itself might be helpful and appropriate for a certain time and circumstance. But when they are laid on top of each other, they can create a mountain of sediment that becomes so thick and heavy that we risk losing sight of that precious flower we once loved so dearly. Therefore, as leaders, we must strictly protect the Church and the Gospel in its purity and plainness and avoid putting unnecessary burdens on our members. And all of us, as members of the Church, we need to make a conscientious effort to devote our energy and time to the things that truly matter while uplifting our fellow man and building the kingdom of God. In episode 10b, we heard several of Brad's ideas for reasons for his young audience to believe this religion, including sweeping generalizations about how religious people are safe, dependable, and keep being nice under pressure and during a global crisis and arguing that you need organised religion rather than vague spirituality to get you through those tough times and not become a selfish and dangerous monster like the non-believers. The other pathway to a testimony Brad recommended to the young people was to find faithful church members to talk to and discuss their questions with. Only the faithful ones, mind you. No need to get any other opinions. They will help you get the answers you need. Choose to believe and then turn to others who can help you on that belief journey. Turn to others. You are part of a network of friends that extends internationally. Turn to others via internet or in person and say, I need help. How did you gain and strengthen your testimony? How can you help me? This may not seem particularly significant, but I think it is earth-shattering for the standard model of Mormonism. It is being taught repeatedly now in the face-to-face -face fake dialogues and devotional addresses of the apostles. Choose to believe and go and get answers and support from true believing Mormons much less of the old-school mantra to pray about it and ask God for a witness and to ask the prophets and apostles for answers to questions about doctrine or find them in the scriptures. Maybe they have realised that young people don't always get the answers to their prayers the church used to promise them or the answer they get when they do pray is not to touch a dishonest, sexist, racist, homophobic religion obsessed with shaming you about your puberty with a barge pole because it will mess you up. And looking too closely at what the prophets actually say or said in the past will also put you off this religion, so better to just believe and think whatever those people who haven't left the church are thinking, because it's working. Never mind how they are making it work. Off you go. Stop bothering us with your questions. I recommend that to you. Always follow the prophet. Now, Harriet, 
in Wyoming, I hope we've answered your question. There are going to be times when you're going to have questions, and we've got another question coming up later that deals with that very specifically. But as we begin our face-to-face broadcast, we wanted to firmly establish for all of you the importance of following God's living prophet on the earth. That's the safest, most sure way to follow the Lord's mouthpiece on the earth. I have just one more thought, and I draw upon a comment from one of my brethren of the Quorum of Twelve Apostles. He's my seatmate to my left, Elder Neil L. Anderson. And in one of his general conference messages, he said this one simple sentence that has stuck with me ever since. Quote, Will we understand everything? Of course not. We will need to put some issues on the shelf to be understood at a later time. So brothers and sisters, we're not trying to say that we're not going to have these feelings, but they should never derail you off the covenant path. Put those items that would derail you or take you off the covenant path, put them on the shelf. And in due course, in due time, Heavenly Father and the promptings of the Holy Ghost will give you answers to your questions, along with your loving friends, family members, and leaders. Verse 14 suggests another gift, and I emphasize it's also a gift. To others, it is given to believe on their words, that they also might have eternal life if they continue faithful. So our young friends, we're all in a different pathway with that testimony. Some of us have those burning testimonies. Others of us are believing on the testimony of others. And that's okay. You can believe on ours, or you can believe on your friends, your parents, your leaders, your teachers. It's okay to accept the testimony of others. In fact, it's a gift to be able to do that also. So for those of you working on your testimonies, remember that this is a journey. It's a process. And grow for your own testimony, but don't be discouraged if you find yourself having to believe on the testimony of others. That in and of itself is a gift. And all of you will have your own ways. Heavenly Father knows you. He loves you. You are his children. And he will respond to you in ways that are familiar and correct for you. The aspect of the restoration that I treasure is that Joseph Smith was a 14-year-old boy when he went to the grove of trees in response to reading the scriptures to ask his heavenly father in humble prayer that which he did. Now that reminds me of what we're doing tonight. As I mentioned earlier, there have been thousands of questions submitted and we're only getting a fraction of them in this face-to-face broadcast. But your questions are important. Every one of you has questions, and they need to be asked, and they need to be answered. Choose people who are faithful 
who can answer your questions. Your friends, your parents, leaders, teachers, ask your questions. They all deserve to be answered, even the many that we couldn't get to tonight. Joseph Smith actually was a model for us in this regard. He had a question that he'd been laboring with for a long time. And he took his question to Heavenly Father, expecting that he would get an answer. And he did. Now, not not all of our questions are going to be answered like Joseph's was. But like Sister Rasband described, how she received and heard the promptings of the Holy Ghost. Mine's been more along the nature of reading the Lord's words in the scriptures. All of you are young friends. All of you can have responses to your questions. And may I say just in conclusion that all of these questions and all of your questions can be answered by the Lord Jesus Christ. He truly has the great answer for every one of our questions. We leave this love, our appreciation, and our need for you most sincerely with you as we bless you to go forward in this world and make a difference and be valiant and build up the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as you build up yourselves. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. This is why I'm going down the rabbit hole here about this brief statement by Brad. It really is significant, I think. It smacks of desperation as these leaders know they are losing most of the kids and the old confidence that prayer and scripture study should be enough to maintain a testimony is gone. But it is also Machiavellian genius as a strategy when you know you aren't getting real revelations about anything doctrinally significant. You can totally avoid being found out and held accountable for that by not actually caring what people do or believe to stay loyal to the church just as long as they stay loyal and keep paying their tithing you don't actually need and standing when you enter a room because you are so important. Just tell the kids to go and do what the other loyal members are doing and believing. Don't even check what it is. It's working. The ends justify the means. This is an amazing contrast to the previous generation of control freaks like Bruce Armaconkey and Boyd K. Packer and all the rest who were desperate to micromanage every detail of what people believed as Mormon doctrine and give talks warning about seven deadly heresies to not believe and such like. These guys are far lazier. They just don't care, as long as you do what you're told and stop bothering them with your questions. They really cannot be asked to study enough to be proper scriptorians or historians of their own religion anymore. They delegate all that stuff to the church-broke scholars and apologists and borrow a few of their ideas that seem convincing without actually understanding them properly and then use them in their talks in ways that don't make sense or work together rationally. But they don't realise this 
because they aren't really thinking about what they are saying or testing whether it holds up by having robust real debates about them with people willing to disagree with them or tell them they are wrong or inept or need to do better. This is how living in an echo chamber of psychophants whose job depends on reaffirming their loyalty to you as the mouthpieces of God, who know more than they do, and are intrinsically more accurate and inspired than they are, rapidly self-sabotages and derails the whole church. As soon as loyal opposition, reality checks, critical analysis, objective scrutiny and accountability to the people outside the management hierarchy are removed from the equations in how everything is run and decided in this church or any organisation, everything that is wrong with what Brad and the other general authorities are teaching and doing becomes inevitable. Their whole organisation becomes out of touch with reality and collapses unable to change itself without radical reforms and a restoration of systems of accountability, when a religion or corporation or political party loses the ability to regulate itself healthily. The only people stepping up to do that become the investigative journalists and the dissidents from within that community. And hey presto! That's the role that the bloggernackle bloggers and podcasters are playing, along with the professional journalists who have played a vital role in nudging the church back towards sanity and reforms as they did with disasters like the institutional racist segregation, the November 2015 policy of exclusion, and keeping the Enzyme Peak Horde a secret. When people do press the apostles for an answer about an unresolved question or doctrine, they keep saying now that they are, quote, waiting on the Lord, close quote. And if God hasn't told them out of the blue about something, we are not meant to know about it yet. The Christian Mormon religion of constant revelation and information pouring down from God to his people in the last days is absolutely dead now in their religion. The promise from President Nelson of unprecedented blessings and revelations pouring down if we got the name of the church right and persuaded Jesus to stop being offended and sulking and withholding those blessings from us has not been kept. And if you don't believe me, this trend reached its absolute apotheosis in the April 2022 General Conference that just happened, when Dale Renland reigned all over the Heavenly Mother parade that has been gathering momentum and told everyone to stop even thinking about her or attributing worship and involvement in the plan of salvation to her in the conference and recent training meetings he's been making this point in. He said that seeking more information or a revelation about Heavenly Mother, or anything else, really, is arrogant. Yes, he actually taught that. Dear sisters, thank you for being here. I'm honored to participate in this women's session of General Conference. The second truth is that we have heavenly parents, a father and a mother. The doctrine of a heavenly mother comes by revelation, 
and is a distinctive belief among Latter-day Saints. President Dallin H. Oaks explained the importance of this truth. Our theology begins with heavenly parents. Our highest aspiration is to be like them. Very little has been revealed about Mother in Heaven, but what we do know is summarized in a gospel topic found in our gospel library application. Once you've read what's there, you'll know everything that I know about the subject. I wish I knew more. You, too, may still have questions and want to find more answers. Seeking greater understanding is an important part of our spiritual development, but please be cautious. Reason cannot replace revelation. Speculation won't lead to greater spiritual knowledge, but it can lead us to deception or divert us and divert our focus from what has been revealed. For example, the Savior taught His disciples, Always pray unto the Father in My name. We follow this pattern and direct our worship to our Heavenly Father in the name of Jesus Christ and do not pray to Heavenly Mother. Ever since God appointed prophets, they have been authorized to speak on His behalf but they don't pronounce doctrines fabricated of their own mind or teach what hasn't been revealed. Consider the words of the Old Testament prophet Balaam, who was offered a bribe to curse the Israelites to benefit Moab. Balaam said, If the king of Moab would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Latter-day Prophets are similarly constrained. Demanding revelation from God is both arrogant and unproductive. Instead, we wait on the Lord and His timetable to reveal His truths through the means that He has established. The second paragraph in the Young Women theme reads, As a disciple of Jesus Christ, I strive to become like Him. I seek and act upon personal revelation. Astonishing. They claim to be the only prophets, seers, and revelators authorized to seek and receive revelation about God and our doctrines, but are at the same time now being the dogs in the manger from Aesop's fables that my parents used to teach us in family home evening. The dog in the manger is a carnivore and doesn't eat straw but he sits in the manger and barks at the cows and the sheep when they approach it to be fed, preventing them from having something he doesn't need himself out of spite or just to make himself feel powerful. The male-only patriarchal priesthood leaders of a religion that has the potential 21st century feminist win of a heavenly mother female deity and keeps teaching women that she is living their future, yet at the same time flatly refuses to even ask God for any information about her and her role, and whether we can even talk to our own mother, or she is allowed to talk to her children by her husband God, is classic dog-in-the-manger power-trip spitefulness. Our theology begins with heavenly parents. Our highest aspiration is to be like them.
Very little has been revealed about Mother in Heaven. These three statements express in a nutshell everything you need to know about the ludicrous shambles these buffoons have made of our religion by being oblivious, gormless, patriarchal sexists who neither care about nor listen to the experiences of women in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Quote, Our theology begins with heavenly parents. Our highest aspiration is to be like them. Very little has been revealed about Mother in Heaven, close quote. So what on earth are any of us, particularly female Latter-day Saints, meant to do with that? Women's highest aspiration should be to be like their Heavenly Mother, but these intellectual zombies are fine with telling women almost nothing whatsoever about their essential role model. So how are women supposed to fulfil what is meant to be their highest aspiration? What are the skills they will need? It's fine for men. They get told plenty about the roles of the boy gods in the scriptures, in the general conference talks, in the temple endowment, explaining the roles of Elohim and Jehovah and Michael, also known as God the Father, God the Son and Adam, from before the creation of the world, during it and afterwards. We even get a powerful female character in Eve, whose thought processes and role and journey we follow in detail. But there is not a word anywhere about the invisible Heavenly Mother, who is meant to be the exemplar for them of their highest aspirations. After two centuries of prophesying, searing, revealing, the general authorities today can't even tell us if there is one Heavenly Mother or several. Elder Renland described her in the singular, yet we are fully expecting that when Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and Russell M. Nelson and Dallin Oaks and thousands of other Latter-day Saints past and present in pretty much every congregation in the church today become exalted creator gods, they will have several, dozens in some cases, heavenly mothers attached to each heavenly father. Plus all the current single or not temple married polygamous wives that will be sealed to them in the millennium because they didn't bag a temple sealed marriage in this life. LDS women are humiliated and abandoned and neglected and ignored just as much as these alleged apostles of equal and divine heavenly parents have abandoned, neglected, and ignored their Heavenly Mother, or Heavenly Mothers. Previous LDS prophets did not hesitate and prevaricate like this. Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and John Taylor and Wilford Woodruff taught repeatedly that having several Heavenly Mothers for your spirit children was essential to being a god and that their role is to be eternally pregnant, making spirit bodies for intelligences and nothing whatsoever else. Until these living prophets commit to an alternative destiny for LDS women, this is all they have to look forward to as their, quote, highest aspiration, close quote. Being ignored in an eternal brood chamber or puppy farm and forbidden to speak to any of their children, 
or have the children know anything else about them. And all their daughters told to prioritise rehearsing for this role above every other consideration or personal development because ultimately they won't need any other skills for eternity. President Nelson has been crystal clear about this ever since doubling down on this destiny for women in his first press conference after being secretly ordained as the president of the church in 2018. Peggy. So under President Monson, we saw some real advances towards gender equity, the lowering of the missionary age, especially for sisters, and also adding women to some of the executive committees. But the church leadership is still white, male, American. What will you do in your presidency to bring women, people of color, and international members into decision-making for the church? That's a good question, Peggy. I hope I can be forgiven if I say I have a special place in my heart for you. I know your mother. I know your father. I know all four of your grandparents. And I know your family, your missionary children who've distinguished themselves with wonderful service. So Peggy is special to me. Um, now, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember. Uh, it was, uh, <clears throat> we are white and we are American. And... Uh, but look at our quorums of the 70, and look at our leaders locally. Wherever we go, the leadership of the church is from the local communities. And that, those are the real leaders. Uh, the 12 and the 70 are not a representative assembly of any kind. That means we don't have representatives. How would you govern a church with a representative from all of the 188 countries? So somebody's going to be left out, but it doesn't matter because the Lord's in charge. And, and uh, we'll live to see the day when there will be other flavors in the, in the mix. But uh, we respond because we've been called by the Lord. We, not one of us asked to be here. Um, I'll have to tell you about when I was called to the 12th, nearly 34 years ago, I was on a board of directors of a commercial concern, and one of them was a, a, a rather worldly person, <clears throat> not uh, of our faith. And when I was called to the 12th, he says, I don't understand your church. They live on the tithing of the people, and then they take one of their best tithe payers out of production. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we don't think the way man thinks. We, God's ways are not man's ways. I think it's also valuable to remember something that I have found useful to cite when I talk to youth. I remind them uh, that it's dangerous to label themselves. 
as uh, particular nationality, geographic origin, ethnic circumstance, or whatever it may be. Because the most important thing about us is that we are all children of God. If we keep that in mind, we are better suited to relate to one another and to avoid a kind of quota system as if God applied his blessings and extended his, his goodness and his love on the basis of quotas that I think he does not recognize, so we shouldn't. But what about women? I love them. <laughs> I have a special place in my heart about the women. I'm the father of nine beautiful daughters. And I often wondered, how am I so lucky as to get girls? And where are all the missionary boys? Well, we finally did get one, and the poor boy didn't even know who his real mother was for the first couple of years. <clears throat> But now, with a little more seasoning and maturing and time passing by, I understand because they had, they had a superb mother, those girls. And now those girls are mothers of their own flock, teaching the things that my wife taught them. And now, yeah, all my girls are now grandmothers. They have strong children, strong in faith, strong in capacity. And they emulate the work of their wonderful mother and their grandmother. We have women on our councils. We have women administering ordinances in the temple. We have women uh, presidents of the auxiliaries and their counselors. We depend on their voices. And I think I said something about that in a conference talk a little while ago a plea to my sisters to take their place. We need their voices, we need their input, and we love their participation with us. Could I just add one thing, President? Uh, we need their influence. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm, uh, I keep getting praised by how wonderful my children are. <laughs> yeah. And I know who did that. <laughs> and uh, it depends on what you... I think matters most, but there is no question in my mind if you speak of the notion of the place of women, they are the source of most of the strength we see. I have four sons, they've all been bishops, and I'll tell you why. Yeah. <laughs> it was their mother, and uh, I, I, I just, I think that uh, the idea of position, or the idea of recognition. I can see how that would be a concern to people, that they don't see the women being given that recognition. But in terms of influence, the Lord has already given them. I think no greater influence exists in the kingdom than the women of the church. And I, I say that in the absence of my wife, who I was, wish was here, so she could hear me say that I think uh, most of the good things that I've done and that my family are doing are because of her. In the Doctrine and Covenants, there's that verse that says, before the foundation of the world, women were created to bear and care for the sons and daughters of God. And in doing so, they glorify God. Next question. Thank you. Ted. 
Tad Walsh with the Deseret News. Sorry. Um. But they don't hesitate to plead with the Lord and wrestle constantly to discern his revealed will about policies and political campaigns to persecute the LGBTQ people or minute details of whether we are having a Saturday evening session of general conference or not and whether it will be for the boys only, or the girls only, or what range of girls. Will it be eight years and older, or twelve years and older this time, Jesus? And who is precisely presiding in it? My dear sisters, as we begin this unique women's session of General Conference, I am pleased to deliver this introductory message from the First Presidency. Our Saturday sessions have a history of different purposes and different audiences. This evening, we add to that history as we embark upon a new purpose and procedure for the foreseeable future. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not change. Gospel doctrine does not change. Our personal covenants do not change. But over the years, the meetings we hold to communicate our messages do change and very likely will continue to change over the years. For now, this Saturday evening meeting is a session of General Conference, not a session of any organization. Like all sessions of General Conference, the planning, speakers, and music are designated by the First Presidency. We have asked President Gene B. Bingham, President of the Relief Society, to conduct this session. Future Saturday evening sessions may be conducted by one of the other general officers of the Church, such as members of the Presidencies of Relief Society, Young Women, and Primary, designated by the First Presidency. Tonight, this Saturday evening session of General Conference will concentrate on the concerns of Latter-day Saint women. Though deliberately broadcast to a worldwide audience, like all sessions of General Conference, the audience invited to be present in the Conference Center for this session is women and girls aged 12 and older. We've included some priesthood leaders who preside over the participating organizations. What we are initiating here is responsive to the communication resources currently available to the Lord's worldwide church leadership and membership. The doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone, so that is our principal motive and extent of dissemination. We honor the daughters of God in this special session by concentrating on their concerns and those of their organizations. We are grateful that broadcast technology now gives church leaders the capacity to conduct detailed training by addressing specific audiences in the field. We also welcome the fact that current travel opportunities are increasing. That allows us to send church leaders to conduct needed regular face-to-face -face leadership training in the field. This is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are His servants, directed by His Holy Spirit. We invoke the blessings of our Lord upon the leaders of these organizations and upon the faithful women and girls who serve the Lord in these organizations and in their individual lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Did any of that make sense to you? They have all the time in the world to ask God those questions and the ones that lead to constant updates of hundreds of data points in the general handbook every few months. 
Apparently, they are absolutely rocking this revelations about really specific granular details about everything they can imagine putting into the rule book, and the ongoing restoration has never been so zingy and alive as it is now, according to them. But they flatly refuse to actually make any of that effort for us to ask for the information we need, and repeatedly ask them for about Heavenly Mother, in a religion that also teaches us that nearly all the scriptures anciently and the Doctrine and Covenant scriptures of Joseph Smith came as a result of him asking God questions for himself or on behalf of other church members who asked him to ask God. Receiving real revelations about real religious stuff rather than control freakery admin and constant flip-flopping on meeting arrangements, is all over now in Pharisee Mormonism, and it is presumptuous and sinful arrogance, according to these apostles. So just believe and go and talk to a loyal, faithful member and hope they will answer your question, or ideally distract you with other stuff, so you stop caring about the questions you had in the first place and decide they were the wrong questions, and you don't really need an answer to them after all. That is literally the model being described in their talks, and even their little propaganda films about how teenagers should resolve their concerns and questions and dreaded doubts. This is the wider context in which Brad Wilcox is telling young people their questions are the wrong questions and that they should just believe and put themselves in an intentional peer pressure situation in an echo chamber of the faithful, even though the church tells young people to avoid peer pressure and believing stuff just because other people are telling them to. But it's fine if those people are loyal Latter-day Saints. Totally trust them and their peer pressure. Brad is getting in trouble for saying what all his Apostle line managers are saying and teaching him and the youth to think. In his messages to the Sunderland England Stake youth, Brad Wilcox is jumping around between sound bites and concepts that sometimes end up contradictory or confusing, so there isn't one single train of thought to follow here necessarily. He is offering his young audience a buffet of lots of thoughts and perspectives to feast on and reflect on later. So that's a noble intention and fair enough. But hopefully I've justified why hearing him talk about just believing and going to faithful church members for answers rang alarm bells for me. In a church with two opposite religions being taught at the same time, it takes a huge mental effort and determination to stay focused on filtering everything that gets said and assigning it to one side or the other. And you have to be really tenacious or you start doubting yourself or getting very confused. Especially when really basic, fundamental things are suddenly being thrown down the memory hole and ignored. Renlund's fatwa on asking questions and condemning asking for revelations was delivered with such conviction and certainty, it has taken a while to process how ludicrous it is. Not surprisingly, it has kicked off a lot of perplexed chatter in the bloggernacle, as we try to work out if there is something missing here that would make it make sense in the context of Mormonism, but it really doesn't in any way at all. 
And this morning, someone made the simple points that should have been the first thing that popped into our heads listening to him. Dale Renland said, quote, Latter-day prophets are similarly constrained. Demanding revelation from God is both arrogant and unproductive. Instead, we wait on the Lord and his timetable to reveal his truths through the means he has established, close quote. The scripture that we are taught launched the entire restoration and the prophetic career of the first and greatest of the Latter-day Prophets in James 1.5 says, quote, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him, close quote. They are literally opposite statements, aren't they? So how has Renland, the cardiologist, who also claims to be a latter-day prophet, seer and revelator, got it into his head that he could stand at a general conference pulpit speaking to Mormons and tell them that latter-day prophets should not ask for revelations from God when they have questions, while this scripture commands everyone to ask God our questions and fully expect to receive an answer, quote, nothing wavering, close quote. James says God doesn't tell you off or correct you for asking for revelations to answer your questions. But Dale Renland, the alleged prophet, seer and revelator of God, told us all off and corrected us and upbraided us for doing that, or expecting him and his 14 colleagues to do that when it is literally their job description to do that. It makes no sense. This imposter prophet isn't just wavering about asking for revelations, he's flatly refusing. He has given up even trying, and is telling us to give up asking God for answers to our questions too. Now, in the supernatural realms, who precisely is it that wants you to stop talking to God? and getting revelations and knowledge from him? Hmm. This is yet another witness we all heard of how the Pharisee Mormon religion somehow corrupts and warps these apostles' minds and beliefs until they literally teach Lucifer's religion and directly contradict the most basic ideas in the Restoration and don't even seem to notice it raises so many questions about how this is even possible, and those are the questions I hope this podcast is going some way to answering. They are the right questions to ask, intrepid listeners, and they deserve credible answers. Now, everything I said there was based on what I've called the standard model of Mormonism. God is in his heaven, he talks to us and the apostles just as clearly as ever in the past, perhaps even more so as this is the last days and all knowledge will be revealed to the world. It won't get better than this after all the false starts of the law of Moses and the first Christians who went apostate. The church has all the doctrinal answers you need, living prophets to deal with anything not covered by the scriptures and previous Mormon prophets so far. And if you study this stuff and pray about it, God will testify to you in undeniable clear ways that it is all true. 
That's the religion I grew up with and most active members still believe and teach. However, all of that is rather out of date and really interesting things are afoot. My phone news feed informed me this week that the American atom-smashing Fermilab has possibly just blown up the standard model in physics by discovering an entirely new form of energy or particle. The standard model has held up well to explain almost all the physics we can measure, like electricity and momentum, and until recently, for decades, the theories using that model have turned out to be correct when taken to the laboratory and tested. But it has never been able to explain everything. The elusive theory of everything. It has not apparently explained gravity, and the discovery of dark energy and dark matter has really thrown a curveball at it. So all of physics is now in a state of flux, with old assumptions going up in flames and ever more powerful atom colliders giving us glimpses into amazing new insights into the nature and laws of reality. Very exciting times for humanity's understanding of the universe, with huge implications for religion and philosophy. We are experiencing a similar course correction or paradigm shift in Mormonism too. The internet was the Hadron Collider smashing up the standard model of McConkie Mormonism. It enabled us to fact-check the church's official histories and truth claims and observe for ourselves once completely hidden archives of original documents and realise that a huge percentage of what used to seem so certain was totally, or significantly, inaccurate. The scientists are saying that the W boson looks like being just 0.1% heavier than was expected, but that tiny difference has changed everything. In the same way, this easy-to-miss shift to just believe and trust your faithful friends had massive implications. But maybe there is also a deeper wisdom there than just panic and desperation and loss of faith in the ability of individuals and apostles to really get religious revelations. One of the most helpful tools for maturing Latter-day Saints trying to disentangle themselves from the church or find ways to stay in it without going mad has been to discover models of faith development over a lifetime especially Fowler's Six Stages of Faith Development, proposed by Methodist minister and psychologist James Fowler. His six stages are titled Stage 1, Intuitive Projective Faith, Stage 2, Mythic Literal Faith, Stage 3, Synthetic Conventional Faith, Stage 4, Individuative Reflective Faith, Stage 5, Conjunctive Faith, and stage six, universalizing faith. Which is a word salad of psychobabble, but if you find out what it means in real life, it is really helpful and very encouraging. As Jana Johnson Spangler explained to us in a Thoughtful Faith podcast discussion, hosted by awesome Kiwi Maori feminist Gina Colvin, in one of my earliest forays into actually podcasting in the blog Anacle and elsewhere, Mormonism is fantastic at Fowler's stages 1 to 3. One being believing in a magical world with a nice beardy man in the sky granting wishes, 
and three being the certainty of the teenager and young adults, working out how all the pieces of their religion and real life fit together and make sense in a wonderful system of specific doctrines and rules that you can be totally sure of and dogmatic about. What follows in stages four to six is a process of realising most of the stuff you and the people teaching it to you were so sure of is nonsense and overclaiming, because you discover the evidence that it has loads of flaws in it, and living real life as an adult swiftly teaches you that real life, even as a very obedient fanatic, does not fit neatly into the experiences and expectations the religious system promised you as guaranteed outcomes for belief and cooperation with all the rules. So you are flung into a faith or trust crisis and re-evaluate everything and will never again trust the leaders and teachers who taught you all that certainty and rules as being infallible or consistently wise ever again. You then kind of have the choice to step away from religion entirely, or you re-engage with the religion of your upbringing and community on a very different basis, no longer taking it all as literally true, but appreciating the wisdom and its metaphors and exercising cautious autonomy to decide for yourself exactly which ideas and practices to trust or work for you in your life and which to ignore or challenge. You have lots of love for the good bits in your culture and the interactions with your people and the religion's best ideas, but you are now more protected from the harms it can do if taken too literally or without filtering out the dangerous stuff that does your well-being harm. You become the dreaded cafeteria Mormon, picking and choosing what to practice and believe and trust for yourself which totally freaks out the stage three Pharisee Mormon control freaks, obsessed with absolutely everyone believing and doing absolutely everything the leaders teach and require and pile into the general handbook. There is no way you are going to define peak spirituality as exact obedience on the covenant path if you have progressed to fouler stages four, five or six. Maybe within that paradigm, choosing for yourself to believe and discussing and sharing wisdom and experiences and best practice with your friends rather than expecting the infallibility claiming apostles to give you the answers you need is the best way to go. But somehow, I don't think Brad and his buddies are coming from Fowler's stage six. They are all about stage three certainties and keeping everyone stuck there. Gina has gone on a wild journey over the last few years, progressing from Mormonism to Anglicanism, and now very happily ensconced with our cousin Mormons, the Community of Christ. She is bringing her groundbreaking Thoughtful Faith podcast to a close this year, with a series of reflections and advice to people navigating those choppy waters. In episode 379, she said... For the past seven years, I've hosted faith conversations that have been an enormous privilege and a way in which I've been able to process, along with others, my own faith construction, my deconstruction, and now my reconstruction. 
And I've been accompanied on that journey with marvellous human beings who have been so generous and have shared their stories, furnished and supported my own and have been an integral part of mine and so many others' journeys. So this series is my swan song and an ode to a faith journey in its fullness. It's to say that pulling apart, peering inside, critiquing, measuring, holding old ideas up to the sunlight, thinking about truth and belief and religious claims, critiquing clergy and authority, coming to terms with religious history is absolutely all part of the journey. But sometimes the tendency is to open up the parcels of inquiry in a flurry of activity, but to leave the boxes and the wrappers and the rubbish lying around and walk off with disappointment that there's really nothing to be excited about. But I think there are things to do, important things to do, and that is to step into the wonder of being recreated and renewed by the experience of deconstruction. And from there, taking the opportunity to let yourself assemble back together mindfully and wisely with discipline and intention and compassion. One thing I've come to learn is that for much, if not all of my time as LDS, I've been anxious and on edge that every step I take, every thought has needed to be accounted for in case something, in case something, I'm not sure what, I don't really know, but the gloom of existential dread that something bad will happen, whether in this life or the next, has hung heavily for so many years. Perhaps it was anxiety about the divine removal of all of my well-being, my means for survival, my relationships, my health, all gone if I didn't get it just right. And how would I know if I got it right? The priesthood could tell me if I had it right, even if I couldn't discern it for myself. And that cycle of fear and self-accounting and reflection made me dependent and in denial of my inner authority. Of course, there are benefits in this religious system. It does provide stability when there have been none. It offers community and a sense of purpose. But sadly and worryingly, it's too unaware of itself, particularly around the margins. And to add injury to insult, every member under the prophet has no power to do anything about that. We can't pick apart the quilt and remake it according to our needs in a way that honours our own souls. We're supposed to eat the Big Mac as, as it's been made and there's no room for variation. A Big Mac is a Big Mac unless Ronald says otherwise. So in the LDS world, this seed blown on the wind of the highest heavens may not have a quest to learn from the gods, whether imminent or transcendent or the spirit ancestors, because the thinking on that front has been done from a man who is no relation of mine, who doesn't live under the same mountain as me who speaks the language of his ancestors given to him from a world as far apart from me as can be, and I must, as a sign of my community belonging, replace my very identity made in a heavenly realm. Now, I think not, and I'm glad that I think not now, and I'm glad for the words in my language I have to say, kao or e kore or e hara. The question of inner authority and spiritual authority has been eating at me for many years and finally the last nibbles of the rope have been undone but I still tremble with the idea of my freedom. There's still a catch in the throat because it's not easy to craft a sacred meeting place for my soul when the architecture that exists comes from a design in Salt Lake City. But we each of us have to start in the rubble and that's daunting work but I do believe 
It's sacred and powerful. It goes against our way of becoming fully human to assume that we must surrender our right to spiritual maturity by an institution who finds our challenge and our critique to be threatening enough to withdraw belonging. When belonging is so important, belonging and identity is one of the pillars of our own formation and development. And to threaten that based upon our inevitable and necessary and healthy doubts and confusion is cruel and it unsettles our fundamental human need for social connection and relationship and it creates trauma. No matter how well you are doing faith and no matter how many affirmations you have had based upon your good contribution to the community, if you are under any kind of duress, if you are acting outside of your own developmental needs for the sake of conformity, if you can't think independently of the church, if you are unable to regulate your feelings in healthy ways, if managing your body through daily life is made difficult, if your belonging is constantly under threat, these things can cause trauma. And when there is a sustained and prolonged experience of these kinds of traumas, escape is difficult, but it is possible. So we have to be intentional about our healing. We have to be conscious. We have to pay attention to and wake up to the reality of our lives and almost every idea that once gave our life structure and meaning. And then we need to decide what to do with those doctrines and those rules and expectations and teachings and experiences in order to stop them eating away at our well-being. But because we had the courage to show up in the world as broken and in our journey of growth, we become wounded healers. So with that in mind, John O'Donoghue, my mystic of choice, offers this benediction that has been so pivotal and powerful in my own continuing journey, so much so that I still draw upon it and take every opportunity to share it. And it is with this blessing in mind, my time with a Thoughtful Faith podcast begins its end. For a New Beginning by John O'Donoghue In out-of-the-way places of the heart, where your thoughts never think to wonder, this beginning has been quietly forming, waiting until you were ready to emerge. For a long time, it has watched your desire, feeling the emptiness growing inside you, noticing how you willed yourself on, still unable to leave what you had outgrown. It watched you play with the seduction of safety and the grey promises that sameness whispered. Heard the waves of turmoil rise and relent, wondered, would you always live like this? Then the delight, when your courage kindled and out you stepped onto new ground, your eyes young again with energy and dream, a path of plenitude opening before you. And though your destination is not yet clear, You can trust the promise of this opening. Unfurl yourself into the grace of beginning that is at one with your life's desire. Awaken your spirit to adventure. Hold nothing back. Learn to find ease and risk. And soon you will be home in a new rhythm. For your soul senses the world that awaits you. The wonderful gift of Fowler's stages of faith development and similar models is that they reassure you that you are not broken or losing something irreplaceable when you start to realise the beliefs and certainties the church raised you with are nowhere close to as reliable as you were led to believe. They tell you that you are falling upwards, 
not falling down to damnation. You are progressing to better and truer and wiser. That you have far more autonomy to decide your own religion than you were led to believe. And this is fine with God, if God is real. And my joy in Mormonism is that this is what is also fundamental in Christian Mormonism. Joseph Smith's whole paradigm is that we are on a long journey of steps and stages progressing from where we are now to becoming actual gods. That, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, Right now we see through a glass darkly, but will one day know as we are known. That we can only move from one step to the next by having live experiences for ourselves and reflecting and thinking about them and getting more knowledge that we work out for ourselves, not just by passively listening to others telling us stuff and trusting that they know what they are talking about. That every moment matters and has value, even when we are making terrible mistakes as long as we learn from them. That God's ideal is that we stop needing to be bossed around by leaders and become effectively independent. Progress from the law of Moses' schoolmaster to bring us to Christ and Christianity's freedoms and flexibility to adapt to our own and others' needs without unnecessary rigid rules about everything, as Paul taught in Galatians 3.24. And Joseph Smith taught in the amazing Doctrine and Covenants 58 that says we are literally damned if we practice exact obedience on the covenant path and wait to be told what to do exactly all the time. Or what we are allowed to ask, Brad Wilcox and Dale Renland, that instead we must fly, be anxiously engaged in any good causes we feel inspired to choose, because God has already given us permission and authority to do that. This was the message of the wonderful talk that Elder Ronald Perlman gave in October Actual 1984 General Conference titled The Gospel and the Church, teaching that the purpose of the gospel is to help us progress to a point where we don't need the institutional church to tell us what to do anymore. This talk so horrified his Pharisee general authority line managers that in one of their most epic and shameless acts of deception and desecration of the sacred ever, they forced him to refilm his talk at the tabernacle pulpit as a version teaching the literal opposite, that we can never do without the church guiding our religious lives. They added a cough track and edited it into the videos of conference sent out to the world and the written versions of the talks in the General Conference report in the November Enzyme, pretending that this is the talk he originally gave. I have always wondered if anyone who was in the tabernacle to hear the original noticed, and was delighted in a recent podcast to hear from a woman who was, and had been excited to teach the original to her young women, and then doubted her own sanity when it was published and she could watch the video and it had all changed. She was perplexed by this for years and only recently found out about the deception. 
you can find a delightful YouTube film of both versions side by side to experience the wonderful original and the gobsmacking deception for yourself. We shall now be pleased to hear from Ronald E. Pullman of the First Quorum of the Seventy. My remarks this morning are directed primarily to those of you who have accepted the gospel and are members of the church, and to those of you who may be seriously contemplating such acceptance and membership. Both the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ are true and divine. However, there is a distinction between them which is significant, and it is very important that this distinction be understood. And there is an essential relationship between them that is significant and very important. Of equal importance is understanding the essential relationship between the gospel and the church. Failure to distinguish between the two and to comprehend their proper relationship may lead to confusion and misplaced priorities, with unrealistic and therefore failed expectations. This in turn may result in diminished benefits and blessings, and in extreme instances even disaffection. Understanding the proper relationship between the gospel and the church will prevent confusion, misplaced priorities, and failed expectations, and will lead to the realization of gospel goals through happy, fulfilling participation in the Church. Such understanding will avoid possible disaffection and will result in great personal blessings. As, As I, I attempt, attempt to describe, to describe and, comment and comment upon some on distinguishing characteristics of the essential relationship between the, the gospel and the and Church, the church Noting at the same time their essential relationships, it, it is my prayer that a perspective, that a perspective may, may be developed which will enhance the influence, the influence of, both of both the gospel and the church in our individual, in our individual lives. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a divine, is a divine and, perfect, and plan. perfect plan. It is, it is composed of, of eternal, unchanging principles and laws, laws and ordinances which, which are universally applicable to every individual, to every individual regardless, regardless of time, place, place or, circumstance. or circumstance. The principles and laws of the gospel never change. Gospel principles never change. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a divine institution is the kingdom of God on earth administered by, by the, the priesthood, priesthood of, God. of God. Underlying every aspect of church administration, of church administration and, activity and activity are the revealed are eternal, the principles, eternal as principles as contained in the scriptures. In the scriptures. As individually and collectively, and collectively we increase, we increase our, our knowledge, acceptance, acceptance and, application and application of gospel, of gospel principles, we, we become less dependent on church programs. We can more effectively utilize the church to make our, our lives, lives increasingly gospel-centered. Gospel Sometimes traditions, customs, social practices, and even personal preferences of individual church members may, 
through repeated or common usage, be misconstrued as church procedures or policies. Occasionally, such traditions, customs, and practices may be even regarded by some as eternal gospel principles. Under such circumstances, those who do not conform to these cultural standards may mistakenly be regarded as unorthodox or even unworthy. In fact, the eternal principles of the gospel and the divinely inspired church do accommodate a broad spectrum of individual uniqueness and cultural diversity. The eternal principles of the gospel implemented through the divinely inspired church apply to a wide variety of individuals in diverse cultures. Therefore, as we live the gospel and participate in the church, the, the conformity, conformity we require, require of ourselves and others should, should be according, according to God's, God's standards. standards. The, the orthodoxy, orthodoxy upon, upon which we insist, we insist must be founded in fundamental principles and eternal law, eternal law, including free agency and the divine uniqueness of the individual. And direction given by those authorized in the church. It is important, therefore, to know the difference between eternal gospel principles, which are unchanging, universally applicable, and cultural norms, which may vary with time and circumstance. The source of this perspective is found in the scriptures and may appear to be presented in a rather unorganized and even untidy format. A necessary perspective is gained by studying and pondering the scriptures. The Lord could have presented the gospel to us in a manual, systematically organized by subject, perhaps using examples and illustrations. However, the eternal principles and divine laws of God are revealed to us through accounts of individual lives in a variety of circumstances and conditions. Reading the scriptures, we learn the gospel as it is taught by various messengers at different prophets in a variety of circumstances, and times, and places. We see, we see the, the consequences, consequences as it is accepted or rejected by individuals and as, as its, its principles are applied, are applied or, not, or not by varying degrees and by many different people. Indeed, it is not enough we should to obey, obey the, the commandments, commandments and counsels of church, church leaders, leaders in response to but also through study, study prayer, and by, by the influence of the Holy Spirit, Spirit we may seek and obtain an individual personal witness that the principle or counsel is correct and divinely inspired. When we understand the difference when we see the harmony between the gospel and the church and the appropriate function of each in our daily lives, we are much more likely to do the right things for the right reasons. Institutional discipline is replaced by self-discipline. Supervision is replaced by we will exercise self-discipline and righteous, righteous initiative, initiative guided by church leaders and by a sense, sense of divine accountability. accountability. The, the church, church aids in our effort to use our free agency creatively, not to invent our own values and principles, but to discover and adopt interpretations, but to learn and live the, the eternal, eternal truths of the gospel. gospel. 
Gospel living is a process of continuous individual renewal and improvement until the person is prepared and qualified to enter comfortably and with confidence into the presence of God. Why does it seem to work better for some than for others? What is the difference between those whose experience and the church fills their souls with songs of redeeming love and those who feel something is lacking? As I have pondered these questions, a flood of thoughts came to mind. Today, I'd like to share two. First, are we making our discipleship too complicated? This beautiful gospel is so simple a child can grasp it, yet so profound and complex that it will take a lifetime, even an eternity, of study and discovery to fully understand it. But sometimes we take the beautiful lily of God's truth and gild it with layers upon layers of man-made good ideas, programs, and expectations. Each one by itself might be helpful and appropriate for a certain time and circumstance. But when they are laid on top of each other, they can create a mountain of sediment that becomes so thick and heavy that we risk losing sight of that precious flower we once loved so dearly. Therefore, as leaders, we must strictly protect the Church and the Gospel in its purity and plainness and avoid putting unnecessary burdens on our members. George Orwell, the author of 1984, would have been proud to see how much more accurate a prophet of the future he was than Spencer W. Kimball was when he thought they could get away with this. Everything we really need to know about our wonderful religion is in the seminary scriptures they taught us to memorise and understand as teenagers. The wisdom is all there. But these clowns have lost it or never understood it, and the people leaving or becoming dissidents in the church for ideological reasons rather than orgies, are doing so because the church is not practising this religion it preached to us growing up. We aren't being contaminated by worldly philosophies of men. The institutional church is simply doing pretty much everything the institutional church taught us is evil and apostate and to avoid associating ourselves with. As we look back at how audacious the LDS Church was in its strategies of deception, hiding evidence from historians in its locked-up archives and faking the Perlman General Conference talk, in an era before the internet empowered ordinary church members to fact-check and share our discoveries about its claims and lies, it is perhaps reasonable to conclude that maybe the church has learned from these mistakes. That such things could never happen now, 38 years later, in 2022. 
Surely its leader's overweening arrogance in thinking such deceptions are both morally acceptable and going to work has been tempered by experience, and the terrible harm cult behaviours like this has done to its reputation, confirming as they do that at least in 1984 this was indeed a shameless cult trying to manipulate reality and humiliate and silence even its own general authorities who dared to challenge its totalitarian control of our minds and personal religious journeys. Or, even worse, punish those dissidents by forcing them to take to the pulpit again and re-record an alternate history, this time teaching the party line of the church's dictators and the exact opposite of what they actually believe. Like the propaganda show trials and press conferences of terrified, soon-to-be-murdered dissidents in Stalin's, or now Putin's, Russia. Well, I'm going to have to use my you-couldn't-make-this-up catchphrase again. In the previous episode 10b, we listened to the seven lies Apostle Susan Bednar's husband told in his recent speech and question-and-answer session at the American National Press Club. In it, he was asked about the church having over $100 billion, and he joked about how it's gone up a lot from that figure, but accidentally, he said, it's not a hundred million anymore, instead of billion. And there was some internet chatter about how he seems to be unconsciously avoiding acknowledging or talking about the vast difference between millions and billions. When the church news posted its five-minute edit of the Q&A session, not surprisingly entirely leaving out his lies about not having any accurate data about the membership and attendance statistics for Mormons in the USA, there was a small but telling difference. Instead of millions, he was now saying billions, as he should have all along. Of Susan got dubbed. Uh, with over $100 billion in funds and assets, the LDS Church has more capability than any other church in the country to help eliminate poverty. What more could the church do in terms of humanitarian efforts here? Okay. I hope I address some of that in what I just said. You wanted to move quick. Yeah. Uh, and number two, if you take a look at the stock market, I don't think it's $100 million anymore. <laughs> if you take a look at the stock market, I don't think it's $100 billion anymore. <laughs> this deception was, of course, nowhere near the scale of faking an entire general conference talk, but it begs so many questions. For a start, why even bother? Why try to change the historical record about such a minor error by this future president of the church? Did he call the people in the media team and go into a recording studio somewhere in the network of radio and TV networks the church owns and operates, and have himself recorded saying billions loads of times until they got just the right one to edit in and sound seamless? Or did some poor IT minion have to trawl through loads of Bednar speeches to find one where he said billions and edit that in at the right speed? Or maybe they hired a voice actor and recorded him saying billions? Or was Susan Bednar's husband involved at all? 
Was it the anonymous LDS media godfathers who delete their own films of prophets and apostles speaking to entire nations and continents from the internet as soon as the broadcasts are over to hide the evidence of the crazy nonsense they always end up saying in these things, like they did with the British Rescue and the Nelsons and Bednars broadcast to Europe on the 23rd of January 2022. They clearly run a tight ship as they work hard to manipulate Google search engine algorithms to push anything critical of the church off the first few pages of searches. Maybe it's their standard operating procedure to dub original footage to clean up every tiny error the infallible mouthpieces of God make. I bet they'd love to get their hands on general conferences like their predecessors in the good old days of 1984 could to scrub them of the crazy stuff that keeps Nemo the Mormons and Radio Free Mormons general conference reviews going for hours, but have resigned themselves to only being able to edit the text versions in the Liahona, now everyone's watching and recording them live from home. Whoever was responsible, we've all been given a timely little reminder that whoever it is really running this church has definitely not changed their ways, and they don't hesitate to edit, censor, and if necessary, deceptively redub the public pronouncements of the infallible brethren with the same overconfidence as they edit reality and history in their teaching curriculum and official resources for journalists, investigators, and Latter-day Saints even when it is really not going to make much difference in the grand scheme of things. They will take the risks of being found out and ridiculed anyway. At the rate high-level access insiders and employees are leaving the church, it won't be long before someone tells us what on earth went on there and whose brilliant idea it was to dub Dave in this episode, we have seen and heard for ourselves the two opposing religions slugging it out in the Mormon Civil War. On the one side is the religion of Lucifer and human control freaks, who think their own ideas and aggrandizement are far more important than God's. They tell us we cannot possibly think for ourselves or be in any way independent of the mountain of man-made ideas, programs, and expectations they pile on our backs like a mountain. On the other side is the religion of Jesus, and Joseph Smith, when he wasn't thinking with his flaming sword, and Gina Colvin in New Zealand, and Drew Hunter in Scotland, and original flavour Ron Perlman 101, and once and hopefully future President Dieter Uchtdorf, and the fast-disappearing remnant of Christian Mormons. They all believe in empowering and trusting people to think and learn and make life decisions for themselves. They believe in the temple teaching that all truth is part of a beautiful whole that we should wear as a badge of honour over our hearts that we are meant to learn from everything and everyone in this amazing world, that being the whole reason God sends us here, because we can learn these things better here for ourselves than we could possibly learn them even sitting at his own feet in heaven. 
another new champion of that Christian Mormonism who has realised it is about to be snuffed out and has joined us in the podcasting bloganacle airwaves to research, analyse and shout from the rooftops about the systems of thought and action in the church that are betraying it is Valerie Haymaker. By profession, she is a therapist. So like Natasha Helfer, her alarm and motivation to take up arms in the Mormon Civil War comes from being one of the most informed people about the specific and appalling harm that Pharisee Mormonism is doing to the people it breaks. LDS therapists with LDS clients are a special breed of rescuers and warriors. They are the super soldiers, the frontline troops in the battlefield. No one can gaslight them that the church isn't harmful as they try to triage and heal the multitudes pouring into their clinics. I am deeply proud of David Shepherd, the gentle and thoughtful young man wrestling his own overwhelming demons, who bravely stood shoulder to shoulder with me and Stephen Blomfield on the BBC News Channel to explain and discuss Sam Young's Protect LDS Children petition that seems like a lifetime ago now in July 2018. Since then, David Shepherd has started a family, trained as a counsellor and joined the Mormon Mental Health Association that Natasha Helfer was the first president of to do his bit to help the other wounded refugees pouring out of the church. He was recently interviewed by Laura and Julian Heath on the Sunstone UK Facebook group if you'd like to catch up with his journey. Valerie Hamaker's podcast is called Latter Day Struggles and is a punchy and wide-ranging exploration of topics as she pleads for the real Mormon religion to survive the onslaught of the mindsets destroying it from within and from above with co-presenters ranging from her hubby to other LDS therapists. She is a warrior on a quest and speaks with the authority of experience and academic training. I have really appreciated following her journey of epiphanies and thoughts that I went through a few years ago, and it feels very familiar, and I welcome her to the very small band of critical analysts at least for now, determined to stay engaged with helping the church to change from within and holding on to what is good in it, rather than having to leave it. People who have been in this space in previous decades and eventually exhausted themselves banging their heads against very stubborn institutional walls usually kindly pat us on the head and advise us not to waste our time or that we'll eventually give up too but I still have hope for revolution and reformation. Each new wave of pips squeaking and people unplugging themselves from the matrix and going back in to fight it are blessed and empowered by the heroic work of those people who have tried before and generously shared their struggles and experiences with us. This has gifted us with a fast forward button to pick up where they left off and gain more ground in the civil war rather than wasting all our time just repeating what they accomplished before our stamina and opportunities run out. We have reached the ramparts and the walls are finally crumbling all around us 
like Joshua at Jericho or Samson in the Philistine temple of Dagon. Maybe Valerie's cohort will be the ones to finally break through. The LDS Church's days are numbered if it doesn't change. Let's hear a few thoughts from Latter-day Struggles, episode 3, titled, Why Own Our Mistakes? You actually reached out to me uh, about the the situation that had happened with one of our general authorities, uh, Brother Brad Wilcox, and um, what turned into, you know, (laughs) a bit of a media disaster for our church, in part because of what he said at the fireside, but also I think it, it... it was actually made worse by the struggle to just own the church's very checkered history with the with the the African American population, with the black mm-hmm. population, and um, our, our what seems to be just you know mammoth struggles with just with just being honest about what happened, not only in that situation but in a lot of situations. But that's the one that got you and I talking, and we're like, yes, we need to go there. Right. And and so is there a history? Like if we really look at, is there a history of kind of pulling the wool over people's eyes, um, not yeah. owning what is, not fully going there, or justifying or rationalizing why the things have happened in the past? Um, and, you know, I, th- I think one of the big problems that the church is having right now is that there's there's really no place to hide. Um as you know, and so as much as they've yeah. tried to hide for, and they have for a long, long time, all of these things yeah. they can't anymore. Yet it seems like, in many ways, they keep doubling down on trying to handle yeah. things that way. You know, it's interesting. I have, I'm, I'm just fascinated with this whole entire topic because I feel like, yes, in some ways, it seems to me to be actually the fulfillment of prophecy that the truth will be shouted from the rooftops. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you hit the early and mid-90s, and here we are with the internet, and there's nowhere to hide anymore. And much of what has been considered, I was just listening to a podcast that kind of blew my mind. It, The claim was made, and mind you, this is a podcast, so I don't have something like before me with the, but, but it said that much of what we have considered anti-Mormon was really just a group of people exposing our own history to ourselves and that about 80% of what we used to consider, you know, enemies of the was truth actually <laughs> historical. was historically correct. It's just what happened. And it's, it's very distressing and disturbing, but it's made more so by uh, the churches, you know, the church at large, the, their attempt to protect us from ourselves, which actually does way more damage than being honest. Yes. I, you know, I think of, like, I have been a ferocious defender of the church for most of my life. Yeah. And, and so, and, and, and the kind of justifications for things and why things have happened, um, I've gotten along with those things. Um, But when you look at history, and like you talk about, you read journals, like Mm. blatant history, like there it is. Um, To a person who's defended the church, it puts you in, in this dilemma and the dilemma yes. is either I've got to be, be honest with myself and look at the facts and, and deal with that, um, or I need to continue down the road of, of more justification yes. um, and, and fight f- for that even further because if I actually admit that these things did happen or continue to happen, 
than all of this kind of fighting for truth in quotation marks right. that I've done for so many years, like really, really wasn't, wasn't what I was doing. I wasn't fighting for truth. And so it puts it, you know, it, it makes that person want to continue to justify and defend and say that all these things happen for these reasons or that reason or whatever, whatever else. Right. Well, it, it puts us um, as a body in a massive state of cognitive dissonance. Um, and just to kind of like explain what that means, it's where where something in our conscience as an individual bumps into what the collective is telling us we're supposed to be believing yeah. and buying into. And at some point in time, I'm just such a big fan of the idea of psychological agency. Spiritual growth brings about the capacity for us to have psychological agency, which is when we start saying, I, I'm reading these journals I'm looking at what is out there. I'm looking at the history. I'm seeing what actually happened. It's not lining up with the whitewashed history of, you know, the teachings of the prophets, right? right. The, you know, right. the handbook, the, cor- the, the, coral- the worldwide correlated teaching materials are, are spoon-feeding us their version of the truth that may make us look better. Right. But at the end of the day, it makes us feel a thousand times worse because yes. it's not true. Yes. It's, it's, you know, it makes me think of my work with betrayed partners who, yeah. who, you know, they, I, I talk all the time about how betrayal trauma is actually, the trauma is, is, is greater, not because of the, the thing that happened. It's because of all of the justifications and hiding and gaslighting and not owning the truth that happens afterwards that really confuses the partner, causes more deceit causes more broke fractured trust in that relationship and and in some ways there's really a parallel here with the church where oh, for sure. when, when things are hidden when things are justified when and 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 really when members are gaslighted back of saying no 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 you need to look at yourself and doubt your doubts right. and, and not not actually look at this stuff or it's anti <coughs> it's anti mormon and it's not okay mm. then then all of a sudden you actually get the facts and it's like Boom! This this oh, like it can be really hurts. Yeah, um, you know you um, what what you're speaking to. I resonate with very very strongly. And you and I are you know we met because we both have a lot of training in and our caseloads. Uh, our client populations are, are somewhat similar, although we live on different sides of the country. And I have given um, my fair share of presentations and lectures in the sexual health field, which my husband has supported me and attended several of them. And it was very, very interesting. We were driving home one night after I spoke and my husband said, you know, I had a big epiphany while we were, while I was listening to you. And he says, you know, you talk about in the sexual, in betrayal, in the betrayal world, that there's a big difference between disclosure and discovery. Yeah. My owning up as a human being that I have made a mistake and the discovery, which is that the betrayed finds out trauma is so much bigger and it's so much worse so much bigger and so my yeah. husband said that's what we're experiencing by the discovery that the church is making because of the advent of the internet which has turned into some the churches they're making their efforts you know with the you know the gospel essays and things like that but even that is actually kind of traumatizing to the membership because it's sort of a an info dump that some may actually feel isn't even adequate. <laughs> it's a day late and then and they don't give us an, Yeah, it's late and it's not complete yes. and it lacks a lot of transparency. 
And I mean, I get there, they're stepwising, they're getting there. And so I'm going to give, I want to give them the credit <laughs> where it's due. But at the same time, so many people will find it, go on to the gospel essays. They'll go on a rabbit trail because they want an answer to one question. And then they recognize that there are, you know, <laughs> how many other things? And they're like, holy crap. And the next thing you know, they are in active spiritual trauma because all of this has been handed them without any information, without any preface, without any support, and oftentimes without a lot of explanation or ongoing accountability. Right, right. So what is the church supposed to do? Are they supposed to say, you know what polygamy was about, um, you know, power-hungry men wanting more sex? Are they supposed to say that um, the blacks and the priesthood was because the church leaders and the prophets were racist. Um, and, and I could go, I could go on and on with different things, right? Um, yeah. Are they supposed to, to do that? My answer to that question is actually yes. Yeah, yeah. More damage is done when they don't do that than when they do, because what precedes a faith crisis is always a trust crisis, Brandon. Yeah. And if we don't feel like we can trust the institution then it's very, very hard to stay faithful to the, 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 the ample amount of truth that it can and does provide us. And That's, so the yeah. ugly truth is far more important than the whitewashed lie. Yep. That's so profound what you're saying, Valerie. I think it's so important. Yeah. And, you know, I just think of, of you know, I, I bring back, it comes back to my work with betrayal of, you know yeah. what, if, if a person who has betrayed wants to actually save the relationship, then what they need yeah. to do is to step into the mess, step yes. into the, the hard part the, and face the pain of it and allow the person Amen. who's been betrayed to start the healing process by dealing with the reality of what has happened. Yes. Right? I, I, I could not agree with you more. Let me just offer to you, I have been doing a lot of reading recently. I always am doing a lot of reading. I'm a little bit of a nerd that way, but I've been reading a book called The Challenge of Honesty okay. by a beautiful author, uh, one of the founders of the Dialogue Journal, which is just a, an inspiring group of, of people, uh, progressive Latter-day Saints, wanting to have these kinds of tough, but like relevant and really, really important conversations in this book, she quotes a man by the name of Daniel Callahan who says this. This blew my mind. The ultimate meaning of the Christian faith above all is not a kind of commitment which excuses any sort of deception and evasion as long as their purpose is a good one. To deceive others for the good of the church, to deceive oneself for the sake of loyalty to the authority of the church is still a deception and cannot be covered by euphemisms. There is no excuse ever to deceive, which is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. If the prophet Joseph Smith had many, many sexual partners of his, the daughters of his friends and the wives of his friends, mm -hmm. if there was, if there was dishonesty, if there was deceit, which we know for a fact historically there was. It needs to be owned, and the body of the church needs to be encouraged to have the psychological agency to hold the tension of someone who both did very prophetic things and did very human-like things. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's fascinating as, as I'm listening to you say these things. I'm thinking it's, it's really interesting to me that at, at the core of our belief system yeah. is the atonement and repentance. Mm -hmm. 
And, Amen. And, yes. and so it's so fascinating that on an organizational level, instead of, you know, when we look at the atonement and we look at repentance, the, the key factor there is owning that we make mistakes and owning up to it and dealing with it and facing it and handing it over to the Savior and, yes. and surrendering that. Repentance is not acting like we're infallible, we're perfect, and we do everything we do for the perfect reason. Um, that, that doesn't lead to healing. It doesn't lead to letting things go. And it, it actually, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go I was just going to say it actually, it, it does enormous amounts of damage, yes. Brandon. And the reason why is because when, as, even as we are taught true principles of faith and repentance and atonement and healing as individuals, when that's not modeled at the institutional level, once again, we fall into a trust crisis where we're being asked to do that which, that which the institution is struggling to do themselves. Right. But as sophisticated as it is, if they, if they don't just own truth, then damage continues to be done. When we talk about this, it sounds like we're, you know, we could be, we could be looked at as anti we could be looked at as like, what are you saying? You're saying that the church mm. needs to own all this stuff and blah, 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 blah. Why yeah. are we talking about this? Are we talking uh, you know, about I, rip on the church? I guess, I, is that rhetorical or can I say no, something? No, please. <laughs> I would say that I love our church, Brennan, and it's heartbreaking to witness those whom I want to esteem as leaders not leading me. Yeah. I want the principles of the gospel practiced at an institutional level where I know, where I know, I mean, I served a mission. I know the steps of repentance. <laughs> you know? right. I taught them all the time to my beautiful Latin American people where I served. And it's to own what happened, to make reparations, to do what you, whatever you can in your power to make it right, to go beyond lip service. Right. And so what happened in that apology with the Brother Wilcox thing, was not an ownership of the fundamental problem, which was we oppressed a, a race of people. And as an aside, we're still oppressing a gender of people to this day. And we will not own it. We will not say we as an institution made a grave mistake. Now, to their credit, the whole world has made the same mistake. People have been oppressed. The black people have been oppressed, you know, <laughs> Forever. Right. We as human beings, God's children, for whatever reason, it's just part of our fallen nature, we can't but figure out a way to, to oppress someone in some way. Right. And we as human beings are guilty of that. All of us are. And so as an institution, it is our responsibility to grow up and to own up and to say what happened to do it. That would be so incredibly healing to the people, the good people of our church and of the world to lead out in saying, we made a mistake. And, and, but Valerie, there could be some like very faithful followers who, who see that and they say, well, then I'm, I'm out. Like, and and yeah. I think, I think that's okay. Like that, well, that, yes. that they need to walk through that and say, okay, like <coughs> you can be out, but we are committed to owning it now. We're committed to being honest yes. and upfront and, and out there with everything now. Well, back back to the disclosure versus discovery piece, Brannon, is that the thing that I think is painful is the the sort of the more um, 
underdeveloped, spiritually underdeveloped folks that want the black and white, you know, we are, you know, the sort of obsession with certainty kind of population of our church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is going to be traumatic for them. But the fact of the matter is, truth has to always prevail. Right. If we're going to be in the service of God. And so the church is actually in the process of losing a population of people anyways. Right. Because those that are becoming more spiritually mature and can't live in the cognitive dissonance, where they can't have their minds wrapped into pretzels going, but that can't be right. That is not loving. And that is the right. lodestar in my mind of what is true is, is it loving? Is it, is that how, is that the kind of God I want to worship? The one right. who chooses the white over the black, the one who chooses the man over the woman, the one who has, you know, preferences around like what way you choose to express yourself sexually. That is not the kind of God I want to worship. And right. so people out of integrity are choosing to leave because they are choosing integrity and conscience over obedience to that which does not feel loving and like God. So I think there will be a cost exacted one way or the other, but I will always, I will always there on the side of what is loving. And I yes. want, I want my church to be able to grow up and move out of this phase of evasion. And, and I think the pathway, the pathway out is through some, some pain, some discomfort, yes. but through that pain and discomfort comes some healing and some rebuilding of trust and, and things like that. And so, so that's kind of the dilemma that the church is in is, okay, how, you know, it's interesting, the papers that you talk about, I talk about all the time, the trickle out effect with, with disclosure. Mm. I'll give you just yeah. enough to make you happy, just enough mm. to show you that. So damaging. Yeah. Ju- that I'm getting honest, but I'm not fully getting honest. Um, the pathway out is, is through owning it all is through stepping into yes. it and saying, this is it. And if you're left with this five members at the end of that, you know, that good, that's a place to start and start to move you know, forward, right? And I, I actually think what we, what we want, I, I don't think it's doing the church any favor to hold on to the, the population that needs the lies to be okay. That is not yes. actually representing an integrity-based institution, that that's you know, not, you see what I'm saying? the gospel, which that's Correct. what the church is, right? Precisely, precisely. So, as model, we we want institutions. We want to be led by those whom we trust can handle the truth, and who who can trust us that we can handle the truth. What are the motives for a lack of honesty at the institutional level? Maybe we can kind of touch that's on a, both of these. That's a good question. Yeah, the motive, this is what the proposal by this, this woman, Frances Menlove, says. She says, number one, she thinks it's to protect the institution that we love. So the, the leadership wants to protect the church. The, and the second one is the fear that the naked truth will harm the simple believer. So do you want to kind of, kind of touch on each of those? Oh, yeah. yeah let's touch on each <laughs> of those. I just thought you cringe. Well, because yeah. I deal with it all the time. It's, I'm not going to yeah. get honest because I'm afraid that I'm going to hurt you. And, and mm-hmm. so the, I did cringe. We, we can get into that one in a minute. The church is having some variation of PTSD. Like our early history, we were abused, we were persecuted, we were run from here to there to everywhere. And so in cases of that nature, I believe that we get defensive and we may make, you know, we may make bad choices that are not based in our integrity because we are living from a place of, you know, of historical and institutional fear. Right. Or it makes it harder to be honest. 
But okay, Valerie, I'm a, let's say I'm a, an apostle. I'm a, I'm a man who's been a stake president. I've raised my entire family in the church. I've, so, so the church is very much central to my life. And, yeah. and so it's scary to say, okay, let's get honest. Let's face this. And this could either destroy or, mm-hmm. or at least change the church drastically. So I don't want that to happen because I've invested way too much. And now I spend almost all of my time in it. I've invested way too much. So I'm so scared for that to actually happen. Right. Um, And so it's going to take those leaders to face that in order for this honesty to come out to say, like, look, I'm I I got to surrender in faith that wherever this lands, God's got it. God's got the church. And like I said earlier, if there's five people left, then that's exactly what needs needs to happen so that we can move forward, right? But to me, it feels like the most important thing we can do and model is like a tenacious desire to perpetuate that which is true. Yes. Right? Isn't that what the church is all about? That's that's why this is just mind-blowing to me, is that what we're actually doing if we are like tenacious about the whitewashing is we're actually perpetuating a culture where we're not living in truth. Right. And, and that's not, that's, it's not comfortable. And I think what we're also doing in order for people to live that way in any kind of comfort, they have to be so spiritually underdeveloped that, you know, if they become spiritually developed and start discerning and feeling and thinking and, and being like in direct contact with the divine, it's going to no longer be acceptable and they will be lost anyways. And so what we don't want to do is invite our families and our loved ones to say, to stay so underdeveloped that that stays okay. Right. Right. Like what we want, actually, if we want true, true, deep, profound spiritual growth is we want to cleave into that, which is truly virtuous, honorable and of good report and praiseworthy. Yes. And we have to embrace that. We have to embrace that. What you're, you know, what you're, your, what you said a minute ago had me thinking that, like, I spent a period of my own life, Brandon, frightened to study the history of polygamy. Hmm. It, it made me uncomfortable to think about, like, what will I find there and what will it do to me? But it would be just the same as my knowing, fairly certainly, that my husband was having an affair, but choosing not to know because I, I didn't want to dis. Exactly. There are so many parallels. You don't want the consequences of it. Yeah. Yeah. And at some point in time, it's like, I would prefer truth and integrity over the, you know, the comfortable but not so comfortable lie. So Valerie, you know what we call that when, when it's like, I don't want to look at the history. I don't want to face the reality. We call that denial. Right. (laughs) There's a word for it. Yeah. We call that denial. And what denial is, is not facing reality. And yeah. so if the church is all about truth and yeah. and learning what truth is, you can't have both. You can't be in denial no. at, the, at the same time um, be learning about truth. It doesn't work. Um, right. Yeah. You, you couldn't be more correct, Brandon. And I think the thing that's interesting is that, you know, I, I haven't and nor do I have any desire or, you know, Leaving the church doesn't feel like something that's even on my radar. And the, and that's very interesting, right? Because 
Mm-hmm. Boy, I think I know a fair amount of the dirty details. Right. I have jumped in. I understand it. I read about it. I mean, I'm appalled by much of it. But at the same time, I have the capacity as an emotionally and spiritually maturing person to handle the tension of opposites, to handle that prophets can also be very messy because I don't need a prophet to be perfect for me to be in, in, in frequent relationship with my divine and to take advantage of that, those good things that an institution can offer while distancing myself from that which doesn't feel good, true, and right that, to that me. Le- that leads to your second point, right? The second yes. reason why was, was what? That the naked truth will be too harmful for the simple believer, believer to handle. Right. Well, uh, you know what? Maybe that's true. The simple believer. But I'm still here. I still am a member of the church. Right. I still go. And I know a lot of the history. And I'm sure yeah. I don't know it all. And just like what you said, sure. Valerie, like here, there's people like us that are saying, mm-hmm. we love the church. We feel truth yeah. there. We know there's some truth there. And we can handle the reality. Let's walk through this together. Let's deal yes. with it together. Right. But yes. I think it's true also that some simple believers will go away. Well, right. and I think what, what frequently happens, or at least I'm noticing, <clears throat> the phenomenon that people leave more, not because of the history, but because of the inability of our churches. The deceit. Because our church has been unable to disclose the history. Yes. They feel betrayed. They're yes. less upset. I mean, I think there's a degree of upset, <laughs> clearly, about polygamy or, you know, the priesthood temple ban. Those are, those are you know, <laughs> unfortunate to say the very, very least. Right. Not acceptable. And yet, I think it's amplified 100-fold when we look at the history hiding. Right, right. That's more painful. That's more damaging. And actually, from my trauma therapist perspective, the incident itself, okay, let me just, like, this is, you may know this, but maybe one of you out there will have your mind blown a little bit. Someone who has been a victim of a heinous prob, you know, issue, say, for example, a rape, there, is, there are studies that show that they will be more traumatized, their capacity to be more injured happens when their parents don't believe them yeah. than the rape itself. Yeah. So the yeah. issue of the trauma is, is one thing, but if it's handled well, it can be healed from. Right. But when you're not, when, when there's dishonesty or when there's a lack of support around what happened, it, it, it bends the mind. The mind can't tolerate, tolerate that. And that's when people, and that's when very good, honest, testimony-filled human beings leave because they can't be congruent with their relationship with the divine when the institution won't look at themselves. Right, right. I think the dilemma is this, is the church can double down with apologetics and continue to fight for blind faith believers to stay, right? Yeah. And, and they will stay because it's yeah. like, well, they continue to justify and I believe everything and no matter what you say, and I'm going to keep my head yeah. in the sand and not look at the reality and they can, they can stay. Or the church can fight for, um, for, for those who want to face the reality and the truths by owning it yes. and by dealing it's, with it. It's the difference between an institution wanting to perpetuate a childlike faith mm-hmm. or a childish faith, I think I'd actually go so far as to say, as opposed to an institution inviting us to grow into what we're supposed to become, which is God's in embryo 
thinking, feeling, discerning, truth-loving, truth-understanding, truth-demanding people. That's who God and our, our, who our parents in heaven want us to become. Right. And I want my institution to want that for me. Right. Right. But, but don't protect me any longer. I yes. don't want you, well, I don't want you to scrub it to make sure that I'm, you know, I'm thinking that everything's perfect and okay. I don't want that. That's not working anymore. Well, the gig is up. It, it, it's, it's going to fail at this point because, because we have, it's, the stuff is out, right? <laughs> the histories yeah. are out. Things You're are right. online. And the, and as the church publishes these things, I think the other problem that I have with the, the, the essays is that, you know, they're like 12 clicks in, you know, once you get online, yeah. they yeah. need to be at general conference. There's not, there should be nothing that we learn online that is not being spoken somewhere very, very publicly. Amen. So someone from the outside or someone from the, you know, the side, so that we're not hearing about it second, third, fourth, fifth hand. It needs to be talked about, apologized over, you know, and we can even love these leaders that made so many heinous mistakes and say, boy, they were human and so am I. Right. Like they have, the, the, the atonement can heal all of us. Right. And when that is brought to light, I think we'll really find that our church will be in, in you know, that there will be, um, that the faith crisis and the trust crisis will, will, will be mitigated in, in great part. Right. It's interesting. I think, I think some people would say, you know what, why can't you guys just, just love the church for where it's at right now. Let bygones be bygones. The things that have happened are in the past and smile and move forward. Like, why are you talking about this? Why are you bringing it up? You know, I think for you, you and I have talked about this offline before, but I think the reason why we care so much is because we have the honor of sitting with people in massive amounts of pain who want to stay Yes. But they can't tolerate the dissonance of what of what they experience as something that's not integrity based at the institutional level. Yep. They want to stay. They have memories. They have family. They have a testimony. They under they believe mm-hmm. in the the truths of the Book of Mormon, and yet they can't they can't keep wrestling with with what's clearly a lack of integrity. You know, yes. at you know from from a historical standpoint. Yep. yep. And we that's see- why we can't stay quiet. Yeah. We see it affecting people on a, on a on a real level in their lives. When when what's modeled is, I can't own things. We won't we won't go there. You're 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 too weak to deal with the reality. That yeah. affects members of the church, and it confuses them, and it it causes yes. all kinds of of issues. And and that's why yeah. we talk about it. That's what this whole podcast yes. is about. There's something profoundly important about someone who's on the edge of the inside that has the courage to speak truth to power. And that's what we are passionate about because we love the Lord. We love the church. We believe in the power, the healing power of the atonement. And so this man by the name of Marty Nilsson says this. He says, no people, agency, institution, nation, or cultural entity can resist idolatry, self-idealization, unless there is pressure and motive to engage in constant self-examination. He goes on to say, I cannot point to an institution in the world today or in the world's history that renews itself unless there is a built-in mechanism for calling things into question. I don't think such pressure comes from without because that brings about defensiveness in the institution. This mechanism must come from within Mm-hmm. from those who share the presuppositions of the larger group. 
Aunt Valerie and her sidekick Brennan Brilliant, they get it. I thought that was a stunning analysis of the state of the church and the huge open wounds of loss of trust combined with clear-headed analysis of what will have to happen and what mindsets in the church we will have to slay for it to change and survive and perhaps even thrive. So many great memeable quotes. Quote, it seems to be the fulfilment of prophecy that the truth will be shouted from the rooftops. Here we are with the internet, close quote. Quote, much of what we have considered anti-Mormon was really just a group of people exposing our own history to ourselves. It's just what really happened, close quote. Quote, the attempt to protect us from ourselves that does way more damage than just being honest, close quote. Quote, betrayal trauma is actually greater not because of the thing that happened, it's because of all of the justifications and hiding and gaslighting and not owning the truth that happens afterwards. There's a big difference between disclosure and discovery. The trauma is so much bigger, close quote. Quote, what precedes a faith crisis is always a trust crisis. And if we don't feel like we can trust the institution, then it's very hard to stay faithful to the ample amount of truth that it can and does provide us. The ugly truth is far more important than the whitewashed lie, close quote. Quote, Daniel Callahan said, the ultimate meaning of the Christian faith above all is not a kind of commitment which excuses any sort of deception and evasion as long as their purpose is a good one. To deceive others for the good of the church, to deceive oneself for the sake of loyalty to the authority of the church is still a deception and cannot be covered by euphemisms. There is no excuse ever to deceive, which is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, close quote. Quote, truth has to always prevail if we are going to be in the service of God, close quote. Quote, I want my church to be able to grow up and grow out of this phase of evasion, close quote. Quote, I don't think it's doing the church any favour to hold on to the population that needs the lies to be okay. That is not actually representing an integrity-based institution. We want to be led by those whom we trust can handle the truth, and who can trust us that we can handle the truth. Close quote. Quote, the fear that the naked truth will harm the simple believer. I'm not going to be honest because I'm afraid that I'm going to hurt you, close quote. Quote, I've got to surrender in faith that wherever this lands, God's got it, God's got the church, close quote. Quote, to me, it feels like the most important thing we can do and model is a tenacious desire to perpetuate that which is true, close quote. And finally, quote, in order for people to live that way in any kind of comfort, they have to be so spiritually underdeveloped. Close quote. They are not unique in seeing, feeling, and saying these things. 
tens of thousands of experienced Latter-day Saints are having exactly the same realisations every year. But it really helps to have people able to talk us through it clearly and wisely and organise and validate our experiences. I'm trying to do that through this podcast in long form, and I'm over the moon that Valerie and her husband and professional colleagues who join in the conversation in different episodes are doing such a fantastic job of this in digestible chunks of short form, so fearlessly and so well without any dumbing down. Can you feel the energy and passion they have for this struggle? It can be incredibly heavy and serious and a big burden to carry to take a degree of responsibility for an entire religion and a community of family and friends you love that is tearing itself apart. But it can also be fun and exhilarating and we need to keep it as fun as possible. Telling the truth as you see it, after carefully, anxiously self-censoring and compartmentalising truth for decades, is like switching on a disco ball of lights. Growing up is fun. Adulting and taking control of your own life after being at the mercy of the mindset and whims of your parents all your life is thrilling. And doing that after a lifetime in a high-demand fundamentalist religion is like being a rebellious teenager all over again at the last life stage you ever expected that to happen. If we are going to do this thing, let's at least make it absolutely as fun and funny as we can manage. If they are going to excommunicate you, wear a silly hat to the court of love. I can now speak from experience that John DeLynn had his entire religion and career turned upside down by his faith transition. And he does amazing karaoke at maximum energy for hours after a long day ministering and empathising with an ocean of pain. Priesthood Dispatches has waded through suffering because of the church most of us can barely imagine. But his podcast began as after-dinner chats telling funny stories about life in Mormonism just for fun. And his performance art stunts get more out there and hilarious every month. These dissidents are fun. The LDS Church in Exile has nearly all the best Mormons in it, and they are awesome. Speaking truth to power in a community you are a lifelong expert in is exhilarating. Jesus went to parties and changed people's lives with stories and not being judgmental to anyone except for hypocrites who knew better. Welcome to the party, Latter-day Struggles. Let's get back to Brad Wilcox and finish his fireside with the Sunderland Stake, intrepid listeners. Well done making it this far through my longest ever episode. As we speak, loyal Britons are standing in queues several miles long to view Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II lying in state before her funeral in three days' time. This episode is actually shorter than that queue, so carry on, we're nearly there. These little sentences and sound bites Brad is trotting through have great significance, and they do matter because a lot of the children and adults listening to him are paying close attention to them and internalising them all. I have taught thousands of 11 to 18 year old mostly boys. 
They are smelly, violent, gormless Neanderthals who struggle to sharpen a pencil properly and they mostly think with their stomachs. But they are also wonderful little gods in embryo, absorbing what we teach them like sponges and working out how the world works and excited to take their place as adults in it. We must stop treating them like children when they've already spent 11 long years being children. They are young adults. They can think and argue and discuss and spot the slightest inconsistency and flaw in a train of thoughts being presented to them by authority figures. They respond brilliantly when spoken to as intelligent adults. They know and understand far more than we usually give them credit for. They are usually being educated as young teenagers to a standard and skill set of critical analysis of ideas and source documents and textual analysis of literature, like Shakespeare, far beyond the levels of sophistication allowed in typical adult discourse at church on a Sunday and in the teaching of church leaders. But these general authorities have the nerve to pretend that the whole world out there is full of confusion and doesn't know what it is thinking or doing, and only they can lead the world to truth and wisdom. And as often as not, if you try to have a conversation about our religion that is more than elementary school level, you will be shut down and feared as a contentious Satanist. It's pathetic, and it isn't working. The most jarring line in the Book of Mormon musical is A Mormon just believes! Because the whole paradigm of Mormonism I grew up in would never, ever say that. But, like in so many other things, Matt Stone and Trey Parker were way ahead of the curve spotting this trend in our religion early on. Just as their South Park episode featuring Joseph Smith's story was the first time most members heard about a seer stone in a hat and turned out to be far more accurate about the foundations of Mormonism than any of our lesson manuals. <laughs> Mormons aren't meant to be superstitious and gullible fools who just believe stuff. We are people who seek and expect to get answers, information, reasons for our beliefs, evidence. And this is what Brad tries to point to next by offering the Book of Mormon as tangible, proof-positive evidence and throws in Joseph Smith seeing John the Baptist resurrected with his head back on as proof as well. Turn to the Book of Mormon. This becomes proof positive that we can hold in our hands. Gosh, we can't go back to 1820 and hide behind a tree and see if Joseph Smith really had a vision or not. We can't do that, but we can read the Book of Mormon. And if this book is legit, then Joseph was legit. And if this book is legit, then Jesus is legit. If this book is real, if this book is what it claims itself to be, then there is life after death and there is a resurrection because it was an angel who came to Joseph Smith, a resurrected angel who came and brought the plates to Joseph Smith. It's John the Baptist who came and restored the priesthood authority and he had a head on. John the Baptist was beheaded, but when he came to Joseph Smith, he had a head. 
So that tells me that if this book is real, if this book is secure, if this book is sound and true, then I've got proof I can hold in my hands that God is there, that he loves us, and that he knows us personally. And that is something that can help me when I am struggling with my testimony. So cling to the network of friends, cling to the Book of Mormon, and remember, you are not alone. Brad is right. The Book of Mormon is a tangible thing that works powerfully as evidence that this church has got something significant going on. Jeffrey Holland is right that to debunk Mormonism, you have to crawl around or through the Book of Mormon and explain it. It is a sophisticated thing that in many ways is difficult to explain away as a forgery. It is bursting with great stories and mind and theology expanding sermons. It has powerful and poetic writing at times in amongst the clunky grammar and really long-running sentences that give mine a run for their money. But as more experienced researchers and thinkers will know, it also has a lot of flaws that severely dent its credibility as a real history of a real ancient American people. So much so that most of the church's officially approved apologists and some of the general authorities, being careful about the words they use, are working hard to reframe it as a revelation to Joseph Smith, rather than a literal translation. To the point where being historically real, or the gold plates it was allegedly written on being real, stops mattering so much. Because all scripture is written by visionary dreamers with big ideas and a great imagination, telling and writing stories to give life meaning and pretending they are real history. It has taken me a very long time to be persuaded that the Book of Mormon could have been fabricated, because I am very impressed by its complex story arcs and themes, its powerful wisdom and doctrinal insights, while acknowledging most of what makes Mormonism unique today is not in the Book of Mormon. If it is biblical fan fiction, it is some of the best ever, especially when you compare it to the gibberish modern prototype Joseph Smith's claiming to write further chapters of it have come up with. One of the most interesting insights I got from the Mormon Stories interviews with evangelical Christian Stephen Pinecker was how theologically mainstream Protestant Christianity would have little problem with the Christianity presented in the Book of Mormon, especially in its original form before Joseph Smith edited out some of the more obviously Trinitarian descriptions of the roles of the Father and the Son and Mary being the Mother of God, when his Godhead doctrine evolved into separate personages years after first dictating the book. And now some historians are suggesting that the Book of Mormon could be a very rare window into what was actually being taught in the revivalist sermons Joseph Smith attended growing up, and may have been plagiarised, as hardly any of them got written down at the time. I'm not going to go into all of that now, but faithful Latter-day Saints need to be a lot less complacent and smug about the Book of Mormon being an unassailable evidence of the truth of this work. 
and people challenging it are not biased anti-Mormons who have never actually read it. Even Brad knows that some of the big questions around the Book of Mormon are. 1. Why are big and small chunks of it literal plagiarism from the King James translation of the Bible in the late Middle Ages in Tudor English? 2. It describes things like steel, chariots, presumably with wheels, horses and elephants that were not part of ancient American cultures and fauna. They didn't have chariots, wheels, steel, horses or elephants. The Heartland Model fundamentalists who locate the whole Book of Mormon as having happened in the mound builder cultures of North America rather than the Central American model that gained momentum in the 1970s and has become the dominant concept in Mormonism are arguing for some of these inaccuracies being resolved if it all happened in North America such as the availability of goats for herding there which Central America lacks but there are still gaping holes in their models. Number three, the Book of Mormon only prophesies of things that will happen in the future that had already been fulfilled in history when Joseph Smith was dictating it, including his own birth and name. Number four, if it was a conspiracy, Joseph Smith and co-conspirators had many years to compose and refine the book after first mentioning it to people, rather than the much shorter period of time in which he dictated it to scribes while looking in a hat, which could easily have had crib notes hidden in it, or been memorised earlier for that day's dictation. He did not actually dictate that much text each day, despite the claims we grew up with that this was impossibly miraculous. And there are plenty of examples of gifted storytellers and preachers being able to go for hours with complex narratives and minimal preparation. It always seemed a bit fishy to me that the church uses his family's accounts of Joseph telling them long and very detailed tales of the ancient inhabitants of the Americas long before he got round to allegedly translating the Book of Mormon that coincidentally did the same, as if it was some kind of foreshadowing of his prophetic gifts rather than the most obvious interpretation that this showed he was already practising, formulating and telling fictional stories about them. Number five, as Alexander Campbell pointed out, it is very preoccupied with Protestant theological controversies of Joseph's Christian world, like infant baptism and what happens when you are saved, complete with being slain in the spirit for days. Number six, it claims to have the fullness of the gospel, yet says nothing whatsoever about the temple ordinances and theology Joseph Smith and the church ever since has made indispensable to salvation and getting into heaven. Eternal marriages, the washings and anointings and new name and endowment rituals, vicarious ordinances for the dead. How did the Book of Mormon's first Christians living perfectly for centuries while the Middle Eastern ones quickly descended into apostasy, not have any of those things, when the church claims the first Christians did. Number seven, there was the tantalising claim that deeper sacred stuff was in a sealed portion of the plates we weren't ready for yet, 200 years ago in the 1820s, including dark secrets about how the Gadianton robbers' mafia functioned. 
but they have still not been given to us and translated. And our living prophets refuse to ask God about women's ordination or heavenly mother, and now teach that asking God for doctrine is arrogant. So it doesn't look like they are going to be requesting the rest of the Book of Mormon anytime soon. This is disappointing, as growing up, our leaders regularly discussed how all that was going to happen when we were ready and worthy of it, and had made the most of the bits that were translated, and survived Joseph and Martin Harris screwing up spectacularly, and losing 114 pages of the book forever. I think in 200 years, the Latter-day Saints have more than proved their devotion to the second instalment of the Book of Mormon. What's happened to the next one, President Nelson, if you are so sure that we really are at the end of the latter days, and the second coming is any minute now? We are fast running out of time for you to translate or reveal by the gift and power of God the sealed portion of our foundational scripture. Your plural wife, Wendy, keeps telling us you are one of the most super amazing prophets ever in history. You've got the same seer stone Joseph Smith used, and you've shown us you know how to do the hat trick. So what are you waiting for? Have you ever been to uh, circumstances nowadays where the bishop or elders quorum president or someone challenges us to read the Book of Mormon in four months? Mm-hmm. Well, in our own ward, we've had that same kind of... We were in the same ward for a while. When you pat yourself on the back for reading the book in four months, just remember, the prophet translated it less time than that. So don't be too proud of yourself. <laughs> Quite miraculous, really, through the gift and power of God. We have a lot of suggestions about how it was done. We know that they had a table like this. They know they had the golden plates covered usually, and Joseph used these uh, the Urim and Thummim seer stones in, in the hat, and it was easier for him to see the light when he'd uh, take that position. To me, it's like having my mobile phone at my hand, and, and I can get messages on it that you can't see. That's true. Uh, and they had nothing like that. So it's just the gift and power of God, how he was able to do that in that period of time. They started in Palmyra, had to come here, worked as long as they could, and then ended up in Fayette, New York, where the manuscript was finally finished. But you know, to me, the Book of Mormon is the tangible evidence that all this other uh, all these other events really did take place. One can uh, debate one's, another's uh, statement about visions and prayers and angels and so on, uh, because those are personal experiences. But to leave the Book of Mormon as tangible evidence that all this happened means that you and I and any other interested person can get a testimony for himself that these things are true. So many unanswered questions and credibility-breaking issues. But Brad tells the kids that this book is proof positive that the whole religion is true. 
and referencing John the Baptist, who Joseph claimed appeared to him and Oliver Cowdery as a resurrected angel, and physically placed his resurrected hands on their heads and ordained them with the Aaronic priesthood he inherited from his Jewish temple high priest father, is also very problematic now. As we can see in the original documents and printings of the Book of Commandments and the Doctrine and Covenants online, they show us that the whole story of that and the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood by Peter, James and John was deceitfully retrofitted into a mundane revelation about sacrament wine labelled as happening in 1830 between the 1833 and 1835 versions as if they had always been there. This revelation was presented as chapter 28 of the Book of Commandments and now section 27 of the Doctrine and Covenants. The retrofitting occurred because there is no mention anywhere of Joseph Smith describing the restoration of these priesthoods by angelic visitors before 1834 and Joseph Smith evolved his teaching about what priesthood is into the Aaronic and Melchizedek model after being much vaguer about it all before, and treating priesthood or being an elder as a generic leadership role in the same way as mainstream Protestants were. Early revelations Joseph published told him that his role was primarily to be a translator and not to aspire to any other leadership roles. But as time went on and others challenged him for the role of leading the church, the sceptical view is that he had to assert unique claims of authority to regain control of the movement. So the construction of a hierarchical priesthood model, concentrating much more authority in his hands as a person ordained and appointed by ancient apostle angels, became the motivation for these doctrinal innovations. Similarly, the whole concept of eternal sealings and temple marriage could well have emerged as a doctrinal way to keep up with Joseph's libido and justify his rampant polygamizing. It is impossible to disconnect temple marriage and the endowment and development of Mormon temple rituals from those polygamous foundations that favour men accumulating wives and still goes on today. Technically, I'm still sealed to two wives in the London temple, although as an excommunicant whose sealings have been cancelled, that is apparently not a thing right now. But if I was rebaptized, I could have them all reinstated with one blessing. So they haven't really gone away. I know discrediting or acknowledging major flaws in things like the Book of Mormon and the Restoration of the Priesthood which are some of the first things our missionaries teach to investigators, doesn't leave Brad much to work with when teaching the teenagers. But people like him cannot carry on in the 21st century information age as if these huge curuloms in the room are not there. Instead of offering the same tired and not very robust arguments that sort of worked on us all in the pre-internet 1980s, they need to start offering the kids ways to frame these things realistically and faithfully if they are to be really inoculated and prepared for what they will be facing before long on the internet 
as M. Russell Ballard urged the church education system teachers to in 2016. What CES has accomplished in the last 100 years is amazing. However, I'm more interested in the next 100 years and how you can help your student, students face the ever-changing challenges of the 21st century. Gone are the days when a student asked an honest question and a teacher responded, don't worry about it. Gone are the days when a student raised a sincere concern and a teacher bore his or her testimony as a response intended to avoid the issue. Gone are the days when students were protected from people who attacked the church. The Internet is expanding its reach across the world into almost every home and into the very hands and minds of your students. You can help students by teaching them what it means to combine study and faith as they learn. Teach them by modeling this skill and approach in the class. Today, the story is much different as some of your students have already been infected by pornography and worldliness before they ever reach your classes. It was only a generation ago that our young people's access to information about our history, doctrine, and practices was basically limited to materials printed by the Church. Few students came in contact with alternative interpretations. Most, mostly our young people lived a sheltered life. Our curriculum at that time, though well-meaning, did not prepare students for today, a day when students have instant access to virtually everything about the Church from every possible point of view. Today, what they see on their mobile devices is likely to be faith-challenging as much as faith-promoting. Many of our young people are more familiar with Google than they are with the gospel, more attuned to the Internet than to inspiration, and more involved with Facebook than with faith. Additionally, more than at any time in our history, your students also need to be blessed by learning doctrinal or historical content and context by study and faith, accompanied by pure testimony, so they can experience a mature, lasting conversion to the gospel and a lifelong commitment to Jesus Christ. Mature and lasting conversion means they will stay in the boat and hold on throughout their entire lives. For you to understand the doctrinal and historical content and context of the scriptures and our history, you will need to study from the best books as the Lord directed. The best books include the scriptures the teaching of modern prophets, the apostles, and the best LDS scholarship available. Through your diligent effort to learn by study and faith, 
you'll be able to help your students learn the skills and attitudes necessary to distinguish between reliable information that will lift them up and the half-truths and incorrect interpretations of doctrinal history and practices that will bring them down. Teach them about the challenges they face when relying upon the Internet to answer questions of eternal significance. Remind them that James did not say, if you lack wisdom, let him Google. <laughs> Wise people do not rely on the Internet to diagnose and treat emotional, mental, and physical health challenges, especially life-threatening challenges. Instead, they seek out health experts, those trained by licensed and licensed by recognized medical and state boards. Even then, prudent people seek a second opinion. If that is the sensible course to take in finding answers for emotional, mental, physical health issues, it is even more so when eternal life is at stake. When something has the potential to threaten our spiritual life, our most precious family relationships, and our membership in the kingdom, we should find thoughtful and faithful Church leaders to help us. And if necessary, we should ask those with appropriate academic training, experience, and expertise for help. This is exactly, brothers and sisters, what I do when I need an answer to my own questions that I cannot answer myself. I seek help from my brethren in the Quorum of the Twelve and from others with expertise in fields of Church history and doctrine. You should be among the first outside your students' families to introduce authoritative sources on topics that will be less well-known or controversial so your students will measure whatever they hear or read later against what you have already taught them. Please, before you send them into the world, inoculate your students by providing faithful, thoughtful, and accurate interpretation of gospel doctrine, the scriptures, and our history, and those topics that are sometimes misunderstood. To name a few such topics that are less known or controversial, I'm talking about polygamy, of seer stones, different accounts of the first vision, the process of translation of the Book of Mormon, of the Book of Abraham, gender issues, race and the priesthood, or a heavenly mother. The efforts to inoculate our young people will often fall to UCS teachers. Church leaders today are fully conscious of the unlimited access to information. We're making extraordinary efforts to provide accurate context and understanding of teachings of the Restoration. A prime example of this effort is the 11 Gospel Topics Essays on LDS.org that provide balanced and reliable interpretations of the facts for controversial and unfamiliar Church-related subjects. 
It is important that you know the content in these essays like you know the back of your hand. If you have questions about them, then please ask someone who has studied them and understands them. In other words, seek learning even by study and also by faith as you master the content of these essays. You should also become familiar with the Joseph Smith Papers website and the Church History section on LDS.org and other resources by faithful LDS scholars. The effort for gospel transparency and spiritual inoculation through a thoughtful study of doctrine and history coupled with a burning testimony is the best antidote we have to help students avoid and or deal with questions, doubt, or faith crisis they may face in this information age. As you teachers pay the price to better understand our history, doctrine, and practices better than you do now, you will be prepared to provide thoughtful, careful, and inspired answers to your students' questions. One way to know what questions your students have is to listen attentively to them. All good teachers must be good listeners. In addition to listening to your students, encourage them in class or in private to ask you questions about any topic. Now a word of caution. Please recognize you may come to believe, like many of your students do, that you are a scriptural, doctrinal, history expert. A recent study revealed that more people think they know about a topic, the more likely they are to allege understanding beyond what they know, even to the point of feigning knowledge of false facts and fabricated information. Identified as overclaiming, this temptation must be avoided by UCS teachers. It is perfectly all right to say, I do not know. However, once that is said, you have a responsibility to find the best answers to a thoughtful questions your students ask. In teaching your students and in responding to their questions, let me warn you not to pass along faith-promoting or unsubstantiated rumors or outdated understandings and explanations of our doctrine practices from the past. It is always wise to make a practice to study the words of the living prophets and apostles, keep updated on current church issues, policies, and statements through mormonnewsroom.org and lds.org, and consult the works of recognized, thoughtful, and faithful LDS scholars to ensure you do not teach things that are untrue, out of date, or odd and quirky. The authors of the overclaiming study noted that a tendency to overclaim, especially in self-perceived experts, may actually discourage individuals from educating themselves in precisely those areas in which they consider themselves knowledgeable. 
BYU's academic vice president observed, being the expert on a subject can be so exhilarating with students and colleagues hanging on our every word. However, without a deep commitment to continued learning, we will fall victim to overclaiming, and no one likes a know-it-all." I repeat President Hinckley's warning. We cannot be too careful. We must watch that we do not get off course. To properly fulfill your opportunities and responsibilities, you must practice, my dear fellow teachers, what you preach. You with yourself on occasion and review Second Nephi, the 26th chapter, 29 through 32, Alma 5, 14 through 30, and Doctrine and Covenants 121, 33 through 46. That will help to identify the kinds of temptations we all may face. If something needs to change in your life, then resolve to fix it. Teach students to control their mobile devices and focus on being connected more to the Holy Spirit than to the Internet. Inoculate students with the truths of the plan of salvation found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Master the content of the gospel topic essays. Remember that why can be a great question that leads to gospel understanding. Don't overclaim and don't be afraid to say, I don't know. Become lifelong learners. Seek counsel and correction from those you trust. Along with Dieter Uchtdorf's revolutionary, it works wonderfully, excoriation of the pharisaical mountain of man-made ideas, expectations and programs that the Church has nearly crushed the delicate flower of its members' Christianity under, a few months before this talk, in October 2015 General Conference, I believe this address to the CES staff by Elder Ballard in February 2016 was one of the most important talks given in LDS Mormonism so far in the 21st century. As I have mentioned before, it was printed in the December 2016 Enzyme with one particularly significant edit to remove knowing the gospel topics essays, quote, like the back of your hand, close quote. It reads, quote, It is important that you know the contents of these essays, close quote, but doesn't finish the sentence he spoke. It is important that you know the content in these essays, like you know the back of your hand. If you have questions about them, then please ask someone who has studied them and understands them. Who was it that decided to start censoring and watering down the impact of this talk and its message in such a petty and paranoid way? This was a bizarre step backwards from Ballard's uncompromising confidence in truth and transparency when he delivered the talk originally, but a tragic foreshadowing of the debacle the following year in his face-to-face -face with young adults 
in which he totally betrayed every principle he taught here when it was his own turn to teach the young people. He lied about church history. He claimed the church leaders never hid anything from anyone and had always been totally honest with integrity in its teaching materials. He told distracting, faith-promoting stories rather than addressing the real issues his audience are facing online and crashed the last remnants of my trust or hope that these apostles and their entire system will ever reform themselves and truly embrace honesty and transparency. Questions, sincere desire to know that aren't accompanied with a presumption of of uh, rejection uh, are something that we that we wish to encourage and and some uh, some are uh, saying that the church has been hiding the fact that there is more than one version of the of the first vision which is uh, just a, a, a f- not true the facts are we don't study, we don't go back and search what has been said on the subject. For example, Dr. James B. Allen of the BYU in 1970, he, he, he produced a, an article for the church magazines explaining all about the different versions of the first vision. How long ago was that article? 1970. That was back in 1970. So been hiding that for a long time. Yeah. (laughs) But but it's this it's this 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 idea that the church is hiding something. It was only a generation ago that our young people's access to information about our history, doctrine, and practices was basically limited to materials printed by the church. Few students came in contact with alternative interpretations. Mostly our young people lived a sheltered life. Our curriculum at that time, though well-meaning, did not prepare students for today. A day when students have instant access to virtually everything about the church from every possible point of view. But it's this, it's this, it's this idea that the church is hiding something, that, which we would have to say as two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve from the beginning of time, there has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. The authors of the overclaiming study noted that a tendency to overclaim, especially in self-perceived experts, may actually discourage individuals from educating themselves in precisely those areas in which they consider themselves knowledgeable. Which we would have to say as Two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve from the beginning of time, there has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. Now we've had the Joseph Smith Papers. 
We didn't have those where they were in our hands now. And, they're, and so we're learning more about the prophet Joseph. It's wonderful we are. There's volumes of it. There's so much of in those books now in my bookshelf. Maybe you've read them all, but I haven't got yeah. I'm a slow that reader. That much. So <laughs> just trust us wherever you are in the world and you share this message with anyone else who raises the question about the church not being transparent. We're as transparent as we know how to be in telling the truth. We have to do that. That's the Lord's way. But before that betrayal, for a brief moment, whoever wrote this talk for this shameless geriatric deceiver and hypocrite who was completely useless in his long rambling contribution to the British rescue in London last Halloween, reached out and touched the face of God and described precisely the revolutionary reforms in integrity and teaching practice the church must embrace if it is to prepare its young people to want to stay in the boats into their adulthood. Sadly, he also threw in a bunch of unreconstructed homophobia. I'm not claiming the talk was perfect, but just like the sublime Doctrine and Covenants 121 about how not to abuse power and manipulate people with guile that he urged all the teachers to hold themselves accountable to, he listed precisely the wrong ways to lead and teach and the right ways, and described precisely every error and deception his apostolic colleagues have been wallowing in for generations. He forbade telling faith-promoting stories of dodgy credibility. He forbade dodging difficult questions. He forbade overclaiming knowledge, authority and expertise that you don't have. He admitted that until the internet, the church had carefully controlled members' access to information about itself and kept them, quote, sheltered from other points of view and information. He said, quote, Our curriculum at that time, though well-meaning, did not prepare students for today, close quote. Today, meaning access to the information they were hiding from us all along, online. Elder Ballard encouraged modelling, combining faith with research and learning from reliable and qualified sources and people. He listed the best scholarship available alongside scriptures and church leaders. He encouraged learning and teaching doctrinal and historical context. He encouraged admitting when you don't know the answer to something and then taking responsibility for researching and seeking credible answers to the questions you are asked as a duty of care to your students, not just telling them there are no answers or they are asking the wrong questions. The total opposite of Elder Renlund's fatwa on asking God for answers and further light and knowledge about Heavenly Mother or anything else and the total opposite of Brad Wilcox and Susan Bednar's husband and Dallin Oakes and everyone else who tells church members that they are asking the wrong questions or that their questions are invalid because they are not honest questions. Elder Ballard encouraged making sure students first hear about and can ask questions about difficult topics 
like seer stones, the translation of the Book of Mormon and Book of Abraham, polygamy, racism, and Heavenly Mother in lessons at church to prepare and inoculate them for when they encounter them read in tooth and claw and uncensored online with a full range of analysis and perspectives about them. He encouraged learning the difference between, quote, the best LDS scholarship available, reliable information that will lift them up, and the half-truths and incorrect interpretations of doctrinal history and practices that will bring them down, close quote. In his paradigm, of course, he probably assumes the demoralizing half-truths are all coming from the world outside the church, rather than from within it and from himself, but the principle was there and applies wherever needed. He told us all to seek out experts with qualifications recognised by secular authorities for reliable information and to supplement asking for answers from quote, thoughtful and faithful close quote, church leaders by consulting quote, others with expertise in fields in church history and doctrine. Close quote. The term thoughtful here is very significant. He knows as well as we do that the church is teeming with leaders who are not thoughtful at all when it comes to dealing with difficult questions, who are partially or totally ignorant and uneducated about the church's history and doctrines and culture, or who because of their fanaticism or personality will hit the nuclear button in response to any sign of dissent or nuance or doubt and do and say all the wrong things with no empathy, patience or understanding towards a person with questions. He knows it's a high-stakes game of leadership roulette when you go to local or global leaders in our church for answers to questions, or support with faith and trust crisis. Faithful is not enough. You need to choose someone who is thoughtful too. Elder Ballard taught that, quote, all good teachers must be good listeners, close quote. To listen to your pupils' questions, rather than making assumptions about what they are. He urged the CES staff to keep updated on developments in LDS Newsroom and the latest scholarship to keep themselves up to date, especially in your own area of expertise. I have documented in other episodes how President Nelson claimed to do the opposite of that, refusing to read articles in medical journals that contradicted his current assumptions and only reading the research that agreed with his preconceptions in an interview with the medical school of a Utah university. Elder Ballard said, quote, You should be among the first outside your students' families to introduce authoritative sources on topics that will be less well-known or controversial, close quote. The tragic reality, of course, is that if you actually do that, to introduce church members, and particularly young church members, to, quote, authoritative sources on topics that will be less well-known or controversial, close quote, you will immediately be treated as a dangerous apostate threat, released from teaching callings and excommunicated if you persist. That is exactly what happened to Fawn Brody, the September 6th, John DeLynn, 
Bill Reel, Jeremy Runnels after publishing his letter to a CES director, and me, and countless others, when we did precisely what Elder Ballard told us to there. The crime that we all committed was that we shared and introduced people to the full range of accurate and credible scholarship about Mormon doctrines and history and the controversies created by the lies the Church taught us about the Gospel topics Elder Ballard listed and labelled as, quote, controversial. Elder Ballard precisely described in this amazing talk the civil war in Mormonism between truth and deception in its entire teaching system and the practices of its professional teachers in his audience he was bravely challenging to radically change their ways. But then he chose the dark side and ever since has been leading the way to ignore and lie about our history while totally overclaiming his expertise. One of the simplest and most important things he had told the church education system staff a year before the face-to-face -face car crash was to practice what they preach. In this face-to-face -face debacle, tag-teaming with Dallin Oaks, the apostle who has taught ten ways to justify lying to Mormon law students, he spectacularly failed to practice anything he had preached the previous year. Chloe, that's such a good question. And it's not, you're not the only one who's ever wondered that. <clears throat> All of us wonder, gosh, is this just my feelings? Or is this God trying to talk to me? Are these just my thoughts? In the Doctrine and Covenants, we read that Jesus and God communicate to us through our thoughts and our feelings. So it's easy to get confused. One thing that's helped me is to remember <clears throat> that God's messages will be something that will stay and linger. They'll be continuous. Sometimes, you know, we'll feel something and then we think, oh, gosh, is that God talking to me or not? If you still feel the feeling an hour later, if you feel it the next day, then you can trust that this isn't just a thought you're having, but it's a thought that God is putting into your head. One time I went to get on an airplane, and I thought right before I boarded the airplane, gosh, what if this plane were to go down? And then I thought, oh, oh no, is God telling me not to get on this plane? And the flight attendant was trying to take my ticket. And I wouldn't give it to her because I thought, maybe I'm not supposed to get on this plane. Did I just have a prompting of the spirit? And so I fought her. I fought her with the ticket. And finally, I thought, oh, Brad, quit being stupid. If God didn't want you to get on this plane, he's had six months to tell you about it. He's not going to wait till the very last minute and say, whoops, fooled you. You're not supposed to get on the plane. So I gave her my ticket, I got on a plane, and I lived to tell the tale. So look for the consistent feelings. Before somebody gets married, everybody feels cold feet. You feel nervous. Oh, is that God talking to me? Well, not if it happens only once or twice. But if you're feeling that feeling day after day after day after day, then yeah, maybe that's a message from God telling you that you better slow down or go a different direction. Look for consistent feelings. 
not just strong feelings, but consistent feelings. Look for those consistent feelings, and you'll, you'll find that that will help you. Remember in Moroni, in the Book of Mormon, it says that the Spirit teaches us to do good continually. Now, that can mean it teaches us to always be doing good, or it can also mean it teaches us to do good always. It always teaches us the consistency. Remember that when Jesus came to the Americas, and we read about it in 35, the people heard a voice from heaven, and they didn't understand it. Then the voice came again, and they didn't understand it. Then the voice came again, and finally they understood it. Boy, that says that if God's going to communicate with you, it's not just going to be a one-shot deal. That voice will come again and again and again. When you feel that consistency, then you can trust that those feelings and thoughts are coming from God through the Spirit. Turn off the computers and the cell phones a little more and be able to focus in on God. And when we do, then we understand his messages more clearly. That's great. Thank you. And I'm glad that our northern accent is is fine for you as well. We don't sound like a wah-wah-wah, do we? No, you don't sound like a wah-wah-wah. You sound like Harry Potter. (laughs) I really like this advice. It was sensible. Advising caution before acting impulsively on a brainwave that might be from God. If only Russell Nelson took this advice instead of shooting from the hip and embarrassing everyone when eventually he sees reason and the church has to walk back or reverse things he has already announced as a revelation, like the November policy of exclusion, preserving or destroying temple murals, messing with the general conference schedules to cancel women's voices being heard and then bringing them back again. Not cancelling, then cancelling live temple endowment sessions in their last remaining reservations in the Salt Lake and Manti temples, and announcing new temples in places with no members left to go to them. I love that Brad addressed head on with an example from his own thoughts, not buying into anxious perfectionism, where you constantly worry if every random concern that pops into your head is a warning that could mean life or death, or gaining or losing a testimony for yourself or someone else if you do or don't act on it. But in giving that advice, just like the apostles evolving from revelation being an angel turning up unexpected to revelation emerging through months of committee meetings, what really is the difference in his model between divine intervention and just using your own brain to consider a decision over a few days until you feel confident about the best course of action. Having a rational faith that still has miracles in it is really tricky to balance right. There needs to be a place for emergency impulses too. The next question is from a teacher's quorum president asking for advice about his job, which is pretty much a big non-event. How exciting can you make planning laying the sacrament table for two years? Brad refers him to some helpful training videos 
buried very deep in the church's website where no one will find it unless you know where to look already like the gospel topics essays i love how honest brad is about the total uselessness of the search and navigation systems in the church website which was also lamented by church history department director of historical outreach keith erickson during the british rescue last autumn i bear testimony that what brad and keith said is true Amen. And I remind everyone that the church could afford to hire actual Bill Gates to sort out its IT, but doesn't. It presents as being run by some high school dropouts appointed nepotistically because they are related to general authorities and cannot get a job in the real world. Their main skill seems to be breaking internal links by constantly tinkering with URL names. Not helped by President Nocturnal Yellow Notepad insisting the word Mormon is purged from everything. Enzyme Peak is now three times as big as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They could literally hire Bill Gates. He would come and sort their IT out and use his salary to cure malaria. It would be a win-win. But the stingy hoarders have zero imagination or concept of professionalism, so that will never happen until we replace them. The scriptures teach us of God's plan of salvation for all mankind. Your patriarchal blessing teaches you of God's personal plan for you. And that's so important to have that box so that then you can see the big picture and you can start fitting those pieces together and making good choices. My friend, if you will go to your phone. Oh, here's my phone. Go to the phone and go to your Gospel Library app. Once you go to Gospel Library, then go to the tile that says audiences i know it's weird trust somebody at the church to come up with that and if you find audiences then go to youth and once you find youth scroll down until you get to another tile that says class and quorum presidencies president deacon are you finding these good under class and quorum presidencies, scroll down again. And at the very bottom of that, you'll see five leadership lessons. Those are new. Those leadership lessons have only been posted there for a couple weeks. There's five of them. Meet with your presidency. And every time you meet, go through one of those leadership lessons. Maybe you could ask your advisor to teach them to you, or maybe you could take turns teaching them yourselves. But go to those leadership lessons and learn how to be a leader because that's the most important thing you can do is start meeting as a presidency and start figuring things out that you can be doing to help the, the young man that you're responsible for. So I've given you a little resource there you now know something that nobody in the church knows because it's on the church website. Nobody ever looks there. It's down deep in the website. All those little punches you have to do. But President Deacon just figured it out.
And if President Deacon can do it, you can do it. So find those leadership lessons, meet as a presidency, and get things going. If you can't meet in person, meet via computer. But let's get going. Let's don't wait for somebody to give us permission. Let's do it now. Notice the letter that came from the prophet says, hold presidency meetings, ironic priesthood quorum, presidency meetings, youth meetings, activities, service projects. He's given you all the green light you want to get, brother. So just get yourself started on that. That's great. Thank you. And what, what a great question that was as well. From Yeah. Um, as well, it is maybe important to, to recognize as a teacher's corn president that you have keys, Aidan. And there's only a handful of people in the ward and in the stake that do have keys. You've got the, the right and privilege as a, as a key holder to administer that quorum, that teacher's quorum in your own ward under the direction of the bishop. So uh, to remember that that's a pretty privileged and special position to be in, to hold those priesthood keys. Yeah. And so those, keys, those keys have to do with ordinances and they have to do with organization. So get organized. Have your presidency <laughs> meeting. One thing that I didn't learn to do until later in my life was love reading. I didn't even read the whole Book of Mormon until I went on a mission. When I was younger, I'd get assigned to read things for school, but I'd kind of fake my way through it. And I'd just take the test without actually reading the book. But now I love reading. I love reading. When I started reading on, the, on my mission, it just turned me on to books. And now I just can't stop reading. There's so many books to read. I read books about, I read books that are, that are just novels. I mean, I just read one called Allies about the D-Day invasion and uh, during World War II. And I just read one by the same author that was awesome. And it was called Refugee. And it kind of wove several refugee stories together. And it really, really touched my heart. I also read a lot of church books. I'm reading one right now that is called 40 Years, The Saga of Building the Salt Lake Temple. Now, it's a thick old book, but I'll tell you right, it doesn't read like a thick old book. That author has, has told the story and it sounds like you're reading a novel. It just sounds like you're, it's like you're watching a video. He just brings it to life and I'm learning so much. I love to read scriptures and I love to read books about the scriptures. This is one I'm reading right now called Don't Miss This. And they've got one chapter. They've pulled one scripture out of every chapter, one verse. And they, they've made me really look that one verse in the Book of Mormon, there's so many things to read. You're going to be getting a brand new international youth magazine. Starting in January, you're going to be getting a magazine called For the Strength of Youth. And you know what the tagline is? The tagline is Finding Joy in Christ. Whoa, you got to be reading that magazine every stinking month because it's going to have so much good stuff in it. I want you to read, and I want that young lady who asked that question to read too, and I want all of you to turn on to books.
because I didn't do that until later in my life. And I wish I had turned on to books a lot earlier. Turn off those video games, turn off the electronic games a little bit more and turn on to some books and you will be so glad that you did. All great questions, guys. And hopefully they've been answered for you this evening. If you can't remember, because some of those questions were detailed in their answers, um, this video is still available on YouTube. So you guys can have a little look at that and, and study a little bit more about what Brother Wilcox has said in answer to your questions. Um, Brother Wilcox, we, we do have um, a number of our youth here in the, in the Sunland State. We're, we're quite representative of the rest of Europe in that we have about 55% of our youth who are, who are active in, in the Sunderland stake here. Um, that pains us as a state presidency. That's something that uh, we don't want any of our youth to go astray. What, what guidance do you feel that we can do as, as leaders, generally speaking, to help our youth to know that this is Christ's church and joy is found here? President, I would say you need to ask that question of the youth themselves. They will know the answer. They will know how to reach their friends. Look what happened during COVID. The missionaries were all in lockdown. And what did they start doing? They started reaching out through social media. And now what's happening? Many of the missions are having more baptisms than they had before COVID. Because the missionaries are getting creative. And our youth can get creative. Gather those young people. Gather them in a bishop's council. And that bishop, instead of thinking, oh, I've got to entertain the youth along with doing all my other work. Man, I hope that bishop will start seeing himself as a mission president. And those youth are his missionaries. Man, when I went out as a mission president, I didn't think, well, how can I entertain and keep the missionaries busy while I do the work? No way. I got them doing the work. And every bishop can look at himself as like a mission president and say, these youth are my soldiers. They're my missionaries. And I'm going to get this youth battalion to work. And they're going to know how to reach each other. They're going to know what to do and what to say and how to say it. And they're going to be able to bring some of those young people who are floundering in the cold ocean, some of those young people who are on the sinking ship, they're going to be able to bring them into the lifeboat. They'll be able to do it. I believe in the young people of the church, and God believes in them. I love that. My local leaders growing up understood this and were all about empowering the teenagers to plan their own activities and take responsibility for things and be our own leaders, which was very helpful and made us feel needed and valued by our congregation. I love the idea of asking the youth who have left why that is and listening to them. And I love that in his closing remarks about serving a mission, Brad is willing to talk about anxiety and depression levels among missionaries that have become rampant. He attributes it to the depressing futility of knocking on doors rather than using social media to proselyte. 
I would attribute it to the soul-destroying experience of Pharisee Mormonism in a context of peak cult control for two years with all the harm that does, and the missionaries desperately stalking people on social media aren't having a delightful time of it from what I've seen of that so far. So we'll see if that really helps in the long run. Well, what guidance do you feel that you could give them as a member of the General Young Men's Presidency and also as a former mission president? For the for the young women and for the... For those preparing to serve a mission? Or, or thinking about or those who are not maybe preparing but are, are thinking about serving? Yeah. Just remember what we said at the beginning of this meeting. This is not a bad time to serve a mission. This is a great time to serve a mission. You're going to find yourself busier and happier, and you're going to find yourself more engaged in the work than ever before in history. They're actually finding that the depression levels of the missionaries, the anxiety of the missionaries is going down because the missionaries are able to get in and do the work through social media. They're not being expected to go out and talk to strangers or knock on doors. That hasn't worked for years. And no wonder they were feeling anxious and discouraged. Now they're being asked to use their talents and their experience and reach out in a way that's comfortable to them. So yes, this is a great time to be serving. Don't say, well, I'll wait for COVID to be over and then I'll go out and serve. No, get your papers in right now and go now. This is the moment that you were born for. Oh dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this day today and we're thankful that we can be able to do this over the internet. We're thankful for Brother Wilcox that he was able to do this fireside with us and help us in these troubling times to stay safe and keep focused on our religion and help us to stay in the life force. And please help us to be a solution rather than the problem. Help us to help other people and just do what we can. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. Isn't he just brilliant? I want that young man to grow up happy and healthy and empowered rather than stressed out and guilt-ridden in this religion. And I don't want anyone to lie to him and manipulate him, ever. Without radical reforms and standing up to this system and challenging its toxic habits, I'm afraid that is highly unlikely to happen. Did you spot the massive lie I challenged you to look out for and said I'd investigate after getting through this fireside? Now, I was rather sceptical about the research he claimed to be quoting, proving decisively that in times of crisis like a global pandemic, religious people reach out and help people, and atheists will trample you to death in their rush to be selfish. How would you even begin to research such a bold claim? So I did some researching of my own and found the Pew article Brad was referencing. Of course, it said nothing of the sort. It was a survey of people's opinions about whether they think religious people and atheists behave differently in a crisis. 
not the conclusive proof that Brad told the young people of my country that it was. I reached my own conclusion. Brad Wilcox is not Vegemite. He isn't even Marmite. He's just another general authority liar gaslighting the kids. To be more specific, the Sunderland devotional taught me that Brad Wilcox is a truly awful researcher despite the enthusiasm for reading he valiantly tried to pass on to his young audience in Sunderland at the end of the Q&A with them. He is not honest in how he references and interprets research. He absolutely believes the unmodified old-school 1960s and 1970s McConkie Mormonism our generation grew up on, and takes scriptures and the church's out-of-date narratives about them and history literally. He has not hesitated to embrace the approach common in Mormonism of selectively cherry-picking available evidence for anything that seems to support these narratives while ignoring everything that proves them wrong. He will teach young people a hyper-paranoid them-and-us binary view of the world they live in, telling them that everyone else who is an atheist or not Mormon is untrustworthy and out to get us, and even potentially dangerous. This is a very isolating and unhelpful message to give to young people here in Britain, where LDS youth are very rare, and it is highly likely that they will be the only young Latter-day Saint in their school or community. If you are being told that your only safe place is your shrinking congregation of mostly elderly fundamentalist diehards and the rare stake youth activities you can get to a few times a year, and not to have close friendships with anyone else, it is hardly surprising that some of our youth become more vulnerable to depression and loneliness and anxiety. Our community can be really careless and reckless in what it says to our children, who don't have the life experience and perspective and wider social networks in the church and their workplaces that adults take for granted. And it was particularly offensive and self-evidently wrong that he was telling these children in September 2020 that atheists do not pull together in a time of crisis. This was the absolute height of our lockdown. The whole country was uniting like it hasn't since World War II for the greater good, self-sacrificing income, convenience, shopping, leisure, all kinds of things to protect the vulnerable. And the atheists were doing it just as enthusiastically as the religious people were. These kids were standing on their doorsteps at 8pm once a week to bang their pots and pans and cheer and applaud the National Health Service trying to keep us alive, along with all the non-members of the church in their streets and communities. And then, just to mess with my head, because maybe he is Marmite after all, Brad gave one of the most important and helpful and brave general conference talks of the last decade in the October 2021 General Conference, titled, Worthiness is Not Flawlessness. In the next episode, 10E, we will explore how he got that talk so right 
and then fell flat on his face when addressing the youth of three stakes in Alpine, Utah, and blew up the bloggernacle. We'll then explore the extraordinary attempt to salvage his reputation and the huge can of worms it all opens regarding the LDS Church's ongoing, deep-rooted racism and its current leader's stubborn determination to perpetuate their belief that God is racist and was 100% behind the Church's 150 years of racist doctrine and segregation in stark contrast to the 10-year-old Gospel Topics essay's denials of this. If you kind of feel sorry that you missed the heady days of the 1960s civil rights movement when Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King were doing their thing, and the watershed moments when the church was finally persuaded in 1978 to drop the segregation, it's your lucky day! Oakes, Wilcox, Corbett and nearly all the rest of them have decided to go back to the future and pretend it never meant anything. So we are going to have to fight that battle all over again. Are you ready for it? It's Groundhog Day in Racist Zion. How come the blacks didn't get the priesthood until 1978? What's up with that, Brother Wilcox? What, Brigham Young was a jerk? Members of the church were prejudiced? Maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe instead of saying, why did the blacks have to wait until 1978? Maybe what we should be asking is, why did the whites and other races have to wait until 1829? 1,829 years they waited. And why did the Gentiles have to wait until after the Jews? And why did everybody in the house of Israel, except the tribe of Levi, have to wait until... When you look at it like that, then instead of trying to feel like you have to figure out God's timeline, we can just be grateful grateful right down to our socks that the blacks received the priesthood in seventh grade. Grateful right down to our socks that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery had the priesthood restored to them in 1829. Maybe we should just feel grateful. 